Okay, all flight controllers, go no go for landing. Retro. Go. Fido. Go. Guidance. Go. Control. Go. Telcom. Go. GNC. Go. Ecom. Go. Go. Surgeon. Go. Capcom, we're go for landing. Eagle Houston, you're go for landing. Over. Roger, understand. Go for landing. 3,000 feet. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, you sad, pathetic hump. Joining us is Helene Olin. She's a columnist for the Washington Post. She has two books that everybody should buy, Pound Foolish and The Index Card. Welcome, Helene Olin. I reached out to you at the last minute, so thank you for doing this. We'll keep it short. You wrote a great piece about the handshake that never was between... Say what handshake? Yeah. There was no handshake. Well, you had a great piece over at the Washington Post. It's blowing up in the Bernie camp where I live. A lot of misogyny has emerged. It's ugly. A lot of people feel that Elizabeth Warren unfairly played the female card. A lot of people say that Bernie, and you wrote, that he shouldn't have said, that's a lie. And you have a a great piece about how indelicate it was for Bernie. And obviously, this is not what the Democrats should be doing. Well, what do you think? I'll turn this around for a minute before I talk about me. What do you think? Well, I've been talking about this for the past two days. I'm infuriated by this. I'm infuriated by the media for taking the bait and discussing a meeting that never was taped. So we don't, as he said, she said. I'm infuriated that, well, I'm going to say something that I think is probably wrong. And that's why that, you know, we on this show don't understand Tulsi Gabbard. This is what I think. And then we have this reporter, David Bacon, who interviews all the candidates. And he spoke with Tulsi Gabbard after Suleimani was assassinated. And she spoke eloquently about putting an end to these senseless wars. She has been as consistent on putting an end to these senseless wars as Bernie has been on Medicare for all. That's her issue. My issue happens to be Medicare for all. And I realize that because I'm not part of the 1% of America who's affected by these endless wars, that I don't pay attention to Tulsi Gabbard the way I do to Medicare for all. Medicare for all is my issue. Elizabeth Warren is not about Medicare for all. And because I'm not a woman, I feel that the the female card that she played gets in the way of the policy that I want enacted. But I'm not a woman. I mean, you have the Ukrainian ambassador whose life was threatened. I mean, can you imagine that woman finding out that? No, no. I I mean, Trump's horrible. That's, we know that. Yeah, there was a a reporter. I I don't remember where it was. 22-year-old reporter talking to a state legislator. And he was with some guys and says, hey, why don't I leave you alone with these these 22-year-old boys? They'll have a good time with you. We have reporters getting 
patted on female reporters getting patted on the butt. Uh, there are reports coming out that it's more dangerous now for female reporters around the world than it's ever been. So I want Medicare for all. And this conversation that did or didn't take place between Bernie and Warren, my reaction is it's a distraction. I would assume, and reading your piece, I would assume if you're a woman, it's not a distraction. The same way putting in... I think that, you know, I I say, okay, I'm going to come right in then. I don't know the answer to that. I, I think it's really interesting that you would assume all women would think one thing or the other. I mean, if you talk to pollsters, they'll say one of the main impediments women have had to getting change made is that women are not an interest group, that you literally cannot have an interest group of more than 50% of the population, that such a thing doesn't exist, that women are simply diverse, a bunch of diverse interests ultimately after you get you deal with certain basic things, like nobody wants to be physically attacked, for example, that women are a very diverse group and that therefore there is no way to actually make an interest group of women. And this is where you know I make the point that I don't actually make that often, but is very on target here, that the majority of white women did not vote for Hillary Clinton. I have never seen, seen so much vitriol towards Hillary as that which came from white women who I knew. Hated Hillary. I never understood it. I, I don't think we need to discuss it right no, no, now, right. but I think... I don't really know the answer either. I got lots of different theories. I mean, but I I think you want to talk about something else. And that is, you know, that conversation that happened. And I think everybody agrees a conversation did occur between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. So there is a fact in here that everybody agrees on. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's an important thing to emphasize. There's actually some points at which people agree. what happened in that conversation is anybody's guess at this point. Um, the Scott, you know, the, the old Scott's court system used to have a verdict called not proven when it was, you know, I think this happened, but I can't prove it. And I think for both sides, that's actually probably like the real verdict here. It's not proven. You have a conversation that two people were party to, and they both have a very different idea of what that conversation is. Mm-hmm. As a journalist, by the way, this happens all the time. This is not an unusual occurrence. I I want people to be very clear about that. There's a constant. This is why journalists tape. This I pointed this out. This is why journalists tape tape their report, their um, interviews. I mean, it's constant. I mean, people think they didn't say something, or conversely, you think they said something that they didn't. This is what a recorder does. in the movies, there's Rashomon, which is mm-hmm. a classic now for longer than you and I have been on the planet for a reason. Right, right. Um, this is We view things very differently. So I think, first of all, that this has become a scandal is a no-win for every, everybody. And I think it's a no-win for a very basic reason. There's simply no truth that's ever going to be determined. So by definition, it's just out there and awful. Um, and that's where, as I put it, you know, both... Ha- Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders lose from this battle, and they both share some blame for it. Um, They both at various times had an opportunity to scale back on it and didn't. And the reason I feel that that's a major problem is because for either of them to ultimately prevail in the primary, they really need each other's support. 
And as I think you know, I've been very firm about you know, being very positive about both candidacies. And there's a reason for that, besides the fact that I happen to like both of them, is that I feel very strongly about that. I feel that there is there is a lot more commonality than differences, and it's not like they're grabbing tons of support from somebody else necessarily. So by definition, this needed to be put out the second it started, and that did not happen, and we don't really know why that didn't happen. But mistakes were made, as the um, the saying goes. Well, her camp was upset about the canvassing that was going on in the Bernie camp where they were saying that they were being instructed to say Elizabeth Warren is going to attract the same old, same old, while Bernie is going to bring new Democrats into the fold and that she primarily attracts affluent, hyper-educated white people. Is that really trashing? I mean, look, I'm a Bernie supporter. I would say by the standards of what what goes on in canvassing, uh, not particularly. Right. Um, and I do think a little bit much was made of it. I get why somebody could be upset, but at the same time, I did think a little bit much was being made of it. I mean, you know, stuff goes on in primaries that's unreal, as you and I know. And, you know, as I put it, politics can be a really nasty business. Right. You know, I lived in a small town for a while, and I think my brief foray into local politics began and ended within three weeks. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was horrible. I right. mean, people were terrible. I mean, people would lie to you about when meetings were occurring so that you wouldn't show up. I'm not making that example up. Right. Um, you know, people would spread rumors. I mean, this was in a tiny little town. Right. Like, the stakes were about the size of my thumb, ultimately, and I'm 4'11". Right. I, I mean, <laughs> the... Well, there's an old expression, the shallower the pond, the meaner the fish. When there's less to eat, you're more vicious. But go ahead. But, well, I think politics can, but I think the the issue is that politics can be nasty. And I think one thing we see in politics, and I've been kind of playing this theme out for a few weeks in my writing on a sort of on-again, off-again basis, is that this is really built around a male model. That, you know, you compete and then it's over and you shake hands. Mm -hmm. This is something men are very much brought up to do. And I don't mean to step on anybody by saying, for the most part, until fairly recently, women not so much. Mm -hmm. And I I think it's very hard for women to fit into sometimes this model of this almost crazed nastiness followed by, oh, okay, never mind. Right. They have a shared, um, yeah. I mean, like when my kids were little and they were playing sports, if some kid didn't want to shake some other kid's hand, um, you, you, I'm sure you have kids, so you know the parents go racing out there, and they're like, you have to shake little Bobby or Joni's hand, right? Like, mm-hmm. you can't not do this. And, and you know, politics kind of works under the same dynamic a little bit. Yeah. But, again, this is a model of it that is, you know, it's women are the interlopers to an extent. They're not used to seeing them there still. It's a bit of an awkward fit. Um, They're always being judged. Um, That whole insane thing where Elizabeth Warren got made fun of for dancing at that rally last week was absolutely batshit. Am I allowed to say that on the air? I mean, that was insane. I I mean, that was just ridiculous. And you could go online and you could find pretty much every other candidate, including Bernie Sanders, bumping to the beat at various points. Um, You know, she was inauthentic. What? 
Bernie Sanders hanging out with Cardi B at a nail salon is not inauthentic? Are you kidding me? Um, so that's politics, but women are judged more because I think in the back of people's heads, we still don't expect them to be there on some level. I mean, I really think that. And I think that's a very hard line for women to toe as a result. Yeah, I, I promise to keep this short. There's a great PBS documentary about Joe McCarthy, and one of the interviews they gave with a guy who was blacklisted by McCarthy was he would be waiting in the halls to testify and have his career ruined, and Joe McCarthy would see him, hey, how you doing, and put his arm around him, see you, I'll see you during the hearings. It was just a game. And afterwards, he expected it's it's exactly what you're talking about. Uh, it's but it's not. Right. A- and to be fair, it's also you, the McCarthy example is a very good one, actually, because that's all well and good. But we live in a world we live in now. And in the same way McCarthy was ruining lives, we have somebody in Washington ruining lives right now. And so in one sense, you get it, right? This mm-hmm. isn't fun and games. This isn't funny. This no. is life and death. Right. Why are we shaking hands and pretending to be friends? Right. But right. so, I, I, you know, so that's the competing theory. But anyway, my bigger point is that I think both Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders should have made major steps to put this out. And I think they should have made major steps to put this out because it's just going to hurt both of them. On one level, you could say you could believe who you want to believe and you could say my team right, your team wrong, all you want. The fact of the matter is it's going to hurt both teams. And there's no way around that. And whoever is right, it, it kind of doesn't matter. Does that make sense to you? Yes, it does. And we're short on time. I only have like five more minutes with you. So do you think it's possible that it was calculated that Elizabeth Warren and Bernie wanted to energize their respective bases, that they're reading the polls in New Hampshire and Iowa and they need people to come out and they wanted to delineate between the two, you know, identity versus policy i mean she's got a plan for everything but you know she is running more of uh, an identity campaign than bernie certainly is do you think this was calculated certainly hope not i I mean again there's no way to know and you talk to different people in washington and on the campaigns and some say they think it was and some say they they don't i tend to think it wasn't calculated because the way it came out was so her campaign was silent for hours nobody really seemed to know what was going on they didn't seem to have a response that leads you to think that it wasn't calculated it also i have to say if it was calculated was monumentally a bad idea and i like to think people are just smart than that in the end. Yeah, we'll move on. Uh, you know, anybody who's ever had to hire a lawyer, the lawyer will show off his pugnacity to earn mm-hmm. his pay. And Elizabeth Warren has surrounded herself, we're learning, with a lot of the professional class, the you know, the, the consultants. Yeah, but Bernie's surrounded by a lot of fighters, too. Don't kid yourself. I mean, yeah. you know, it's which is fine. Again, it's politics. I mean, to expect it to not be politics is to expect human nature to not be human nature. People who always expect people to somehow be better than something always frustrate the living daylights out of me. Right. Um, as I joke, I spend my days tilting at policy windmills, not at human nature windmills. Right. But, you know, the, you know, but 
So I, I, I don't think anybody really knows what happened here. What I will say is that CNN most certainly stirred up the pot, but again, that's what, that's what a TV network does. You can't expect media to not be media. Okay. Did they do themselves a service by starting this fight? Did they lance a boil that has been festering since Hillary lost? There are a lot of people who think Bernie ruined Hillary Clinton. It's this boil that's been waiting to be lanced. Was it finally lanced? And it's out in the open now. I think it was more than out in the open before this moment. I don't think it was exactly hidden. So I I can't imagine that this accomplished anything more except a lot of nastiness. Um, and, And I would say one other thing, which is that Twitter is not the campaign. I, I think there's a lot of nastiness on Twitter. And God knows, you know, everybody wants to avoid it because nobody needs any campaign on top of them, right? Mm-hmm. Or a group of people supporting a campaign, I should say. And it, it was it was eye-opening to me, of course, because I wrote this piece yesterday. And I assure you, partisans for both Hillary Clinton, I mean, blah. I assure you that both partisans for Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders hated it. Okay. Yeah. And I heard from both sides in some detail. Uh, there's a lot of angry people out there. Yeah, it was indelicate. Um, he, that it, being it, said, when you know, I do think there's been. I think we could both all agree there's been over time, you know, a certain group around of Bernie Sanders followers who could be particularly difficult, shall we say? How significant they are, I wonder. It can be very nasty, but first. It's not like there weren't nasty people from other campaigns out there. And second, it's Twitter. And, well, if you spend your day on Twitter, which admittedly a lot of journalists do, it can seem like the world. One of my exercises for when somebody starts giving me a, a, um, a whole Twitter story is to tell them to go to go out and, like, tell your friends who aren't in journalism or media or politics, you know, some Twitter stuff and see what their reaction is. And I can tell you what the reaction is. 95% of the time, the reaction is, what are you talking about? Exactly, exactly. I mean, they have no, no idea. The, all, the online world can feel so encompassing to people in it, but it's actually, like, if I called up my mom and dad right now and told them a Twitter story, they'd be like, what on earth? What are you talking about? I mean, right. it's not something that translates in any real way into the rest of the world. Very quickly, we only have 90 seconds, right after the first hour, it was a two-hour debate, within one hour, Bernie set the record for Act Blue in donations. So who do you think, I hate to horse race this, but who do you think is going to come out on top over this? I, 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 Joe Biden. <laughs> right, um... yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I, 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 that, that's what I think. I mean, I, I, I don't think fights like this make anybody look good. The, the, the prototypical example is always the 1987 Republican primary, where the first George Bush and Bob Dole got into a very bitter um, dispute on, on the debate stage. I don't know if you remember this. And no. I don't remember what it was over, so don't ask me what it was over. And Bob Dole looks at George Bush, George H.W. Bush, and says, stop lying about my record. Oh, right. He was absolutely right, okay? 
George Bush was completely misrepresenting his record on whatever the heck it was. And, you know, part, and I remember this because I was like, I was like 20 or something. And I was like, yeah, you go, right? Mm-hmm. Well, it totally rebounded on him, and everybody was sympathetic to George H.W. Bush. I mean, of the people who were voting, I wasn't voting in the Republican primary, so I was irrelevant anyway. But the, the point is, is that people just saw it as a nasty attack, which wasn't fair. Right. But that's what it was. It's like that's during, it came across. during the 2000 debate in South Carolina between John McCain and George W. Bush, the George W. Bush campaign was spreading rumors that John McCain had fathered an illegitimate African-American child because Cindy had adopted, I think, a girl from India. And that blew up right. during the debate. But right. And it does. Yeah, exactly. It didn't it matter. Help ultimately. It doesn't matter. And I mean, and I compared it in my piece to mom and dad are fighting. And we all know what happens when mom and dad are fighting right. is the children like go right. You know, go off into their room and slam the door and basically don't want to hear it. Right. It's terrible. You don't want to hear your mom and dad fight. It was no. exactly mom and dad. And Bernie literally said to her, this is not the time. We'll talk about this later. Helene Olin is the author of Pound Foolish and the Index Card. Reader over at the Washington Post. Follow her on Twitter at Helene Olin. Thank you so much. I know how busy you are. Stand line for one quick. Oh, you're welcome. I will. I will. Thank you. Before Lev Parnas and Rachel Maddow, before Bernie and Elizabeth Warren fighting after the debate, before Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell impeaching Donald Trump, there was something called Iran and World War III. It's hard to remember because it was as far back as a week ago, but we were about to go fight World War III. Millions of young adults were convinced that Donald Trump was getting us into a war in Iran. Many young millennials were convinced that they're going to be sent overseas. I spoke to my kids and their friends, and they were convinced. This is it. Ask your millennial, your Generation Z, your kids. They thought this was it, and it's not. We're not going to war. But many young adults receive fake texts from the Army telling them to report for service. Believe it or not... Most young people don't feel as though they can trust Donald Trump as their commander-in-chief. Some kids are even thinking of dodging the draft if he leads us into war. For more on this, we are joined by Professor Amy Rutenberg. She's an assistant professor of history at Iowa State University. Her latest book is Rough Draft, Cold War Military Manpower Policy and the Origins of Vietnam-Era Draft Resistance. And her piece in the conversation, I'll link to this over at my website. You have to read this. This is why I reached out. This is her piece in the conversation. It's called, Worrying About Being Drafted Doesn't Mean You're Disloyal. It's an Old American Tradition. Welcome, Professor Amy Rutenberg. Thanks so much for having me. 
So I want to ask you about my father's generation. My father enlisted to go fight the Japanese. And I always assumed that everybody from his generation couldn't wait to sign up. Is that true? That's what we're led to believe, that the greatest generation heard the call of patriotism. Yeah, it was uh, not true. And before I elaborate on that, which I will, I should probably say that I look at trends and behaviors in the aggregate, and I use examples to back up those trends. But that doesn't mean that every individual did or tried to avoid the draft or any of the patterns that I want to talk about. So I can't speak to your dad specifically or to anybody else's father or grandfather specifically with regard to their actions. Well, just, I want just, to be clear about yeah, that. I mean, my father <laughs> was 17 and, you know, he was, and he wanted to serve and he went off and fought and all his friends claimed they did the same thing. And they might have. But what I can say is that anyone who tells you that they enlisted after 1942 did not, in fact, enlist. They volunteered to go first in the draft because uh, the War Department actually ended voluntary enlistment at that point in order to control the manpower flow. So that's point one. I don't understand. Hang on for one second. What does that mean? (laughs) That means that, you know, we talk about enlisting as as going down to the recruitment station and saying, I want to be in the military and signing the papers and stepping forward and raising your right hand. And that did happen Uh, in the wake of Pearl Harbor, for example, recruitment stations in New York and elsewhere around the country had to stay open 24 hours a day. There was a surge of enlistment immediately in the wake of Pearl Harbor. Um, But that surge, it leveled off pretty quick. Um, And then as the war effort ramped up in the U.S. um, through 41 and 42, it became much harder to actually control the flow of manpower, to control who entered the military, where do we need them, who's Army, who's Navy. We don't want everybody enlisting in the Marines when really we need them in the Army or, you know, something like that. And so in 1942, uh, the Congress changed the law. The War Department went over to um, only a draft at that point, only conscription. And people could volunteer themselves to move to the top of the list. So if you wanted to join the military, you could go and say, I want in. But technically, you went through (laughs) through the draft system, through conscription. And conscription is the draft. Conscription is the draft, which should not be confused with selective service, uh, which is an agency and also uh, it's an agency and people in the current era, boys, men, when they turn 18, register with the selective service, but registering for the selective service is not the same as being drafted or conscripted. Okay, I guess I need to ask you this before we move on. So the Selective (laughs) Service is an agency. Did it exist when Roosevelt was leading us into war? Yes. The Selective Service as an agency was actually created during World War I. It went into dormancy between the two world wars, and it was uh, reactivated. There was a very small skeleton group who were around in the 30s, but it was... uh, revived. Do they administer the draft? Well, I can explain that in a sec. I'll just finish. Okay. So it, it was actually re, um, 
revived in 1940, the draft, the active draft, conscription as a law was passed in 1940 prior to Pearl Harbor. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's technically the first peacetime draft in the United States history was in 1940. Um, But in terms of administration, the Selective Service has always had a small agency when it's been around in Washington, D.C. as headquarters. And then there are state Uh, headquarters in each state and in each territory of the U.S. And then the draft itself, when there is one, is administered on the local level through local boards in each town or county or city. But they still answer to the Selective Service. They're not answering to state or local governments. Correct. They are, yes, it is a federal agency. The Japanese attacked us on December 7th, 1941, You say that they passed a draft, a peacetime draft in 1940. Was that kind of like the war authorization that we gave Bush in 2002? In other words, they didn't start the draft in 1940. I'm assuming they just gave the commander-in-chief authority to start drafting should we go to war. Well, not exactly. I'm a little uncomfortable with the comparison. There are certain things that are similar. Um, the AUMF in, and war in Iraq and all of that were controversial. And restarting the draft in 1940 was very controversial. So th- there are some similarities. Um, and the U.S. was not technically at war at, at either time. But I would say that in 1940 the writing was very much on the wall for the United States. Um, And people who were watching events in both Asia and Europe knew that. Um, And so the draft law as passed in 1940 was one step to mobilization because the military in the U.S. was incredibly small in the 1930s. There had been a strong period of anti-militarization in the 30s. It had always been America's pattern to demobilize after a war. So you put those two things together, and the United States was was barely capable of defending itself through the 30s. It it seems to me uh, 1941, December 8th, 1941, was the last time America officially declared war. I would assume that the president in 1940, when he was given the authority to bring back the draft, was not allowed to start drafting kids until there was an official declaration of war? No, that's not true. Okay. Um, The law authorized the the drafting, the actual drafting of up to 900,000 men in 1940. Uh, It did put limits on who could be drafted. The draft did not always go for 18-year-olds, so the men were slightly older, um, and they were not authorized to serve outside of the United States or its territories unless the United States declared war. So they could be trained. But they did start the process of training, exactly. So if you were to look at, say, our military in January of 1940, vis-a-vis our military in... January of 1942, did we see an increase of close to a million 
people serving? Did they did they ramp up that quickly? I think so, although I truthfully do not have right, the numbers right, at the tips right. of my fingers. Oh, of course. I know. I'm just saying, but, but they did start <laughs> mobilizing the kids to fight. Yeah. What I can say is that in 1938, the United States military was very small. And by 1945, there were 10 million people in uniform. 10 million? Yeah. Over the course of World War II, 16 million men and women served in uniform. Uh, the vast, vast majority of the men uh, and the military topped out around 10 million at any given time. You write, it is true that almost 80% of American born in the 1920s eventually served in the military during World War II, and relatively few declared themselves as conscientious objectors or actively resisted the draft. But they did, you say, look for legal ways to avoid serving. So 80% of American men born in the 20s. So there were men born in the teens who could have served. They probably were married. They probably had kids. They probably remembered the futility of World War I. So I would assume they were more likely to figure out how to avoid the draft. I'm not sure if that's true. What I can say is that Whenever there's a draft or compulsion or conscription, the majority of people are not really going to be super excited about it. During World War II, there were absolutely men who enlisted right away, who joined up right away to beat the Nazis, to fight the Japanese, revenge for Pearl Harbor, and all of that. Over time, by the end of the war, the vast majority of men who were of the right age to serve in the military did serve in the military. Mm -hmm. Because one of the other historical patterns that's true is that most men who are drafted acquiesce to the draft. Whether they want to be there or not, they know their legal ramifications for not joining once they're drafted. They know there are benefits if they survive the war. Um, and so, and there's family pressure and community pressure and social pressure, particularly during World War II, that if you're called, you're supposed to go. Mm -hmm. But what I talk about in the article is not so much draft resistance, those people who actively refuse to raise their right hand and take the step forward and swear themselves into the military. The issue is more, okay, if I'm classified as available by the Selective Service, I'm probably going to get drafted. But what can I do to get a different classification? Ah. How can I get a deferment? How can I figure out not how to dodge the draft necessarily, but how to avoid it? I see. Because for most men, if you don't get the, the notice saying you have to join, then you're not gonna, and then you're, you're good, you're home, you're safe. So, so you say there was a rush to the altar Yes. Declaration of war was good for good for marriage. <laughs> yes, probably for a bunch of reasons. Good right? for the it's institution of marriage. Out. Yeah. So why they want to they want to get married? But so why did so many people fall in love on December eighth, nineteen forty one? Which I would because assume is a day of infamy. December seventh was the day of infamy <laughs> for some of us, and then December eighth was a day of infamy for some other people who had to get married to people they really didn't love. 
So between the beginning of the draft in 1940 and that day after Pearl Harbor, marriage rates for prime-age draftable men jumped really precipitously, really <laughs> high. Uh, Why? 25%. Does war because make you fall in love? Because at that point in time, when the military was calling way fewer men, but there was a draft, you could get a deferment for having a wife or for having kids because those were considered dependents. It was a system that was based on the expectation that men earned the money, married wives were home, and eventually raising kids. So the thought was that until the military needed more men, that this institution of husbandhood and fatherhood should be protected. So those men got deferments for dependency. That, that presupposes that Guadalcanal is worse than being married with kids. But go ahead. <laughs> yes, but uh, you had all sorts of people from Eleanor Roosevelt on down talking about the sanctity of fatherhood and, and husbandhood and how that, that family structure needed to be protected. And you write that a lot of women worked the system. A lot of women were working. Right. Yes. So what they do? <laughs> they quit their jobs. <laughs> um, in the wake of the Selective Service becoming tightening up that dependency deferment, particularly after Pearl Harbor, uh, at least five hundred thousand women quit their jobs to strengthen their husband's claim to <laughs> supporting a dependent. The women went back, and they became barefoot and pregnant, the way God wants them to be. That's good. This is good. This, I'm, I'm beginning to understand. You know, I have to tell my students all the time that when women choose to stay home, it's not that they were being locked up in the basement. Right? <laughs> People always talk about women being stuck at home, right. uh, which is not quite accurate. They made choices. Did married men with kids go off and serve? Eventually, yes. Why? Um, because of because social pressure or because they needed more cannon fodder? They needed more men in, in, in uniform to fight. Yeah, As yeah. the manpower requirements grew across the course of the war, the ability to get deferments for dependency shrank and shrank and shrank. Okay. Let us now go to Vietnam. Now, I am, believe it or not, too young to have been available for the draft in, in Vietnam. I remember asking my father, you know, what happens if this war continues and they end up drafting me? And he said, you're going to Canada. And I said, what would happen if this were 1941? And he said, you're going to Germany or Japan. I would not, you would go fight in World War II, but you're not going to go fight in Vietnam. But this is like the early 70s. And I have <laughs> friends who are like 10 years older than I am who I want to know because I wonder if this is apocryphal from your end, but I do know that nobody ever got spat upon and called a baby killer when they returned from Vietnam. Uh, you mean World War II? No, Vietnam. I'm talking about no, Vietnam. No, no one got spat on. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. There's this myth that the Vietnam yeah. vets got spat on and called baby killers when they came home, and there's not one recorded incident of that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's just a lie. But in terms of smearing feces, I have a friend who's ten years older, and he went in to responded to his draft notice by smearing feces on his body and knocking out some teeth. 
Now, you know, in your piece and your your book, is that true? Did people really go to those lengths to get out of Vietnam? Yes. There are stories that just become apocryphal stories, but people absolutely did look for ways to fail their physical exams, fail their mental exams. To, to make to disqualify themselves in one way, shape, or form, like bone spurs. Yes, but what I argue is that that's not new. That mm-hmm. is something that has happened at every American draft. The difference with Vietnam is that one, it was a much less understood, explained war. And it was considered immoral by a whole lot of people. Yes. So they were more likely to be looking for ways out than, say, World War II, where there was a very clear enemy. But the other thing is that the selective service itself, between the end of World War II, when these deferments had been tightened almost to be impossible to get, and the Vietnam War, those deferments opened up again. And they particularly opened up for middle-class men who were given all sorts of ways and means of being able to get those deferments. Those deferments were a lot harder for working class white men and all men of color in the United States. Right. And so what happens is that because the Selective Service had opened up all these channels and avenues, it was easier to get a deferment for, for white men, for middle class men by Vietnam. And then there's a whole snowball effect. It's easier to get the deferments. People don't want to fight the war, even more so than previous wars. They know there are ways out. They begin talking by word of mouth, um, which is something that had always happened. And then you have the phenomenon of draft counselors during the Vietnam War, which I think is a phenomenon that, that people my age, I was born in 77 and younger, don't know anything about. Mm-hmm. But there were folks all across the country, some of them affiliated with organizations, some not, uh, some trained, some not, who shared information about how to avoid the draft, uh, both illegally by, say, running to Canada, or legally by figuring out what kind of doctor's note would be helpful, or how can we write a really strong conscientious objector application, uh, all sorts of different ways to to help to get right. out of the draft. Right, right. Talk to me about the draft riots in New York City during the the Civil War. Why? Sure. Why, why did they riot in New York City? Which, by the way, almost um, joined the Confederacy. Didn't New York City almost secede with the Confederacy? That's another show. Go ahead. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> um, I, but New York had, had issues at other times. I don't think it was specific to the Civil War. But So the rioters in New York City in July of 1863 were primarily white, working-class folk, and mm-hmm. have, they were heavily immigrant. And they very much resented the reach of the federal government in instituting a draft. And the riots began, I think, two days after the first draft lottery in the Union. Um, and six months after the after Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. So they began their riots by turning on government buildings, which represented the draft and conscription. And they ended the riot by turning on any African-American person business that they could find right 
And it was pretty violent, right? I mean, it was very not... violent. Hundreds of people died. Uh, lots and lots and lots of property damage in terms of cost. It was, it, and the black population of Lower Manhattan essentially left. Okay. So it decimated the black population there. There was no draft, obviously. I don't think there was a draft during the Revolutionary War. Or was there? There was. There was conscription during the Revolution. Um, the United States as such didn't exist yet, so people hedge a little when they say that the draft that every war the United States has fought has had a draft <laughs> mm -hmm. because the U.S. wasn't quite the U.S. yet, but there was a draft. And did we see draft dodgers? Oh, yeah. And how did, <laughs> yeah. How did, we, how did we enforce it? Threaten to send them to jail? You know, yes, they could be sent to jail, um, but in the Revolutionary Era, it was an awfully – it was much easier to just disappear, to vanish – between right. the cracks. We've been talking with Professor Amy Rutenberg. She is a history professor at Iowa State University, and she is author of the book Rough Draft, Cold War Military Manpower Policy and the Origins of Vietnam-Era Draft Resistance. Last question. Mm -hmm. Two of my greatest heroes, George McGovern and Ralph Nader, both said that they were for getting rid of the draft in the early 70s, which they did, but now have second thoughts about that. I, yep. I, when I wrote you an email inviting you to do this show, I said, I believe in bringing back the draft, and not just because I hate my kids. I believe that everybody should serve in the military for two years because it teaches you the proper patriotism, which is to love the country, love the flag, love your fellow soldier, and always be suspicious of the generals, the military industrial complex, and the pudgy white men in Washington who send you off to fight. That's how you create a healthy democracy. Everybody has to serve everybody's in it makes you a better citizen now if for some reason you're a conscientious objector then you have to do two years in the peace corps or americorps but everybody serves you're going to live to 150 the generation zers or the z's or the millennials they're going to be a, they're going to live to be 150 what is two years of public service going to cost you and I think our democracy has suffered considerably because we don't have a draft. Wars are now an abstraction. Only 1% of the American people have any connection to these wars, these endless wars. And, we, that, have, I think. and we have, like, kids, adults doing six, seven 12 tours, of, 12 tours of duty. Multiple, multiple deployments. Where, the, where that's all they know. Where all they know is being deployed. They're more comfortable fighting in Afghanistan than they are coming back to the United States. How, how can anybody disagree with me on this? Well, I think the idealistic part of me thinks that some kind of universal service would be lovely, 
but the realistic part of me says that it's one problematic uh, and two logistically impossible. <laughs> so the reason that I answer that it's problematic is because the United States has tried this before. In 19, post World War II, the movement for universal military training actually came very close to passing just such a plan as what you're talking about with a few differences. Uh, Truman was in favor. Eisenhower was in favor. Congress was almost in favor. The American public sometimes pulled as high as 80% in favor. Um, but the question always was, whose version of citizenship? Why is the military the right place to do this? What does that do to our society as a whole if you are training for patriotism in this militaristic environment? And how do we honor folks' individualism with regard to that? Um, and it failed. As a plan, it failed. It, it, it got caught on the shoals of, of segregation and civil rights. But it also became militarily unnecessary, even in the Cold War era. Because the other question is, what is the purpose of a military? Is the purpose of a military to socialize folks, or is it to defend the nation? Or is it both? But if it's to defend the nation, then isn't a plan for what defense means more important? Isn't it, isn't it supposedly the purpose of our defense forces to be used and needed in such a way that it actually defends the interests of the country? If so, why do we need millions and millions and millions of men and women in the military? And then even if you use the civilian piece, say, okay, well, not universal military service, but universal national service, how expensive would that be? How difficult would it be to actually make that a meaningful experience as opposed to just putting our young people to work doing the equivalent of breaking rocks? Right. It would be incredibly expensive. Couldn't we use that money to, I don't know, provide health care to the entire populace. Right. Um, I, I think what you say on an idealistic level is lovely. It, it would be great if we could do it, but I, I just don't see that as the best way to create that sense of unity that, that you hope for. Okay. I'll give you the last word. Can I just respond to that? I, and I, and we're, at, yeah, we're all sure. out of time and I'm going to give you the last word and <laughs> we should continue this uh, if you'll come back for another conversation on this. My feeling is, like Medicare for All, uh, universal draft would be less expensive than the status quo in that we're spending, we think, a trillion dollars a year on our military budget. Can't be audited. And one of the reasons it can't be audited, and the reason we spend a trillion dollars a year on the Pentagon, is because it's become a culture of specialists because nobody serves in the military. So they become heroes, they become mythical, and that's ripe for abuse. When it's the high priests and the heroes defending us, they can exploit us. They exploit our stupidity. We're relying on heroes to tell us what we need to feel safe. 
So that gets expensive. So we start buying hardware that we don't need. And it's cheaper, I think, to have a draft, a smarter electorate. It makes you smarter. You get, you get the last word. I'm sorry. <laughs> no worries. What I will say is that there is actually a congressional commission, an independently uh, appointed commission, looking at all of these questions right now, the National Commission on Military, National, and Public Service. Um, it's due to uh, submit its report to Congress in March. Um, it's looking at all of the questions. Should we have selective service? If we do have selective service, should women register? Do we need selective service? Should there be national service of the kind that you're talking about? The sacrifice of shopping during a war is offensive. And I, I was, on the night we did Shock and Awe in Baghdad, I was uh, working. I was, I'm a comedian. I was in Fort Lauderdale. After my show, I went to a bar to watch Shock and Awe. It was the night we started the invasion of Iraq. I believe it was March of 2003. And I'm in this bar, and I walked into the wrong bar because there were a lot of young men. And mm -hmm. so the TVs were on, but the sound was turned down, and music was playing, and there were young boys picking up women. And it was one of them. I'll never forget this as long as I live. Just I know this sounds sexist, but I remember thinking... What kind of man, you know, I'm from a different generation and I'm looking at young boys on the TV screen is shock and awe. We're going to war 2003 sound is turned down. Music is blasting and young men are hitting on women and asking them to dance. And I thought, no, that's disgusting. What kind of man would do that? when the nation's about to go to war. It makes no. for a bad generation, makes for a really disgusting, out-of-touch generation of Americans, in my opinion. I came to the topic of what I study because I was a teacher just north of New York City on 9-11. My community lost members in the Twin Towers. I had students who went down as EMTs to work on the pile. It was a personal attack. And to my knowledge, only one of those students ever joined the military after mm -hmm. they graduated, and he had always wanted to. He had just wanted to fly aircraft. It, has, it was what he wanted to do before 9-11 and after. And that's what led me to my topic, because that stands in stark contrast to the earlier attack at Pearl Harbor when those recruitment stations had to stay open for 24 hours a day. And I was curious about what changed. And I argue, ultimately, that what changed between World War II and Vietnam, and perhaps even today, it's different because we don't have a draft, we have an all-volunteer force, but what changed was the context, not men's actions so much. There, there was this moment of patriotism and, and, and flooding out to join the military and fight back after Pearl Harbor. But that's not reality when it comes down to folks' everyday lives and what they want to do and how they want to be. And I agree that that problem has become exacerbated in, in our modern world and current culture. 
But I will disagree, I think, that I'm not sure that a universal draft would solve the problem. If it did, we would not have been in Vietnam. Right. There was a draft during the Vietnam War, and there is not a draft now. And we're still seeing some of the same problems. Okay. I would never invite you on this show to to argue. This is just a discussion and you're a PhD and I don't know what the hell I'm talking about, but the young kids who rushed down to ground zero after 9-11 and they obviously they want to serve. Had there been a universal draft at that time, do you think George W. Bush could have lied his way into Iraq so easily when so many Americans across all layers of our socioeconomic class, do you, do you think, don't you think we would have vetted more carefully his reasons for going to war? Yeah. What I tell my students is that as a historian, I deal very concretely in the past and playing alternate history games I can never answer with any kind of certainty but the United States got itself deeper and deeper and deeper into the Vietnam War on a similar set of assumptions and a similar set of information about Vietnam as it got into its war in 2003 there was a draft in place in 1965. It had been there since 1940. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I do think that with the information that was provided to the American people, it would have been possible to start that war at the time. Whether it would still be going on is a different question. Right, right. To be continued. Fascinating. Thank you so <laughs> much. We've been talking with Professor Amy Rutenberg, she's assistant professor of history, Iowa State University. Her latest book is Rough Draft, Cold War Military Manpower Policy and the Origins of Vietnam-Era Draft Resistance. She has a piece over at the conversation. I will link to it over at our website. It's entitled, Worrying About Being Drafted Doesn't Mean You're Disloyal. It's an Old American Tradition. Do you have a uh, Twitter handle? I do. It's uh, at Amy, A-M-Y, J-A-Y, 401. Okay. Well, I hope when you caucus in Iowa, you, (laughs) well, it's none of my business, but I hope you choose Bernie. Can you stay on the line for one second, Professor? Sure. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. The Senate impeachment trial has officially started. Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, John Roberts, was sworn in. It's on. Here to talk about it is a member of the bar of the Supreme Court, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. It's nice to be here. 
and to be introduced in a slightly different way. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn was the executive director of Americans United for Separation of Church and State from 1992 to November of 2017. He is a lawyer as well as an ordained minister in the United Church of, I hope I'm pronouncing this properly, Christ? Absolutely. Okay, so we're going to do something a little different this week. We're going to do this in two parts. We're going to talk about impeachment, the Rachel Maddow interview with Lev Parnas. We're going to go over the, the headlines, and then you're going to come back later in the show to talk about the Oscars and some some lighter stuff that's not as pressing. But I figured we would talk about the impeachment. It is something to see, watching the clerk and the House walk to the other side of the Capitol and deliver the articles of impeachment. Were you moved by that? Did you have some um, faith in Mitch McConnell when you saw him speak? Did you think? Yeah, no, I, I had zero uh, faith in Mitch McConnell. I mean, yes, this is a very weighty thing, and it's an important thing, rarely done. This is only the third time, of course, that there has been this kind of activity that's even potentially happening. And since Richard Nixon, of course, uh, never uh, was impeached, he resigned before he got to that point, uh, this is a pretty big deal. I would just like to think that there was, um, on the part of Mitch McConnell and most of the Republicans, a faithfulness to the idea that this was something so weighty that they ought to listen to evidence, that they ought to listen to witnesses, and they ought to honestly decide where the chips will fall. And I don't believe that that's the case. But we may see an interesting trial, or at least a more interesting trial than Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell have been planning for. I believe you need two-thirds of the Senate to, to convict. To convict, But in order to change the rules of the trial, you, you just need a majority. So you, you would need four Republicans to switch sides on a vote, on a procedural vote, assuming that the Democrats right. assuming that the Democrats all stay in line. You can get four Republicans to vote in favor of Bolton testifying, Lev Parnas testifying, Giuliani testifying. That becomes a, a different trial, right? It certainly does, and uh, but part of the problem is that Nancy Pelosi, as I, I believe I've alluded to in, in the past, sent these articles over prematurely. If she had just waited and not felt compelled to do this a day ago, Mm-hmm. She'd been in a position to have seen the Les Parnas uh, materials, to thoroughly understand it, and then to be in a stronger position to say, this is so important, we want it to be a part of the record. As I understand what Mitch McConnell would like to do, he would like to say, first of all, the Parnas interview with Rachel Maddow is, it was not done under under oath, therefore it is not relevant, and that the supplemental materials, you know, what did Parnas write on napkins and what, that that this is simply not appropriate and neither is it necessary 
for consideration of the trial itself, which could go on for two to three weeks. I mean, what the Democrats want, of course, is that there will be a vote taken about these specific witnesses. And that's where the four people that uh, come to mind, um, for Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, Mitt Romney, uh, maybe one or two others, uh, that they'll actually say, we should hear these witnesses live, maybe through a deposition. Monica Lewinsky, of course, was deposed. They aired that during the Clinton impeachment, uh, the, the Clinton trial. Uh, but, uh, you know, they, and ironically, it's people like Lindsey Graham who wanted her there live and now says it's absolutely unnecessary to have any witnesses at all. Mm-hmm. The, the person that bothers me the most in all of this is Susan Collins of Maine. Susan Collins was asked a day or so ago, uh, do you need any supplemental witnesses? And if her, you know, she's kind of flirted with the idea that this might be a good idea a few days before, but now she says, no, really, it's not necessary. And by the way, she says, if Les Parnas, if it was so important to hear from him, why didn't he appear before the House? As if she doesn't even understand that he was not able to do that until a court permitted him to give the information that is now in the hands of the Senate and most importantly to appear uh, not only on Rachel Maddow's show but on uh, CNN as well. See, she doesn't... I think people are so frustrated with her because she talks a good line temporarily and now apparently is doing the same thing she did with the Brett Kavanaugh nomination. Say, well, uh, we, I'm thinking about it. And then, of course, she thinks about it and then does exactly what Donald Trump wants. And when you think about it, and I, I know, you know, because I, I do listen uh, to this show, uh, that Susan Collins does come on your show. Drunk. But drunk. And, uh, but if she doesn't, she can't mess around with Trump. She's so, there's so many, uh, people in Maine who are hostile to everything that she's done that consider her a betrayal of the very idea of moderation. If she loses the support of Donald Trump, she has nobody to support her, uh, she might as well just give up on her re-election campaign. So I understand it, not that it's morally right, but yeah. I do understand the precarious position she's in as one of the most endangered Republicans come November. So on Thursday, Chief Justice John Roberts took an oath to be impartial during the impeachment trial as did the the United States senators. Donald Trump says he wants a short trial. He doesn't want anybody to testify. We have found out that there is an investigation going on in Ukraine. Finally, they're investigating the the Congress, the candidate for Congress, who uh, was supposedly spying on the ambassador to Ukraine reportedly doing it for the, uh, for Giuliani and Lev Parnas. Uh, how bad is this for, for the president in terms of 
not that conviction. We'll talk about a conviction. Sure. But in terms of the American people, because you you're criticizing Pelosi, but I think she's gone slowly. She's given the American people enough time to digest all this information. I mean, I think that's why it was a good idea to hold up the articles of impeachment for a little while. So all of us could process it during the, during the holidays. Sure. Well, I agree with that, but I think she's stopped short. She should have held it for a few more days because now it's only today that we're really able to kind of get a, a bead on what Liz Parnas says, both in the MSNBC and the CNN interviews, and to kind of digest just what is going on with this potential new witness. There's nothing magic about having these articles transmitted on Wednesday instead of waiting until Thursday or Friday. And but he was threatening McConnell. I mean, I think she gave in. Well, I think McConnell was threatening to just hold a vote to dismiss the the articles of impeachment if she didn't deliver them, and I think he scared her. But she can also hold concurrent hearings. She can yeah, they, she can subpoena Lev Parnas. The House Intelligence Committee absolutely could, could have him testify. That may not move the needle in the Senate, but it would certainly help the American people who are on the fence conclude that this is a shakedown operation. That's that's pretty bad. They were all in on it. Pompeo. This is what we're learning from the Lev Parnas interview with Rachel Maddow. Absolutely. Mike Pompeo was in on it, and Attorney General Bill Barr is in on it. And if you think that's crazy, who went to jail during Watergate? Of course, the Attorney General of the Nixon administration. Yeah, yeah but I, and I, I agree that the, all of these things, can, and in fact, that you can go one step further. Let's say that you wanted to continue this, um, the impeachment come up with more articles of impeachment based on the evidence that comes from Parnas, based on the conclusions of the General Accounting Office that earlier today uh, said that, in fact, Donald Trump committed a criminal act by not, by, by holding up already appropriated funds under something called the Impoundment Control Act. He doesn't have any right to make his own judgments to say you know policy dictates that i not send the money and if one adds that conclusion the general accounting office although the republicans have said well you know the guy that runs it was appointed by a democrat the guys you know he's appointed to a 15 year term there was no strong opposition to him at all and and it's a big deal when the general accounting office does a study comes up with a conclusion i mean this is the kind of thing when i was lobbying i mean we'd always want the general accounting office uh, to do studies because it was important what they said and then Tell there's us a kind of a the general, what is the general accounting office yeah, it's a it's a truly nonpartisan 
agency that makes assessments about anything. I mean, you can ask the General Accounting Office to do something like reflect on whether there was a criminal act involved with Trump. You can ask the General Accounting Office to study manpower needs 10 years down the road. They, they do all kinds of serious analysis. And, and they there, do are it. Two, there are two agencies, they're not federal agencies. The General Accounting Office, I believe, is an arm of Congress? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. As is the C- the CBO? The Congressional Budget Office. And I believe, yeah. I believe that it is received wisdom that the CBO is the closest we can get to God. I think both sides accept the CBO scoring on a bill as the voice of God. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, at least uh, uh, a God. Yeah. Not necessarily the God. And the 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 General Accountability Office, the GAO, is a close second. It's hard to go up against the GAO or an inspector general. It's hard to challenge them. That's correct, and there's a good reason for that. And I think the people in these positions and the people who work for these organizations take their jobs extremely seriously. And this is not people every once in a while they hear about the Congressional Research Service doing something, and and that's a a slightly less. I mean, they're very dedicated people, but it's a, it doesn't have quite the gold standard sense that the other agencies that we've just been talking about have. Right. Yet, you know, already, already, the thing has only been out a matter of a half a day, and already it's being picked apart, mainly because the fellow who runs it was appointed during the administration of a Democrat when there were Democrats in both the Senate and the House leadership, and therefore uh, uh, the scoundrels in the House and Senate uh, leadership of the Republican Party say it's it's biased. Right. It's biased. But the official report from the Government Accountability Office from Thursday, it says the White House violated the law when it try to withhold nearly $400 million from Ukraine. And even though the $400 million finally got to Ukraine, that doesn't matter. It's against the law to tell President Zelensky of Ukraine that, yes, we, we promised you $400 million, but you're not going to get it until you say you're investigating Joe Biden. You don't have to actually investigate him. You just have to say you're going to investigate him. Then when, if you look at the timeline, Politico reported this. Everybody found out that the money was being held up, so Trump released it. But it's still a crime, right? Yeah, I think it's actually, it's it's a civil, there's a civil penalty. As I understand the impoundment, Control Act. You don't go to jail if you violate it, but it is a serious offense. Explain what impoundment. Now, as I remember it, Ehrlichman, who worked for Nixon, they couldn't get a line item veto. They wanted it. So they began to impound funds. (laughs) In other words, Congress allocated money. It was passed. So Nixon was just impounding 
expenditures, not sending money where it was supposed to go. And that's called impounding? It's impoundment, and it is now illegal. They made it illegal after Watergate in 74. Yeah. Yeah. And and just uh, to complete the uh, the mentality of what was going on, um, the GAO also reported today that they've had difficulty getting information, and that they felt that there was an obstruction by the administration of the necessary information for them to proceed completely and fully. And, of course, this is, again, this is exactly what the Congress said. They won't give us the information, and that is the second article of impeachment. And here is the GAO saying, you know, we had the same thing happen. So it confirms this absolute... Obstruction of Congress. Obstruction of Congress. And uh, it's um, the irony here. This is aside from Susan Collins, drunk or not drunk. Mm -hmm. uh, The other thing that's so annoying is when people go, well, the House should have investigated. They should have gotten these documents. They asked for these documents. There was stonewalling by the administration, going to court by the administration, so they couldn't do it. So when Lindsey Graham stands up in front of the cameras in the last few days and said, well, it was up to them. They just didn't do it. I guess it wasn't that important. That's a complete lie because it was important. They sought the information. They sought the testimony of the four people they would like to hear from in the Senate, and there was complete stonewalling. And it is not even clear that if there was a vote, for example, uh, to have John Bolton testify, and there are enough Republicans to support that idea, it's not clear that the president won't sue in order to prevent John Bolton from testifying on the grounds that what he might say would be covered by executive privilege. But you have the chief justice, but you have the chief justice of the Supreme Court presiding over this trial. You're a member of the bar of the Supreme Court. Couldn't John Roberts just issue a ruling there on the spot? I don't think he can. I think you have to, if, if they want to stonewall, if they want to make this executive privilege claim about Mulvaney, about John Bolton, they would go to federal district court in the District of Columbia and sue to prevent Bolton from testifying. And that would drag things out for months and months and months. But even if the ultimate but, conclusion is he has to. But there's been the ascendancy of Article 3 of the Constitution, the Supreme Court. They have become the final arbiter in all matters in Washington, D.C. Why couldn't John Roberts say something and rule it's constitutional? I'm not aware that there's any way that the court, that a, a chief justice alone, for example, could make any such ruling, I think that that would create its own constitutional crisis. John Roberts, I'm certain, has no interest in even being in this position. He's like Rehnquist with the uh, Clinton trial. He didn't want to even be there. He He wanted to do next to nothing. And he did next to nothing because he didn't have to make a single ruling, as I recall, on any matter of evidence 
during the Clinton proceedings. So this guy doesn't want to do that. Okay. We're going to come back a little while on our show and talk about the Oscars. And I want to talk to you about the ERA, which, exactly. which passed in Virginia. You are the first person on this show. We're in our 11th year. You're the first person to talk about the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment. I always assumed it was dead in the water, and I want to find out if it's coming back. But first, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn has to come back. He will join us in three days. Oh, that's somebody else. <laughs> Have you called in your backup becomes now? See if we can get some more brain power in this We thing. got one here. Roger. Fly in, go. Go and go. Uh, he's, never mind, he's straightening up a little bit. Okay, okay, now let's everybody keep cool. We got the limb still attached, the limb spacecraft's good, so if we need uh, to get back home, we got a limb to do a good portion of it with. Okay, let's make sure that we don't do anything that's going to blow our CSM electrical power with the batteries or that will cause us to lose the main or the uh, fuel cell number two. Okay, we want to keep the O2 and that kind of stuff working. We'd like to have RCS, but we got the command module system, so we're in good shape if we need to get home. Let's solve the problem, but let's not make it any worse by guessing. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, you sad, pathetic hump. On Tuesday, six presidential candidates faced off for the last Democratic debate before the first votes are cast in the 2020 Iowa caucus. Joining us is Professor Harvey J.K. He is the author of Take Hold of Our History, Make America Radical Again, Go buy this book, 18 Essays and Manifestos, that will engage you and delight you, unlike Tuesday's debate held at Drake University in Des Moines, Iowa. We're talking right after the debate. So we're by the time you hear this, this will be three days old, which is about the emotional level of Donald Trump. He has the emotional maturity of a three-day-old. Hello, Professor Harvey J.K. Do you feel as pessimistic and disgusted and repulsed as I do? Oh, guaranteed. Absolutely. You know, I all I kept thinking to myself is that I was just so fed up with the Democrats. You know, there were there were six people on the stage, and if you went through the the, the evening as as you and I both did, there was only one person on that stage who really spoke truthfully that's the key word yes truthfully and with and with real human decency yes okay yes so you and i you and i i agree with you amy klobuchar fantastic she is (laughs) she is yes you know minnesota nice i'm in wisconsin but minnesota nice outdoes us i I am so inspired by being realistic oh yeah you know I, I, geez. Well, 
Let's let's be caught serious. me by surprise with that one. That was good. Yeah, who would that? Uh, well, it wasn't uh, Amy. Uh, it wasn't guess. Amy. It definitely was not Pete Buttigieg. Yeah. Okay. And I mean, let me put it this way: Tom Steyer, if he could have, if he would just take all of that money that he has made and put it to 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 another good project. The first project was, of course. His efforts to uh, impeach, to push the impeachment of Donald Trump. The second one was he's underwritten a national campaign called Next Generation, in which students encourage other students to register and get out to vote. The third one should be to put it behind a real progressive campaign headed by the likes of no no surprise Bernie Sanders. Okay, let me come back there. Well, I just Joe want to point Biden, out. That, I just want to point out that Tom Steyer made a giving pledge or took a giving pledge. It turns out he decides to give to his ego. Yeah, yeah gave, gave a hundred million dollars to his ego. Go ahead. So yeah, Joe Biden, right. Joe Biden, yeah, well, which, which, and consider that isn't even as great as Mike Bloomberg's giving pledge, yes. right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Man, we are we are effed. If 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 this is the future, we are effed. Seriously speaking, I'm going to come back to what we were saying, but I want to make. I'm going to say this. I'm going to repeat it a lot tonight. Good. Okay. So. I, so, so I just published that book, Take Hold of Our History, Make America Radical Again, and I published it with, believe me, a real belief that the only way that we can confront the crisis we face is truly by taking hold of our history, remembering who we are, and making America radical again, just as they did in the 1770s, the 1860s, the 1930s, and the 1940s. But let me put it this, this way, okay? The crisis is not simply made evident every day with Donald Trump in the White House and the lies and the other corruptions and perversions that emanate from that, that House right now. It was also evident tonight yes. in this debate. Yes. Okay? I mean, you know, there were questions that were never even posed to the Democrats, and you'd even wonder how the de if the Democrats would have been able to answer it, maybe other than... than than Bernie Sanders and probably Elizabeth Warren, in, at least in the case. And the one I have in mind, first and foremost, first and foremost is labor unions and inequality and the rights of working people on the job. And that just, I kept sitting there thinking, this is, this is impossible. How can they avoid that question? The second one, as a friend of mine uh, uh, sent a note, said, there isn't a single message of the rise of fascism and white supremacy in this country and how we go about addressing it okay that's critical but the thing that really got to me and I, I the thing that really got to me is that these folks up there tried to appear like decent democrats and over and over again they revealed how indecent yes they are amen okay? brother and, amen brother and and the indecency is this okay they'll vote for this they'll vote for that They'll worry about this and they'll worry about that. And many of those things that they'll worry about, we all worry about. But the fact is, how the fuck can you be a Democrat? The, the party of Franklin Roosevelt, the party that created with working class uh, support, Social Security, and not envision, and by the way, in the 60s created Medicare and Medicaid. How is it possible that Bernie Sanders alone stood on the stage ready to fight for Medicare for All from the outset. 
Elizabeth Warren is close. She believes in it, but she's basically undermined her own position by saying she'll first go for the public option and three years in she'll go for Medicare for all. We all know you go for what matters at the outset. Right. Okay. And the public option is basically throwing us back to the pre-Obamacare argument. What we need is universal health care. And they have the audacity, these folks, to stand there. I mean, Joe Biden just blew me away at the end when he talked about decency, pointing a finger at the White House. And he, and he, he can only envision improving Obamacare. Give me a break, okay? This is 2020. And this is, God, it was 90, this is 50 years after 1970 when I had little doubt that perhaps by 1980 we would have had universal health care in this country, as they have in almost all of the Western democratic nations. It is unbelievable to me that they could stand on the stage and talk about the whole question of, of Medicare for all in terms of money, mm-hmm. and, yet, and yet we can pour trillions of dollars into the pockets of the wealthy. We can pour trillions of dollars into a, into a military machine that's being managed by, by fucking idiots right now, okay? And they can't imagine how we would actually save money and improve the national you know, state of being through Medicare for All. I, I think it, is, it, was utter, it was indecent. I don't know what else to say. It was indecent that. because they were saying things like, you got to be pragmatic. Democratic governors don't want Medicare for All. You have... People in the Democratic Congress and the Democratic Senate who don't want Medicare for all. And I say, and and my response to that was, how the hell do we elect these people? Right, right. Where's the leadership? Where's the leadership? Get out of the then. Get out of the party. Go be a Republican. Go go be revive the Eisenhower Republican Party. Yeah, that. Yeah. Okay. And let Bernie revive the Democratic Party. Yeah, exactly. Revive the, the Franklin Roosevelt Democratic Party and truly take us into the 21st century. We've been twiddling our fingers back in the back in the 1920s at this point. You know, this is just ridiculous. And the, so, the, and, the, the yeah. thing that was so frustrating for me about the Medicare for All debate, which they saved for the second hour. I mean, 10 o'clock yeah. Eastern Standard Time. It was Bernie against the other five Democrats. And, and, and the panel of people asking, and the woman asking the questions. Who prefaced okay. it by saying, health care is the top concern for yeah. Iowa Democrats. Yeah, right. But, but how are you going to convince Americans you're not going to bankrupt the country? How's that? They even had yeah. it as the, as the, sub, as the text on, on, the, on the TV screen. Right, right. And uh, once again, how are you going to pay for it? Who cares? That should, yeah. That's the answer. Who cares? When we go yeah. to war, we don't ask how we're going to pay for it. And more people are being killed by the health insurance companies than Saddam Hussein, Al-Qaeda, ISIS combined. Yeah. Right. Who yeah. cares what it costs? Not to mention it'll cost less. Yes, of I course. Mean, it, it'll, it'll cost less. I mean, I'm, I just... And the other... What, okay, so you get the question asked by the corporate order, and then you get the, the, the echoes of the corporate order in most of the people on that stage, except for Bernie Sanders. Okay. Selling something that, is, that, that, that they want us to think smells like Medicare for all, but is anything 
But I, I, I keep repeating this on the show, and feel free to repeat things because you're a teacher, a great teacher, and repetition is how you teach. Yeah, right. Three times. Three times. Least. So I, 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 I'm gonna. This is what I'm gonna keep repeating until November. The public option is government health insurance. Medicare for all is government health care. Right. It's free. It's free. No deductibles, no premiums. It's free. Right. Paid for by the government. And I can tell you, when Franklin Roosevelt spoke of these things, he did not talk about health insurance. He talked about health care. Okay? And he talked about health care as a right. In fact, if he had had his way in 1935, health care would have been included in Social Security. Okay, the American Medical Association and the powers that be fought that idea powerfully, and he wasn't going to give up Social Security, so they enacted it. And over and, and over again, and especially in 1944, when he called for an economic bill of rights, he called basically for national health care, universal health care. In every little way along the way, he reminded people of the imperative of addressing the health care question. Okay? Yeah. I also and what thought- do we... Yeah, go ahead. I, I also thought that Bernie did a great job when he was asked, you know, Des Moines, Iowa is a big health insurance city. What do you tell the people who would lose their jobs if you institute Medicare for all? And he talked about the the bill that Pramila Jayapal and he put forward, how it provides for a transition. But then he pivoted, and it was important. He pretty much said without saying it, Health insurance companies, these jobs that they do, are immoral and greedy and wrong. And he didn't so much as say, go find other work, but he kind of telegraphed the message, I really don't care about people who work for health insurance companies. And I'm pretty sure the people who work for health insurance companies would rather find another way to earn a living. I'm sure they would. And our needs are pressing. Absolutely pressing. Okay. Now, to, go, to, to continue in this vein, how did, did you hear Amy Klobuchar give her pitch that um, we need to integrate the educational system in America and our economy all the more? Did you hear that? Yes. I don't think people are aware of just how much corporate interests have taken over education in this country. And I thought to myself, wow, she sounds like, she sounds like she's... Minnesota nice woman sounds like she's on the verge of some kind of fascist model that will designate you take a test and will designate where you go beyond school, right? I mean, mm-hmm. we're going to have this sort of funnel from we're going to create these educational programs that will just funnel you. And by the way, that's already happening. It's right. already happening. So she said, the, you know, she says we're going to need more plumbers. We're going to need more nurses. We're not going to need more people with MBAs. I agree with that. Absolutely. But, Absolutely. But, but, the idea of two-year colleges, free two-year colleges, and that college isn't for everybody is a load of horse crap. You are a professor. You teach at University of Wisconsin in Green Bay. There are people who go through the motions of education. They're doing it because they just have to because of peer pressure, social pressure, their parents. And then one day, 
they go and hear Professor Harvey J.K., they show up for class, and you change their lives accidentally. That's the purpose of college, for your life to be accidentally changed. When you're 18, that's not the time for you to decide, I'm going to be a plumber. There's a, I, listen, I, would, I wish I were a plumber or a carpenter. And, and Harvey you, J- but, I, but, I, but I bet you don't wish you were a nurse. I don't wish I was a nurse. I'd like to yeah. be Donald Trump's nurse, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> no, uh, God, no. No, no, no. Oh, I, well, I would do my patriotic duty. But the point I'm making is you may <laughs> yeah. go to college thinking, I'm going to go to the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay, and then I'm going to graduate, I'm going to get an MBA, and then I hear Harvey J.K. speak, and I think, you know what? I'm going to go become a carpenter. That's a much, I just, he changed my life. Well, you know what? For what it's worth, I... I, I would love for people I teach to become carpenters. Absolutely, you know. By the way, I, this is this is immodest of me, but but you're being so sweet. I I just want to add a, a sidebar to what you're saying. I had a I had someone yesterday tweet with my name in her tweet to someone saying, "You obviously didn't have a professor like Harvey K." And I didn't recognize who the person was, and I thought, "Who is this?" So. She was. She did follow me. She had been following me for some time. I heard from her, and I sent her a note and I said, "Were you a student of mine?" And she said, forty years ago." And wow. I said, "Oh my goodness, forty years ago she was my student in 1980. I had just started basically as a, as, a, as a young professor, and she said that I accidentally changed her life, and she ended up going into social work." Fantastic, and, and and in fact, and her mother c- came back to school and had me as a professor, and actually majored in my program. <laughs> right. So forty years later. Yeah. So. Well, but, thank you. Thank well, you but that's the whole point up. of free tuition at public universities. You you put mm-hmm. your kids K through twelve, hoping they'll find some something that inspires them to get out of bed every morning. And then you send them off to free college, hoping that they're going to be living to 150. They're going to have seven different careers in their lifetime, studies show. But let's select, as you point out, the let's pick the 18-year-olds and make them plumbers for the rest of their lives. Let's just put them in. Don't give them any liberal arts education, no humanities. Just limit their scope. So all they can be are carpenters or nurses yeah, and, for the rest of their lives. And I want to repeat, lives. for those people out there who are not connected to higher education in any way or don't have kids or anyone else, you know, immediately in their family in higher education, believe me when I tell you the corporate interests have literally are, have invaded higher education just as they've invaded our schools, and they are trying to limit the horizons of young people to fit into the great corporate order, to sit into the, and, and do the do the jobs that they think will be available, but you know, yeah, corpor- and they're always yeah, wrong. Corporations are always for the, wrong. For the insurance companies, paper pushes for the insurance companies, or or the guy who or the guy or gal who answers the phone and tells you, "Well, no, we couldn't uh, we couldn't cover that problem for you." Sorry. Right, and in this country, I was thinking about this. A nurse or somebody who takes care of your kids, or a teacher, 
there is more dignity in our country. We, we attach more dignity to the paper pusher, the white-collar guy who works in the glass tower. Somehow, he's an executive. Ooh, he carries a briefcase. He must be important. And he kills people. His job is to work for Aetna and kill people. But somehow, that has more dignity than a plumber. Or a nurse. Yeah. Mm. yeah. We yeah. have to change that mindset that there, there's that having a white collar job and wearing a tie and going off to a, a skyscraper means you're 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 educated. I, I know somebody who has three kids who's working they're working on Wall Street and they're they're so proud and I point out your kids are murderers. They press buttons and murder people. That's what you're proud of. Uh, when you say the corporate interests, what do you mean by that? You mean that these are going to be for-profit so colleges? That- board, board, well, so, here's what, so here's the way it works. Okay, we can put this in historical perspective, right? So during these last 45 years, we have witnessed class war from above, not simply on workers in the workplace, the smashing of unions, the stripping of workers' rights, the denial of workers' pensions and benefits. Not only in that way, the, the whole idea of class war from above is very extensive. So, for example, it also means that when you have impoverished workers, when they no longer have enough money to, to provide for themselves, their families, and, and not only for the present, but to enable their kids to go on to school, whether it's a technical school to become a plumber or a university to become a nurse, whatever it might be, okay? Mm-hmm. The fact is that at some point they are going to be stressed economically. Right. And there's only one thing they can do when they're stressed economically. Okay? If, if their union is being smashed, if their jobs are being moved and they're having to resort to a, a low-paying job you know, at a, at, a, at a big box store or a fast food chain, their only choice is to vote to lower taxes. Even if by lowering taxes the rich get richer all the more because they get the big tax cut, if it means they can get something of a tax cut to put more money in their pocket, they're going to do it. Now, what does that mean? If you've cut taxes, that means certain things cannot be paid for. You can't run a government by lowering taxes. So what gets cut? Well, public services. Public education is part of public services. Mm-hmm. So teachers don't get paid at a decent rate. Higher education in Wisconsin, I'll give you a prime example. When I came to the state of Wisconsin, they used to have what they called the one-third, one-third, one-third rule. It was that the university system would be paid for one-third tuition, one-third taxes, and one-third gifts and grants. That's how you would run the university system. It's now the case, and I may be underestimating what I'm about, the numbers I'm about to give you, but I think students are probably now paying up to 50% of the cost of higher education. Now, remember, this is public higher education. We are, not the, we are not paid at the same rate as executives who have less education than we do, okay? Right. The fact is that, in order to, that tuition has had to go up dramatically over these years because citizens have been stressed and can't put out... They, it's not like they want, to, they want to take out, you know, it's not like they don't want to pay for education. It's that they have a harder and harder time doing so. Then add to that Republicans' assaults on teachers and professors, okay? You know, so that now working people 
have been too often fooled into believing that university professors are somehow propagating um, strictly left-wing views to their students, okay, number one, or that teachers, you know, have it easy because they have summers off. I mean, all of this kind of stuff. Right. And so what happens? Well, here in Wisconsin, which was the first state to, to enact the right of collective bargaining and pl public employee unionism back in 1959, the Republicans took power in 2010 and 11 and basically stripped workers, public employees, of their rights to collectively bargain. Okay, so what, what goes on, the, the, the sort of war, the class war from above, is not only specifically at, that, you know, at, the, at the point of production or the workplace, it also extends far beyond that as an assault on the public good. Mm -hmm. Not to mention, I mean, or, or consider this, anybody who drives knows the state of America's roads. Right. Okay? Right. Or how about, you know, I'm sure we can all remember the interstate highway bridge that collapsed and murderously collapsed. Okay. In, in, Minnesota. In, in Minnesota, in the yeah. Twin Cities. Okay, we didn't even hear about building the national infrastructure, by the way, rebuilding the national infrastructure on the debate. Okay, and by the way, we're going to have to pay, and we should have to pay a lot more money, and we should do that. Okay, that's part of making ourselves secure. Freedom and security mean that we should be able to drive across a bridge without fearing that we will co go down into the river with the bridge or that the bridge above us will collapse upon our heads. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, what I've noticed with the other five Democrats, and this is distinct from the Republicans, and that is mm -hmm. Democrats, every single one of them, they're willing to recognize the problem. They're willing to speak of the symptoms of the problem, why it's happening, but they will not give us the solution other than Bernie. Yeah, and actually... David, how's this? You're being too generous. Okay. You're, you're a sweetheart almost to the Democrats <laughs> right now. You know? I mean, look, I mean, all I know is this. I sat there, and I thought to myself, why the hell didn't they say, we have had 45 years of class war on working people. Yeah. And the least we can do is figure out how to mobilize working people and empower working people and enable them to take back America. That's the question I right. wanted them to have to answer. Bernie has laid out the agenda. Elizabeth Warren has laid out an agenda. And the only and the difference between Bernie and Elizabeth Warren is Bernie has done this for many years. Elizabeth Warren comes out it was a republic. By the way, <laughs> this is a really good one. Do you remember that thing where she said that she was, was it she was the only one in the past 30 years who... Yeah, I love that. Yes, that yes. was a great me, moment. Well, by the way, I mean, for, for my, in the period before those 30 years, if not in part of the, those 30 years, she was a Republican. That's right. right. Okay, let's be clear. Oh, you, you know what? Had Bernie said that, <laughs> that would have been great. It would have been great, but Bernie's too, Bernie is above it. Yeah. Okay? So even notice when... She, when, look, we all know what happened this past week. The fact is that the, the Sanders campaign staff made it clear that there was a distinct difference between the, the base that Warren has attracted and the base that Bernie has attracted. Yes. Bernie's base, contrary to Joe, to Joe Biden, his claims Bernie has the most diverse base, okay, by 
it's got the most diverse base. Everyone knows that it. it's all it's the all, most it's diverse all staff. His campaign staff yeah, is the most right. Diverse. Absolutely. So okay. So the so wait. So meanwhile, so they made it clear that Elizabeth. She, they didn't attack Warren. They just said that Elizabeth Warren's base was predominantly white, professional, upper middle class. And by the way, when you talk to the East Coast elites. Uh, it's not surprising you often hear them talk about Warren more, far Absolutely. more than they'll ever talk about Sanders. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. So that, and I, and I have personal instances of that recently, which just have shocked the shit out of me. Actually. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So having said that, so so they said that. So all of a sudden, the Warren people say the Bernie Sanders fa- folks are trashing us. Uh-huh. In fact, most of them are trashing us. Yeah. They're not trashing it. They're pointing out a sociological fact. This is your base. This is our base. And I even asked the question last week. When does when does Elizabeth Warren step out of the the race and embrace Bernie Sanders? Because if you believe in a progressive agenda, that would be the smart thing to do. Period. Mm-hmm. Okay. Having said that, so what? So wait, this is getting, that's even better. So how how does she react? So her 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 buddies say that Bernie told her in a private conversation that a woman couldn't win in two thousand and whatever two thousand and twenty, right? Yeah. And and she held she didn't say it at first. And then she said yes, he did. Well, by the way, okay, she set up the classic he said, she said. Right. Right? Right. Okay. So meanwhile, they actually asked Bernie directly. And, and I turned, to, I turned to, to my wife and I said, oh, this is great. This is that pivotal moment. So she's either, so, so she's, she now has to appear, appear like she's either a liar or she's a victim. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So, so Bernie probably should have could have said i never said such a thing and and turned to her and said and how dare you accuse me of doing that okay. right but he right. didn't he didn't do it he's he is truly above it okay and what he said is base that that's absolutely not the case okay? and, and he, he made a great he got applause he made right and he actually noted he noted the evidence that would have made him out to be an idiot for even right. having said that yes okay the fact that he has always supported women in politics, the fact that it, look, he campaigned for Hillary Clinton, and they still won't forgive him. These right, people, okay? right, right. Um, and by the way, the Clinton folks hate Warren, so that she could easily have said that her, her greatest enemies are the, are the Clinton camp, but she hasn't said that. Right, okay? right. Okay, so 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 he's above that. Me. So she, what does she do? Well, she she's maybe maybe she was being nice, and she said, "No, no, you're lying." But I think it's more the case that she knows it never happened. And it doesn't it matter. It doesn't matter if it happened because it's inconsequential. It's obvious that, you know, that Bernie would never say something like that. Maybe he said something to the effect of, you know, if uh, you run up against Donald Trump, he's going to destroy your family. He doesn't like women. To, you know, maybe I, right. I'm just right. or maybe it's a yeah. joke. I, you know, may, maybe he was making a joke. You know, let, give it to me. I'm a man. He, you know, whatever. He made a joke that. But I yeah, don't actually the, the, that particular version of a joke is a little. It doesn't seem like Bernie. He's it's, of course really, not. He's too smart. Yeah, some really quick answers. Like like he's really good when he turns to Biden. And he, he's, he's got some really quick ones there. I love that one. You know what I'm getting sick of? And this has happened twice now in the debates. Joe Biden says, uh, 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 Donald Trump, twice this has happened. Donald Trump has uh, directed all his affection towards me. He's gone after my family. He's called me corrupt and a liar. And then Bernie says, but other than that, he's a nice guy. And then no laugh. 
Biden repeats it. But other than that, he's a nice guy. Or other than that, I like him. And he gets a big laugh. Bernie doesn't get the assist. He's like just parroting Bernie. Anyway, that's just a, a thing. But I thought Bernie did a great job when he said, you know, they were drafting Elizabeth Warren to run in 2015. So yeah. I stepped back. When she decided yeah. she didn't want to run, I I stepped into it. Yeah, right. I yeah, thought exactly. he Yeah. I, I oh, th- I'm with you. Absolutely. Let me ask you about yeah. academia, because there is this sense of entitlement among the, the, the Clinton supporters in academia, and certainly Elizabeth Warren, that they have to be the smartest one in the room so that when Bernie comes along and challenges you and through just outlying the, the difference between your public option, Elizabeth Warren, and Medicare for All, when you just gently point out that you're not for Medicare for All, they, they take it as a personal affront and they have to play the sexism card. That that yeah. that's a sense of intellectual entitlement, right? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I, 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 I mean, I'm I'm still with the first part where you where I thought you were going, and that is that that there are these 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 folks who really do believe that they are smarter than everyone else. Right. And but and what's even more interesting is that they never really get challenged on it. And right. I think that's what. And I think actually. That's what Bernie Bernie threatens them. Yes, yes. Because because he seriously speaking, I mean, I, I, you know, I, look. If you don't support Bernie, you're not going to like what I'm going to say. He's the only one up there who truly speaks the truth. Yes, yes. And the and the others the others they hedge and they fudge and or they just outright sort of dance. Look, Joe Biden still thinks he's running for president in 19. When was that that he ran back in 1992? Yeah, back in '92, maybe even before that, he tried to, be, uh, to run, and he's still th- he's still he's living in a different age in many ways. Yeah. Okay. Like like elect me president, we'll get rid of this 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 clown in the White House, and we can restore things to normal. Right. Right. That that's what it is. And, and Amy Klobuchar is not is not really different than, than than that, except for the fact that she comes from the Minnesota Nice, right? Right. Uh, and then and then. And then, and now, sorry, I've left the question behind. But the fact is that you still get the idea that they just don't look when they're honest. Maybe they're full, maybe maybe they are being honest. Maybe they can't. Maybe they really can't come to grips with the crisis we're in. That's the other possibility that they are so bound up in the system. They are so much, if you like, a product of this system we have mm-hmm. that they can't really appreciate the nature of the crisis that we're in. Yeah. I mean, look, this, this crisis that extends from the threat to our, our planet and our lives on the one hand, the crisis of, of gross inequalities, uh, the crisis of, as you said, the button pushes who are killing people because we have a health care system that is murderous. Um, I mean, if, if these aren't seen in, as a package, okay, as a consequence of, in, of corporate capitalism and the and the fact that how did bernie put it uh, what was the percentage of of billionaires who own more than uh 92 percent of the population it was something you know some extraordinary figure right it and, keeps growing like it's probably grown exponentially since the debate yeah, yeah probably well in fact i mean he he's challenging them on this now 
to help people understand something about the difference between Bernie and Elizabeth Warren, this is really telling. Elizabeth, both both Bernie and Elizabeth Warren have their Roosevelt heroes. Okay, Elizabeth Roosevelt's Elizabeth Roosevelt. Listen to me. Yeah, well. Elizabeth Elizabeth Warren's Roosevelt hero is Teddy Roosevelt. Hmm. Okay, that's her hero. Now, but people should understand that Teddy Roosevelt, besides having been a racist and and all that and a, and, a, and an imperialist, the fact is that he he literally looked down on working people. Okay, he, he you know he was seen as somebody who wanted to stand in between the battles that took place uh, between capital and labor. But the fact is, he didn't want to change the equation. He just wanted to to set up a more harmonious kind of system. You regulate these kinds of, of, of settings corporate, of the corporate order. Then you take a case of Bernie Sanders. His hero in those kinds of terms is Franklin Roosevelt. And Franklin Roosevelt said in 1931, it, I think given the crisis of the Great Depression, I think it's time we make America fairly radical for at least a generation, for you know, a good generation. And, and he mobilized Americans to do that. Teddy Roosevelt didn't mobilize Americans. He sought to pacify Americans. Franklin Roosevelt wanted to mobilize Americans in order to redeem the American promise of the founders that was reiterated by Abraham Lincoln. And that's the difference. She, is, she sees politics still in a top-down way. Look, she is far superior to everyone else on that stage, Bernie aside for the moment. Absolutely. Absolutely. Far superior, okay? The, the tragedy but she's is, misleading. She's but she's misleading, and she and her reservations as to what needs to be done lead at least folks like me to say this is not what we need. We need someone who's going to actually en- engage Americans, enable Americans, and literally empower Americans. And in fact, you know, as I said many times to you, the difference between the likes of Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders back in 2016 is. Hillary wanted to fight for us. She wanted to be our champion. Bernie Sanders wanted to encourage the fight in us. And today, I'm not putting Elizabeth Warren in the Hillary Clinton camp at all, but I am telling you that Bernie Sanders is still that kind of leader. Absolutely. Who not only wants to fight for us, he wants to encourage the fight in us. And that, that was Franklin Roosevelt. And in many ways, that was Abraham Lincoln as well. And, and that's what made them great presidents, and that's the kind of leadership we need not to mention the fact the Democratic Party really does look that that party needs to remember that they're the party of Franklin Roosevelt and if you're not going to be a Roosevelt Democrat get out right. just go as you said before and create another party right you have a, a doctorate you're a professor yep. yep you're the best educated person on my show and wow that Am I really? That's cool. Yeah. Well, ja- there's Jackie the Joke Man, so... No, no, but seriously speaking, I have to tell you that I listen to your show and I listen to all these people and say, wow, they're pretty... You know, I, well, I Ben Burgess Ben Burgess is younger. He's younger than you. Yes, he's Mike, got a PhD. Yeah, right, but he's ben. younger, so, you know... He, he's younger, right, but he's okay. more logical than I am. He's, more, he's the logician. But I want to... We, we talk about education in this country as as this this abstraction, but it... it papers over all our problems. Any problem we have, education. education, Poverty, income inequality, education, education, education. But we never talk 
about the platonic ideal of what education is. And you said something on the show a couple of times. You criticized Mayor Pete. I believe it was Mayor Pete you were criticizing. You said, you know, I want to bridge the divide between the classes. No, that, that was David Brooks. David Brooks, but it, right. But it does sound like Pete Buttigieg. Yes. It, as a matter of fact, yeah. And I never forgot this. And what did you say? And I said, I don't want to bridge the, the class divide. I want to end the class It's divide. in your book. It's in your book. Make it is America very much Radical. in my book and in my head all, and in my mouth all too often. Maybe. Yes, it's in your book. It's your essay about David Brooks. That's where, that's where I heard it. Uh, right. We had talked about it in, in, with regard to uh, Mayor Pete. Okay, so you want to end the, bri- the, the bridge. You want to end the yeah, divide. Right. Okay. Right. So when we talk about the platonic ideal of what education means... There is this idea in America that if you work hard and get mm-hmm. that education, you've earned the right to something that other people are undeserving of. I worked hard. I got my Ph.D. And that that translates into the debate. You see this with Mayor Pete who's the child of two professors. You see it with Amy Klobuchar, who went off to, I think, she went to Yale and some other fancy law school. And you see it with Elizabeth Warren. And I saw it with Larry O'Donnell on MSNBC the other night because he's a Harvard boy, and MSNBC is panicking that Bernie may get the nod may get the nomination. You bet they're panicking. You bet, you bet. And Larry O'Donnell gave this editorial at the end of his show, I believe it was Tuesday night, uh, Monday night, Mm -hmm. and he said, you know, the only person who's telling the truth about Medicare for All is Elizabeth Warren, you know, a Harvard professor, because this is how things work. And Larry O'Donnell is going to drop some knowledge on us because he went to Harvard and he you know, worked on on Congressional Hill, and he knows how the sausage is made. And here's the truth about Medicare for all, folks. It's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. The votes aren't there. So you, 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 know, you have to be like Elizabeth Warren and believe that, you know, perfect is the enemy of good, and you just take what you can and be realistic and pragmatic, because I have a Harvard degree, and Amy Klobuchar went to Yale, and we worked hard, and we know how things are done. And that's the only way they can be done, because we spent so many years learning how all these things are done. And you're going to come in with a wrecking ball? And, yeah, you and- know what? I, it's funny you say this, because I believe it was uh, Chris Matthews. Chris Math- I, I don't watch MSNBC. People keep saying to me, it's time we boycott MSNBC and CNN. And yeah. I said, I'm already boycotting them individually. You don't yeah. have to persuade me. Yeah. Okay. So he said, he, apparently he made some remark. I mean, Bernie made some remark in which he said something was ludicrous. And Chris Matthews basically wrote him off as ludicrous. And I thought to myself, you know what? The, the, the folks they now have on MSNBC would have voted for Herbert Hoover in 1932. Yeah. Absolutely. That's who they would have voted for. Nine, they would have voted for Herbert Hoover in 1932. Yeah. yeah so you know, I'll tell you, I am so fed up. So uh, Seriously, I said it earlier. I'm going to say it again. I'm so fed up with these Democrats. I'm so fed up with the inside the Beltway folks. 
I'm so fed up with the talking heads of cable TV. I, I think that, look, 70 for, 70% of Americans at least probably want Medicare for all. The fact is that here in Wisconsin, they voted for Trump. In Michigan, they voted for Trump. In Pennsylvania, they voted for Trump because they wanted to punch in the nose not only Let's get to that in a second. Let's get to, I want yeah, I want okay. to talk to you about that in a second. Yeah. I just want to go back to the debate for one second. Please. Uh, yeah. uh, two points I wanted to make, and then uh, I just wanted to get your reaction to it. One is, okay. I'm, I'm the president of the United States. I'm running for president. I want to gut Medicare and Social Security, get rid of the individual mandate, gut Obamacare, and give a tax break to the richest 1% and have it yeah. fall on the backs of the middle class and people who need food stamps and chip. What do you say, folks? Nobody in the Republican Party says the votes aren't there. You can't do that. Sure, I sure I you know, I'm a re, I'm a racist. I'd love to see black people starving to death. We just don't have the votes. Nobody ever says that. In the yeah. Republican Party. But giving yeah. Medicare for all. And how bizarre it was that uh, John McCain, of all people, saves, saves. Yeah. Was it Obamacare at that time? Was that the, was that the vote? I'm confused. It, it was to save Obamacare. And I always thank yeah. the guys who tortured him in the Hanoi Hilton because he wasn't able to give a thumbs up. Yeah. He can only give a yeah. thumbs down from that's what they did to his arms. And <laughs> and, and then we'll get to your point in a second. I, the other thing is, because you had talked about the working people in America and how they're being screwed. So they talk about the USMCA. I think it's the USMCA trade deal between Canada. And, oh, yeah. They're already using what is it? NAFTA light. NAFTA light. Right. So the only person who voted against it was Bernie. Yeah. Who said it's better than NAFTA. But it's not good enough, and right. th and this is this is the as you say the indecency of the Democratic Party, because they state the problem. Na these trade they, they they're willing to state all the problems with our trade deals dating back to the eighties, but yet they vote they're going to vote and support the current tr Trump's trade deal. Well, yeah, now in that vein, help me remember you, you, you're. You you have the the, the 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 you get the New York Times every day for what it's worth, right? Mm -hmm. And you can hold a, a hard copy in your hands, right? No. Oh, you don't. No. Okay. I, I read it on my phone, but oh, I get it. Right. I'm, I'm that's I'm, the I'm compelled to do that too, and I just wish I had a copy of the paper in my hands. I'm still I, I I understand that. Okay. Well, having my point is this: I need your help to remember a detail of something. So recently, I believe they voted. There was a vote on a military budget, was it? The defense budget. Yes, in December, and which is Trump's defense budget, correct? Yes. Now, help me understand this. Didn't I hear tonight on the debates this complaint about all this money spent on the military? Was that only Bernie who talked about that? Did any of the no, other? No, Steyer, Warren talked about the fraud. In the we have to put up a, a block. Oh, by the way, oh yes. By the way, sidebar here. So whenever there's a problem, you could throw education at it. If there's a problem financially, you've got to go after the fraud. Okay? Right. Right. Instead of thinking there's something wrong with the system, it's surely the fraud at the edge. Come on. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, how many years, how many times, do you really have to be my age to, to know that it's always the cop-out when a Democrat says that? It's always the cop-out instead of saying, here's what we're going to do, as Bernie would say. Come right. on. 
It's not the $700 coffee pot. It's the war in Iraq. Yeah. That's, that's right. the problem. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So. Okay. So, so, so back to what you were saying. So, so I want to get, yes, so continue. I cut well, you. I, I'm just saying that they are willing to state the problems. And it was, to me, it was just glaringly obvious when they talked about the trade deal. They were willing to state all the problems with Donald Trump's presidency, how the CEOs make these trade deals, they're bad for the environment, they're bad for the workers, but it's better than nothing. It's better than yeah. nothing. Yeah. And, and, we'll, and, 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 it, and, and, and we'll fix it. Let's get this bill passed, and then let's pass this trade bill, and then we'll revisit it and improve upon it the same way we're going to improve upon Obamacare. F you. And Bernie said it's very hard to get a trade deal right. Yeah. It's very hard mm -hmm. to get another trade deal going. This is the trade deal. It'll be another twenty years before we revisit it. Yeah, and and by the way, and let's not, and let's remind everyone that uh, Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton alike were, you know, avid for the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, right. the trade deal that would have been NAFTA for the Pacific. Right. Hey, you have two bullet wounds, but you only have ten thousand dollars, and it costs twenty thousand dollars for me to remove both. Here's what we'll do. Let you know. Let's. <laughs> start, you give me $10,000, and I'll take out one of the bullets. We'll leave the other bullet there, and, you know, we'll try to stanch the bleeding, and, you know, maybe you'll get an infection, and we'll, we'll, you, you, we'll come back and figure out, it. we'll improve upon it eventually. Now, don't uh, worry. Soon we'll be beyond that. They'll say, here's the deal. You got two bullet wounds, okay? One bullet wound we'll take care of for the 10000 you've got. The other bullet wound will do this. You give us one of your organs. <laughs> we want to securitize your lungs. <laughs> right. We, yep. Yes, that's it. Uh, okay. It's just so, it is, it's the new Democratic Party. And I, I have to say, I'm not going to vote for Trump. But you, it's, as you say, I love this. It's indecent. It is absolutely indecent to stand before the American people as a Democrat calling yourself a liberal or a progressive and be like a car salesman. You're, you're recognizing the problem. I hear you, folks. I see yeah. what's going on, and I know why it's going on. But what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Look, we also have this. The, we have the base model available for you. <laughs> okay. Or, or how's this? We can put retreads on the car. <laughs> and tell you it's brand new. You know what? You know, when I, I, one of the ways I made my way through college, I worked in a tire dealership on Route 17 in Paramus. I, 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 I know that. I, yes, okay. of and the place was called the, the place was Marty the Tire King. Okay. It was a, and, and I remember we used to, you know, we sold all kinds of tires. And, and I remember later, 10 years later, when I was, had my PhD and I was teaching, and I was trying to explain to students the, the character of inequality. I actually, and I knew, and my students are usually first generation students, and they've had to go out, they've had to go out and buy a used car, or they're in hock and they've bought a car, you know, to commute and all that kind of stuff. And I said to them, you know, look, 
I'm not going to tell you that you're going to get less of an education here than the richer kid who might go to the private university like Marquette or go mm -hmm. east or whatever. Okay, I won't tell you. I won't do that because I swear to you, I will give you the an education equal to any of those places. But I can tell you this: when you go back out to your car, drive carefully. <laughs> and they said, "What?" I said, "Drive carefully," because I'll bet money your tires are getting awfully thin, and those other and those other kids. They don't have to worry about that. Wow, that's great. Yeah, I mean, it's you know what you know. It's funny. I, I sorry if I can just talk for a minute about. I've been teaching now for forty-two years as a professor. Forty, actually forty-three years. I, I started very young. I was twenty-six, twenty-seven, and um, and I always wanted to teach at a small D democratic type institution, which is what I got. Which is exactly what I got. UW Green Bay, where basically. Every generation of students has come into our campus. The majority of them have been first generation. And, and the ethnic mix has, has changed. So now so many of my students, for, for, for the first time I can tell you, are indeed have Latino surnames or African-Americans coming up from uh, Milwaukee and places like that. And it's, and it's interesting because they, too, are, are first generation. And it's, it's kind of marvelous because, in one sense, they really do appreciate what they're, what they're in. At the same time, the number of hours that they have to work in a job to be able to stay in school is is just incredible. So it means that there are things that they can't quite do as a student, but they but but they've got a great spirit about it. Even even the ones who I don't even necessarily like sometimes, I, you know, you you got to give them credit for hanging in there, even if they've just worked a night job and have to get up early for the, right. the classes the next day. So. One of the things that, I, that I've learned in my 40 years, and I, 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 grew, I was middle class, times lower middle class, and, you know, I mean, I, I went to a public university, and I had to work my way through school, and I took loans, but when you get a PhD, the first thing you have to remember is that you're not better than anyone else, and, and, it's, and one of the reasons that I was glad that I was here all these years is that my, my students have just kept me down to earth, Okay. That that they're they're as good as anybody else. It's a shame that that I don't have a million dollars to do all the more for them. But it is the case that when I then see these people, and I think this is going to address one of your questions earlier, when I see these people who went to Ivy League law, Ivy League colleges, and Ivy League law schools, and they sound so committed and so determined to to enhance the the, the lives of Americans and and promote. To use to use a, a, an abused word, a greater America, right? Mm -hmm. It strikes me that how they could ever continue to speak and say, "But you know what? We can't guarantee you your health care." Right. I, I don't. I just that I, I can't tell you how pissed off I was, and I, you could hear it when we when we began. Yeah. And now it's now it's after midnight for you and after eleven for me because I'm here in the Midwest and you're in New York. But it really is the case that how do they do that? How, how do they do that? What kind of mindset does that? They think they're better. And so let's put an end to this question that has been asked since 1980. How is it possible for the Republicans to accuse liberals of being elitists? The Republicans, Professor, they're the rich ones. They represent Wall Street. How is it possible that they've convinced, hoodwinked the American people into believing that Obama's an elitist and Clinton is an elitist, Dukakis was an elitist. How do, how do they 
pull the wool over the American people's eyes. You know, that, that's, a, that's a good question. There's a, there's, a guy, there's a friend of mine, I haven't seen him in a few years, Steve Frazier, who's in New York, was in publishing for years, and he's done some teaching, too. Came out with a book not too long ago titled Limousine Liberal. Remember the term limousine liberal? Of course, I've always wanted and, to be and one. And that was the John, <laughs> right? <laughs> John Lindsay, right? He was the you know he was the yeah. former Republican. He was a Republican liberal, became a Democrat. He was what the West Side limousine liberals, or was it the East Side? Liberals? He was the silk stocking, was yeah. the district yeah. of New York. So here's the thing: I think one of the reasons the Republicans can do it is this: the Republicans they're not actually elitists. They're they're class warriors. That's the difference. Republicans are class warriors for for business. Okay, they're not elitists. They, because because they they just they just you know they want to protect and advance the interests of business and basically hold on to a certain number of votes by pretending to be good Christians, right? I mean mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. But the Democrats say they really want to help. Again, Hillary Clinton, I want to be your champion. I want to fight for you. Okay. Now, after a while, it becomes pretty obvious that those who want to fight for you are elitists because they don't think you can fight for yourself. Right. That's amazing. That's elitism. That's the true elitism. The others are class warriors. The Democrats are elitists. Wow. Okay? And that's why Bernie Sanders is not an elitist, and that's why he's not... He, that's why he, he strikes fear in the hearts of these other Democrats. Imagine working people actually regaining union organization, actually being able to organize again, actually having the power to collect, bargain collectively, actually have a greater say in, in, in the workplace, otherwise known in the FDR days as industrial democracy. Just imagine that. And now especially because the working class isn't even just white. The, wor- the true working middle class is is. is diverse as, as can be, or at least the, those who aspire to it are diverse as can be. And labor's ready, ready, ready to not be the white labor unions of the past. They are ready to be the diverse unions of the 21st century. And that scares these people. But the even more elitist part is this. Why do they underestimate the degree to which working Americans want to be as American as everybody else? Why do... So it's an elitism because they, they look down on these people and they fear them, I think. I, I think Democrats fear working people as much as anyone. I agree with you. But you must have been happy. And then we'll get to the, the final point. I, I yeah. saw that Barack Obama got nominated for an Oscar. He did that Netflix documentary on the factory that was moving to he's China. He's getting an Oscar. He got an o- you know what? Let's see. He's got the Nobel. Uh huh. He's nominated for an Oscar. He needs. He doesn't have an Emmy, though, does he? No, uh, probably. You've got an Emmy. You have an Emmy, I understand. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I, and I've stole it. Right. I stole a couple of Tonys from Nathan Lane, but <laughs> I guess my name isn't on them, so that doesn't count. Yeah. But where does he get off? He and Al Gore with their Oscars. I mean, Obama hasn't <laughs> won it yet, but you know, he was when he was running for president. I'll never stop fighting for you. I'll never stop fighting for you. Oh yeah. I'll put on my I'll put on my marching shoes and turn out when you guys are on strike. Bullshit. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And and it's, and that documentary that he's been nominated for, I haven't seen it, but I've been told that the factory that they depict that moves to China, it's problematic. It's complicated. That seems to be the message of Obama's documentary. That in other no- words, 
In other words, wait a minute. I don't know this documentary yet. There's a, I refuse to see it because I've had two people tell me that it's a really interesting story about a factory in America that had to close and move to China. And from what I was told, and this is hearsay because I did not see the documentary, yeah. it, it shows how difficult the issue is with factory closing, that it's, it's much more complicated. Well, of course it is. But nevertheless, that doesn't change the fact. It doesn't change the fact that we're, we're operating in a corporate system in which, if the profits aren't of a certain sort, it, you can still you can be profitable and not profitable enough, and therefore you move. Okay. But Bernie said and, during the debate, it's not complicated. He said, if you well, no, it's not complicated. If you move it's, a it's, factory overseas, good luck getting a contract with the American government. Yeah. No. I. I oh, sorry. If that's where we're going, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That, anyway, that, that was the yeah. That was FDR was. I'm sure he. You know, it's very interesting to me. This campaign. You've heard me say this before. Back in 2016 and 15 or 16, I, I I was solidly with Bernie, but I had serious criticisms of the way he was running the campaign. And this time, this time, I can tell you that I am really impressed because me too. He has. He may well have known it back in 2015-16, but didn't want to make much of it. But he is making a great deal of the lessons of the what? And I thought he said of, 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 of the lessons of Franklin Roosevelt, because Roosevelt, during the New Deal years and the war years, they knew about handling contra You know, what's the best word? Pressing companies to do what needed to be done by telling them, "You want the contract? You do this." Okay. Okay. Executive orders can can do that. Well, you have you, there's something you wanted to talk about the swing states that Hillary lost. But before we do that, yeah, we, no need to. I think I've pretty much said it. We can do that another time. Again. Okay, it's basically to let everyone know what was on my mind. It's the fact that the Democrats keep saying that Bernie can't win. Okay, he's unelectable, and what they utterly fail to realize is the fact that Hillary Clinton lost the very states that Bernie Sanders would have won. Mm -hmm. that, that's in short the point. And, you know, national, forget national polls. Those, you can listen to them and then throw them away. You want to know what's going on in the states. You want to know what's happening in places like Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania and Ohio. Okay, that, that's crucial. And by the way, that, that question that was asked of Sanders about, well, you know, Two-thirds of Americans said they, they're, they're, they, don't want, they don't want democratic socialism, something like that. Right. But meanwhile, did she report on the survey that basically all the time surveys show, number one, that Bernie's the most popular political figure in America, number one. Number two, under, under the age of 40, Americans just adore Bernie Sanders. And, and socialism. And, so, and socialism, and to a greater extent than ever. And, and on top of all that, it's the case that... If Bernie Sanders had, had won the nomination in 2016, then, basically speaking, working people would have returned to the Democratic Party, and they would have voted for Bernie as a way of punching in the nose the Clinton machine mm -hmm. and the Republicans at the same time. But they chose Hillary Clinton, who didn't even come to Wisconsin to campaign in 2016. Yeah. Come on. It's ridiculous. You know, there was a, a story, I think it was in the New York Times, and I talked about this on the show la uh, last week, that the swing states, 
that Trump won bore a heavy brunt from perpetual war, that a lot of the kids oh, yeah. were sent off from Wisconsin and Michigan. Yeah, well, these are, place, these are places where people enlist. I mean, they enlist. I mean, you know, I mean, I have, stu- I have veterans in my classes, and I have students who have, their, you know, a good number of their friends, say they're from small-town Wisconsin, went into the military. In fact, one of my students just the other day said to me that I think the Democrats need to appreciate the degree to which rural America and urban people of color kids are fighting these, you know, fight these wars. And, you know, I mean, that makes, in that sense, Buttigieg is unusual. He's one of, the, one of those Harvard grads who actually went into the military. Um, but it is the case. It is the case that... You keep sending these kids, and and these folks are the ones who just get have had it. And I think, generally speaking, you know, if we don't if we don't learn a lesson from all this, we're going to end up we're going to end up in a. I don't. Know, I sometimes worry about the, the possibility that our young military men are just going to turn on the, on the political system. And and the reason I think that we neglect the reason that Hillary lost is she's a hawk that she gave us Libya, and she probably would have... I think the military in those swing states, from what I've read, believed Trump when he said we have to put an end to global Oh, yes. Intervention. Oh, sorry, yeah. That's where your question was going. Uh, yes, definitely. Uh, no, I'm... Con- Let's put it this way. I don't know if they saw Hillary as the hawk specifically, but they definitely, when they... When they heard, think of this, when they heard Trump, they heard him say, no more of these wars, we're going to put America first, we're going to start stop sending our kids over to, to fight in wars that just have no purpose for us. And moreover, he actually, he actually spoke in defense of Medicare, I believe, and Medicaid and things like that when he was debating the other Republicans. I mean, he sounded as if, look, he had been, a, he was a, he was a schmuck, but he, he, he sounded like he was a Democrat turned Republican. And he had been a Democrat, just as Elizabeth Warren had been a Republican and turned a Democrat. So people heard those things, and they thought, it can't be any worse than what the Clintons have done to us. Right. And it can't be any more disappointing than what Obama has done to us. Well, let me, let's end on this, because I asked Congressman Alan Grayson about mm-hmm. the Democratic Party and how America first and isolationist within the Democratic Party has a negative connotation. And so... Well, this goes... Uh, yeah, yeah. So go ahead. Uh, Tell us why it has yeah. a negative connotation. Well, for a start, this goes back actually to the 1930s. And the fact was that... The, okay, so in the 19th, so in the 30s, Americans had pretty much felt, let Europe fight its own wars. Okay, no more, no more sending troops over to Europe. So there, there was a feeling, it wasn't exactly isolationism, it was a sense that we just don't want to get in wars. World it was War I, it was, it, was accept, it was settled law that World War I was a mistake. Right, it was a mistake, and also that too many people had made riches off of, of the deaths, you know, the, the right. war industrialist types. Right. Okay, so, so basically, as, as Europe became fascist, as, you know, Mussolini... And Hitler and the petty dictators in their in their uh, steed in their of the, that sort basically 
Americans, they just didn't want to do it. Leave us out, okay? Mm-hmm. But they also, and they also believe, since they came from immigrant generations, they also believe there was no redeeming Europe, right? Mm-hmm. We left, there's no redeeming that place, okay? But it is also the case that Roosevelt knew that if they understood what the threat was, if they understood that threat, then Americans would, would, would wake up to that threat. The threat being that an ocean was no longer a fortress, no longer afforded a fortress against mm-hmm. fascism, neither in the Pacific nor in the Atlantic. Okay, now, so the Republicans, generally speaking, were the isolationists, but there were Democratic isolationists. And it, here's the thing: it was there was the America First Committee, and the America First Committee was filled with reactionaries and anti-Semites. I mean, you know, you had Joe Kennedy, like De- a Democrat Joe Kennedy like Joe and, Kennedy and Lindbergh. Right. You know, the, the, the flying hero who, who took medals from Hitler's uh, Luftwaffe. And uh, I mean, it, it, his wife was a fascist, basically. She said, you know, we ought to give fascism a chance. So, so <laughs> here. A New so, Jersey it, girl, by the way. What's that? A New Jersey girl and Morrow. Okay, don't don't pol- don't pollute my family in that fashion. <laughs> okay, <laughs> Flemington, New Jersey. Of course, that was the kidnapping too. Yes. So, uh, okay. So here we go. So in the Democratic Party was the sense that they were not going to be the isolationists. Those who were they were Democratic isolationists, but it was the Republicans and the conservatives. And then since and then basically after the war, the whole idea of isolationism was just you know out of the question. Out of the question. So the Democrats became the party that had won the Second World War, right? The party of Roosevelt, and in fact, which is one of the problems that that LBJ had, and that is that he couldn't be the one who allowed. You know, do you remember that term? Who lost China? Yes. He couldn't be the one who basically lost Southeast Asia. I mean, it was all that kind of stuff. It was all bound up. So inside the Democratic Party, there is this there is this sense that that America is meant to be. Uh, you know, people further, even further to my left will say, well, the Democrats are basically their own rendition of imperialists. But what I would say is there's a, the Democrats themselves see the United States as part of alliances. And the alliances connect us to the defense of Europe, connect us to, you know, through the OAS. And undeniably, there in any one of these quarters of the world, there was the element of imperial, imperialism and, and commercial aggrandizement. But I think it's the case that Democrats generally just have this instinctive sense that we're the party of the United Nations, of NATO, and these are the kinds of things we need to hold on to. And uh, look, even Bernie in his own way was saying that tonight, right? I mean, he, 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 Bernie's not an isolationist, okay? No. He's just not an imperial. He's just not a militarist. Right, right. And by the way, I'm going to say, I, I actually believe that... I, I think it, it, it's going to be a tragedy if Bernie Sanders does not get the nomination. I he, agree he, with you. He, it, it will be really, really a tragedy, both in foreign policy terms and domestic policy terms. If we end up with another neoliberal, then you can imagine, you can imagine somebody even worse than Trump coming in and basically taking back the presidency yeah. in the future. We, we are in a crisis. We desperately need radical and social democratic action. We need, to, we need to not bridge the class divide, not ignore the class divide. We need to end the class divide. Yes, 
And it's the Democratic Party's fault, not Trump's. Well, it's 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 as much the Democrats as the as the Republicans. Though now we know the immediate, if you like, political crisis is seems to come out of Trump and the Republican Party. The question is: Are the Democrats once again going to are they once again going to fail to remember who they are, and we gonna, are we going to fail to remember who we are? Professor Harvey J. K. Professor Harvey J.K. can be followed on Twitter. His Twitter handle is Harvey J.K. He is the author of several books. The most recent, published by Zero Books, is Take Hold of Our History, Make America Radical Again. I've read it. I love it. It's a great gift to yourself. It's a fun read. It's about, I don't know, 18, 20 essays and speeches that... The professor has written and delivered the past couple of years, and they will make your blood boil, but in the good way, in the good but way. But in the good way. You know, can I just say that Norman Lear, I loved how Norman Lear put it when he would read my stuff. And it, it, I used his, we used his words on, my, on this book. He said, Harvey K., Harvey, nobody, nobody, how do you put it? Nobody spanks America like, nobody spanks oh, America right. like Harvey K., yeah. You've got, you have the book there? I, I don't have the book I, hand. Uh, Hang on. Yes, I do. Okay. As a matter I can fact. find it. I can, I'll, I can I'll find it. it. Uh, okay. I was, I, uh, a quote from Michael Brooks, Tom Hart. No, we'll keep it in. I love this. No one has ever loved a nation more or spanked it harder for straying from its previs, premise than Harvey K. Norman Lear, producer and founder of People for the American Way. And, and, and innumerable Emmy Award-winning sitcoms, right? Yes. So, uh, so right. and when he said that, that to me was, I really took great pride in how he said that. I thought, wow. Now, as, a, as, a, as another Emmy Award-winning comedy writer who fancies himself the future Norman Lear, my blurb would be, Harvey J.K.'s book, Take Hold of Our History, is so brilliant, I'm going to claim I wrote it. I like that too. I definitely, you know what? I, if I had that, I would have put that shit. It'll never go into a second edition, unfortunately, but I would love that. Would be great. Take that, Norman Lear. I'm the real TV producer. Stay on the line, Harvey okay. J. This was fantastic. Look, I want to, wait, one last thing. You don't have to use it, but in case you, I want you to have it on tape. Yes. It's this. Thank you for accommodating me. I didn't want to do it. Tomorrow, I wanted to do it tonight so we could rant and rave and get yes. it off our chest. And we've stayed up late to do it. Yes. And even if it has to run on Friday, I don't care. I was able to. I, I, I'm, I, I'm going to be honest with you. It's it's twelve thirty, and this this was a a chore. To, you know, I, I I love having you on the show. I, I please, you know, come back tomorrow, please. But it was after the debate. It's now 1230. And I'm, I was thinking yeah. this is going to be hard. And, you know, doing it's like we did it. And I feel great. I feel like this was and I'm glad we did it right after the debate. So let me, by the way, on behalf of my listeners, because they love you. Thank you. Oh, well, that's, thank you. Because they, 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 they like really that. they really do love you. So today is uh, well, it's Wednesday morning. This show yeah. will drop at 3 a.m. Friday. Mm hmm. How do you think Bernie will have done? What do you think the polls will tell us? Let's do the horse race. Okay. What do you think? I, because a lot of my friends are depressed. They they watch the debate. They love Bernie, but they don't think they were. You know, when you're rooting for Bernie, you watch it through the eyes of the undecided. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, I, I mean, let, let me put it this way. I, I think he handled it really well. I, I do. But I, I also think that I thought if we could get down to six, we'd actually have a debate. We, had a, we saw differences among them more clearly than ever, although Bernie yes. always stood out from the crowd. But I still look forward to the moment where Bernie and Biden can go head to head. Yeah. To me, that's the moment, okay? And I do, I, I think Bernie will, I, maybe, look, I, I don't think I'm being too hopeful. I think, I really do think Bernie can win in Iowa. The, the shame of it is there will be no win in Iowa that will be dramatic and convincing. Right. But it, it rarely oh, is. Yeah. I mean, Romney didn't win Iowa. I mean, right? It, no, no what I mean dramatic and convincing is like, that Bernie would win 50% of the vote oh, I see. of the caucus turnout, you know, that kind of thing. But then I think when they go to New Hampshire, we're going to see an even stronger uh, turnout for, for, for Bernie. And it may well be that after that, that uh, Warren will have to withdraw. Yeah. That, that could easily be the case. And before then, maybe Amy Klobuchar will withdraw um, because she'll have done poorly in Iowa. Um, and then when they go south, and of course, the, 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 the southern vote is just the tragic vote because... The struggle to finally win the vote, and then now to have the the votes in the South choose the likes of Biden, when in fact in the South it's unlikely that a, a Democrat can win anyhow. Um, what can you do? I mean, yeah. The uh, the thing with Bernie is that I think you compare him to FDR. And this is for yeah. a future conversation. I compare him to Trump, and I think this was his Trump moment. By by being on the stage with fewer and fewer candidates, more and more voters got to see the striking difference between Bernie and the rest of the party. Yeah, that, I, that could be true. But Bernie, but Bernie didn't tell everyone that Buttigieg has small, small, small hands. Not well, a small thing. What was he? What did he say to? Yeah, Marco small. Rubio? Oh no, he said, I think, I think it was Marco Rubio who said Trump had small hands. Yeah, but what did he? He said oh, he called Rubio. him. He called him little Marco. He little, was, yeah, right, 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 right. So, so Bernie didn't call Buttigieg a child. No. Okay. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Professor Harvey J.K. Can you stay on the line for one second? Absolutely. We'll stay up to one thirty. talk. Sure, <laughs> sure. <laughs> You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. <laughs> All right, now we're going to get it right, Professor. David Farris is back. He's an associate professor of politics at Roosevelt University. He's the author of It's Time to Fight Dirty, how Democrats can build a lasting majority in American politics. And his new book it's coming out this year is The Kids Are All Left. Welcome back, Professor David Farris. Great to be back on the show, David. Thank you for having me again, as always. It's great to hear your voice. You have a new book out that I want to talk to you about in a second, The Kids Are All Left. And it's, I believe, about how partisan politics and factionalism in America is going to come to an end because this new generation of voters are all on the same page. I hope you're right, but we'll get to that in a second. <laughs> yeah, you sure. wrote a book about social media in Iran and the role that played in 
the beginning of a Persian spring that did or did not come to fruition, unlike Egypt. What what happened in Iran? Yeah, yeah. What happened in Iran? Why didn't we see that that Persian spring that Twitter almost created? Yeah. So, and you know, that was eleven years ago, or ten and a half years ago, I guess. There was a, a, a disputed presidential election in Iran. In, in summer of 2009. Um, was it 2009? Are you sure it was the summer of 2009? Yeah, yeah, I know. It was a long time ago. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, um, I think one of the things people most misunderstand about Iran is that it really does have sort of competitive presidential elections within the confines that the regime sets for it. You know, so... Um, the government will, will vet all these candidates and disqualify thousands of people. <laughs> right. The people that they let through to run uh, really do have real differences between between each other, um, and they represent different factions in Iranian politics. Um, and so, uh, you know, the, the the reformist candidate in that election was denied um, was denied victory, um, and uh, his name was Mir Hussein uh, Musavi. And he's still under house arrest ten years later. Um, and so the the sort of the blatant rigging of that election brought Iranians out into the streets and by the by the thousands, you know. Um, and uh, certainly social media, um, particularly Twitter, played a, a significant role in making sure that the outside world kind of knew what was happening inside of Iran. Um, but ultimately, um, it didn't work. You know, it, it did not succeed in. Um, the, the goal of the protest was really to get Musavi into office rather than to sort of like depose the regime altogether. Uh, but the regime was just sort of not willing to compromise. Um, so you had uh, Mahmoud uh, Aminajad. He was the, the mayor of Tehran, as I understand it. And he became president in 2005. And then there were elections mm-hmm. in 2009. And uh, uh, Aminajad, was he... Right wing, and and as as we understand it here in the United States, and Musavi was to the left. Not not in the sort of the the way that we understand politics. I mean, Ahmadinejad, you think of him more as like a right wing populist, um, in the sense that he uh, he actually stood for more interventionist economic policies in Iran, um, and he was seen. You know, his rise to power was based on um, the perception that he was on the side of the, of the little guy, you know, mm-hmm. the, the working people, uh, Iranians outside of Tehran who are, you know, forgotten by the regime. Um, you know, this should all sound a little bit familiar, right? Um, yeah. And so, um, so he, he was, you know, I mean, he was actually pretty, I mean, I think he was pretty popular when he was first elected, but he also took this, like, incredibly hard line um, on foreign policy issues and um, got Iran in, in such hot water that, that he invited new sanctions and, um you know, there, there was a lot of economic things got worse. You know, things got worse under his rule in terms of uh, people's economic conditions. And he also, I mean, think about what you know, the global economic conditions affect Iran too. I mean, this is the middle of the Great Recession, right? So um, uh, he he was unpopular. I mean, I think he lost that election pretty decisively, um, and and the regime kind of overrigged it. You know, wow, <laughs> they announced yeah. totals on election night were, that were just preposterous. You know. Um, and no, nobody believed them, and nobody should have believed them. But um, what kind of economic you know, sanctions were in place? Were we squeezing them in two thousand and nine? 
Yeah, so um, we had this renewed uh, nuclear crisis that, that began on, in, under the Bush administration, um, sort of uh, around the time of the, you know, the Axis of Evil speech. And this, this were um, some, uh, some defectors alerted American intelligence to this Iranian nuclear program that was, um, that was pretty well advanced, you know. Um, and so um, the Bush administration, you know, Again, this all sound familiar, right? Like mm-hmm. Threatens war, um, but also um, sort of gradually imposed um, uh, more and more significant sanctions on Iran, um, and that's a that's a policy that Obama inherited and, and actually um, escalated um, when when he came into office. You know, I mean, his his thing was like, I'll talk to anybody at any time, but um, you know, and he did reach out to the Iranian leadership at the time, but. They simply like weren't really amenable to compromise and amenable to talking. Um, so you know, I, I believe he talked before the, the the nuclear treaty went into effect. I think Obama was at the UN and he got on the phone and he spoke to Rouhani. People were upset about that. Rouhani, the current president of Iran, would be mm-hmm. to the left or the right of Ahmadinejad, the former president. So on. on- on, on issues of foreign policy, he's, he's to the left of Ahmadinejad, right? I mean, his his thing was, um, you know, he wants to reduce Iran's economic isolation from the rest of the world, um, and the the Iranian nuclear deal was that was that gambit, right? It was, mm-hmm. um, you know, we put our ambitions for a nuclear weapon on hold for a, a, a set period of time in exchange for sort of being being brought out in, from the cold um, in terms of our isolation from. You know, particularly the, the international banking system, but also um, international trade and you know, so all, all sorts of dealings that other countries could could not really have with Iran um, until that deal was signed. And so there was this like kind of short-lived period of um, of optimism and and hope in Iran that that the deal would end Iran's economic isolation, but increase opportunities for for young and, and unemployed people. Um, and, it, and it, you know. It did help, but it, even before Trump got into office, it wasn't helping as much as people thought it would. Right. Um, so Khamenei so is the current leader of the religious part of Iran, and I would assume right. he's the Ayatollah. He's the Ayatollah Khamenei. It's a theocratic mm-hmm. state, so he's still more powerful than the elected leader of Iran. Yeah, so... Uh, Khamenei is so confusing that his name is so similar to Khamenei. Uh, but yeah. uh, Khamenei is, is uh, you know, he's called the supreme leader. Um, and if you look at, uh, I love if he's comparative politics to, to undergrads, and I love to show them a flow chart of authority in Iran. Um, and there's, there's all sorts of different political institutions. You know, there's a parliament, um, there's, a, there's an elected president, um, there's, there's these other bodies that, that make some decisions about disputes between um, parliament and president. Yeah, they're they're taking to the streets right now, demanding that Khamenei, the Ayatollah, step down. That seems unimaginable that they would allow those kind it, of protests to take place. Yeah, it's you know the thing about authoritarianism is that you, you can't rule by pure force all the time. You know, um, in other words, you need you need a certain amount of voluntary compliance from from the population. Because if you have to bust out the tanks and, and murder some protesters every other week, um, eventually that's going to wear down support from from the sort of key sectors that um, 
that benefit from from the regime in the first place, and then somebody's going to defect, uh, and and then you're out, you know, then you're out. So the the reason that authoritarian regimes sometimes allow protests is uh, we call it in political science a kind of a safety valve, you know, um, in the sense that you're you're allowing some sort of calculated release of steam mm-hmm. on the part of the public, um, and then you're you're trying to send off as many demands for change as you possibly can. Right. Um, right. Now, Khamenei is not, um, you know, omnipotent, right? Like, there are other factions in, in, in Iranian politics that could theoretically just seize control of the state. Um, and there's been concern in, in sort of Iran watchers for, for a decade now that the IRGC, the, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, could actually just stay to coup, um, dismantle um, the Islamic theocracy, get rid of the, uh, the Supreme Leader, um, and institute a more kind of run-of-the-mill uh, military dictatorship, which um, wouldn't really do anything for our relationships with with, with Iran. <laughs> well, it, it worked um, for us in Egypt. Uh, I mean, they elected yeah. uh, Morsi? Who was the guy who was the Islamic Brotherhood? Yeah, the, the Brotherhood, yeah. Uh, yeah, Mohammed Morsi. Yeah, and um, so we didn't like that. And then and yeah, Al Sisi's there, and he's like Mubarak Redux. Yeah, he's actually. I mean, actually worse than Mubarak, but um, really. So yeah, and we're you know we're fine with that basically. Like we you know um, not not we as a me, but I mean we the sort of American foreign policy establishment is fine with that um, because it's it's stability. It's stability without religion. Stability with no religion. So the Twitter revolution yeah, in Iran, you wrote about that. We've been led to believe that the Twitter revolution in Iran was a bust, but maybe not so much. Maybe social media is a bigger threat to the status quo than we believe. Yeah, I mean, I think social media allows um, certain acts of coordination in planning to, to be easier it, it, can serve as a sort of catalyst for foreign audiences, but I think what's really what's really happening inside Iran um, is that is that the regime is kind of is kind of trapped in a way. Um, it, Iran has one of the youngest populations in the world, um, and it's got a lot of unemployed young people, particularly a lot of unemployed young men. Um, and it doesn't really have a it doesn't really have a an end game in terms of how it's going to uh, sort of improve people's economic lives without. Um, you know, without sort of capitulating to the United States, um, which they don't want to do. So they're, they're kind of caught between a, a rock and a hard place here, but I think that they're... You weren't making a pun. cycles of protests. What's that? You weren't making a pun about being caught between a rack and a hard place. Sorry. <laughs> you no, know, I wasn't. Okay. Um, but, but, yeah, it's a good... <laughs> Yeah. Let me ask you a question about our idiot president who should be sent to a mental institution. I think God has a sense yeah. of humor. Did he inadvertently, accidentally stumble into a foreign policy achievement by killing Soleimani? Could this end up going the way Pompeo and Trump think it might go in that it could lead to the fall of the Ayatollah? Is that possible? Yeah. That Trump may have done something um, right? I wouldn't wait by the fun on that. I mean, I think, um, 
I think that it's very it's going to be very difficult to dislodge this regime. Um, when we take the constitutional crisis off the table, his not consulting with a gang of eight and lying about killing Soleimani and all the laws that he broke here in the United States and the UN and all our treaties. When you take all that just from pure, just what's best for America, pure brute force, realpolitik, could he have accidentally done something right by killing Soleimani? I mean, I wouldn't rule it out, right? I mean, uh, you know, I'm, I'm somebody that likes to to be a straight shooter, right? If, if, the, if they overthrow the government and we see some sort of, like, you know, movement towards democracy, hey, you know, I'll give the guy credit. My, my, my fear, though, is that that's not what's going to happen here. Um, that there are too many sort of heavily armed uh, people with a, with a huge investment in this regime. Um, people talk about the IRGC like it's, the, it's like Saddam's presidential guard, right? But it's really more of a giant corporate, like a giant armed corporation, um, as many of the armies of the Middle East are. Um, and it, the IRGC is really the player to watch here. Um, what are they going to do? These are self-funding really... government entities that own businesses, hire people. Uh, yeah, like they run, you know, like in Egypt, the military runs hotels and uh, export industries and uh, you just uh, tourist stuff. You'd be shocked, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's this revolving door. You, you serve in the army, you get promoted, and then, you know, you get a car dealership or something. Right? <laughs> Don't make me laugh. Um, I have a so cold. That's, that's how you buy loyalty in a, in a dictatorship. Wow. Um, and so it, it's, it's, it's not quite the same in Iran, but it's, but it's similar. And the IRGC has a, has a similar profile to the Egyptian military in that, in that respect. And so those are people for whom uh, a regime change is like, uh, it's life or death. You know, it's like an existential crisis for them. Um, and so it's it's really hard for me to see um, these guys just stepping aside. And I think even if they were to get rid of Khamenei, what they would do is they would they would probably just leave the shell of the, of, of uh, the Islamic Republic in place and just replace him with someone else. Um, that's another classic move that, that authoritarians use to, to placate protesters is say like, okay, your anger seems to be directed at this at this particular leader, and so we're going to get rid of him, and here's another one. Mm-hmm. Um, and he'll come into office, and he'll say, oh, we're going to make all these changes, don't worry. You know, like the way that American foreign policy elites have, have greeted every new Saudi ruler for the last, like, 40 years um, is, like, a front-page New York Times story about how he's a reformer, right? Right. Um, and yet, at the end of the day, like, nothing ever really changes. Um, and so I personally, at this point, would be shocked um, if, this, if this led to real change. In, in Iran. Let's pivot to the because we're short on time and you're going to be coming back next yeah. week to help me with my specials for KPFK on the Iowa caucuses. So when you talk about promises of reform, but nothing changes, I'm reminded of the Democratic Party, Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden, Mayor Pete, everybody except Bernie Sanders. You're the author of It's Time to Fight Dirty. The Democratic Party, they say, is now fighting dirty, but against each other. What was your takeaway from the the debates? I mean, I'm a big Bernie supporter. I'll vote for Elizabeth Warren. I think Mayor Pete. You know, my observation about Mayor Pete is he's an, a shining example of why homophobia is so dangerous, because he was in the closet for so long. And that's sad that you're forced to be in the closet. And when you watch Mayor Pete, who only recently came out of the closet, 
you realize that being in the closet teaches you to say everything but the truth. And I watch Mayor Pete, everything sounds right, everything sounds reasonable, but he's not leveling with you. And I'm not trying to be cruel, but he learned that from decades of denying who he really is. And that's what makes him such a great Republican Democrat. I mean, he certainly, you know, he's a moderate. And I, I personally find his his sort of style to be off-putting, you know. Um, to me, I mean, in a world where we're all talking about how we want authenticity, uh, he, he comes off to me as, as the least authentic character on that stage. Yeah. Um, just in terms of that sort of, like, practiced, you know, fake emotion, the right. speech, right? Right. Um, and I think that he's slipping a bit in the polls. I think if he doesn't win Iowa, um, he's he's going to go away pretty quickly. Uh, you know, I think, unfortunately... The only thing anybody's gonna remember about that debate um, is the is the is the handshake thing that happened afterwards, and the feud between Warren and Sanders. Um, you teach political and, science. Uh, you know, this is identity politics yeah. versus policy, and the Warren camp, as I see it, and again, I will vote for Elizabeth Warren. She will be the best president of my lifetime, but as many. Bernie supporters like me think she really she should not have done that because she played the the female card on somebody who wasn't worthy of it. Up until that moment after the debate, you know, I think that you could make a case. You know, I don't. We don't really know how this all went down, right? To the leak from the Warren camp or whatever it was. Um, I think that she didn't really want to get into it either. Um, and then I, you know, I, I always like to tell people when they're watching these debates that these are also, these are real people, you know, who uh, have to get up in front of like 40 million people and get yelled at. I don't know if you, I get flustered when somebody's yelling at me on the street, right? But so I think that she lost her cool and she didn't shake his hand. Um, and then, it, you know, now it's, now that's what this is all about, right? Mm -hmm. It's all about the Bernie and, and Elizabeth feud. Um, and the reality is, whichever of those two, candidates you support and personally i'm you know i'd rather have either one of them for a thousand years than, than the rest of this crowd right like the, the gap between my top two and the rest of the field is, is very large right right in terms of my preferences and so my fear is um is that the, you know they're gonna fight they're gonna fight and they're gonna split delegates um and then but you know biden's gonna is gonna walk on walk to the nomination um and so in that sense um it's not productive at the same time I, I've kind of been saying from the beginning that I, I don't think either one of them can get the nomination as long as the other one is still in the race. Okay. Um, that, that, that ultimately they are in each other's way. Um, and, uh, this, you know, the only way for that to shake out is you got to start holding some primaries. Right. And I think that the, that the responsible thing for, for them to do, you know, if, if, if Bernie comes in second in Iowa, he wins Iowa and she comes in one or two slots lower than that. And it, and it happens again in New Hampshire. I'd, I'd like to see the person who's doing worse of the two of them get get out of the race. Right. Um, how much of this is, how much do you think is orchestrated? I know that when I've been up for a job, I've had to telegraph to the person hiring me, I really, really want this job. I really, really want this job. Well, <laughs> yeah. 
and act like I want it more than I really do. And if you're Bernie Sanders and you're Elizabeth Warren, people, you know, you're getting millions and millions of dollars and people are donating. And in order to get people to donate, you have to convince them that you're going to fight to the last dog. Is it conceivable that Elizabeth Warren called Bernie up and said, look, I'm going to have to do this because people are saying I'm not fighting hard enough and I need to. I mean, could this just have been wrestling world, the World Wrestling Federation? I mean, I think that she. Do you think she really do you really think Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are so stupid that they're going to get into the gutter over a he said, she said meeting i i don't know maybe this is just to to you know to prove to her backers that she's working for it it reminds me a little bit of this like proxy warfare in the middle east actually we were mm-hmm. talking about iran um you know we're you know we kill someone and they kill someone and, and then everybody pulls back a little bit right I, I actually think this all traces back to the story that broke about um you know, the scripts that the Sanders volunteers were reading about Warren and everybody freaked out. And I feel like, I think like there were people in Warren's camp who felt like they had to hit back, you know, and then that's where this leak came from. And because they're being I, paid, know, they're being paid to hit back. She's sinking in the polls. She has all these advisors. She has professional consultants who are paid to fight back. Yeah. and the, They had to justify the, their the, salary. The, one of the critiques of her campaign so far, I think, has been that she she has not really hit back herself um, against some of these rivals. Um, and I, you know, not really thinking about Bernie so much as thinking about Biden. Honestly, um, mm-hmm. it's like nobody can figure out how to lay a glove on this guy um, without seeming mean because he's, you know, he's obviously losing it. And so you when you you, <laughs> you call right. that out. Yeah, you're going to seem cruel. And like, nobody figured. Nobody can figure out how to. Castro do it. tried it. Nomination. Castro tried it. Yeah, and he went away. Harry went tried away. it, and she went away. But it yeah. hasn't worked for anybody. Yeah. Um, and so I think that she's been taking all this fire from the center, uh, from Buttigieg and, and, and Biden, and and hasn't really didn't really have an effective sort of retort. Um, and so to prove, you know, that that she could hit back she's you know maybe her camp went after Sanders. And we don't really know what happened but it seems like her camp went after sanders um and thought I, I think not necessarily hoping that it would blow up like that after the debate you know um because i think if you're elizabeth warren um i don't think that the path to the nomination runs through like a like a blood feud with the with the sanders campaign you know yeah. um i think she knows as well as anybody um that, that he's got probably the most committed supporters out there, right? Like his um, his floor is much lower, I think, than some of the other candidates because because um, he really has inspired this um, this devotion among people that support him. Uh, and so I think you know the idea that she's gonna that she's gonna pick off those voters um, with a with a kind of with an attack like this, I just think you know this is not gonna work, uh, right? And so I, I have to think that her team, I have to think that everybody wants to climb back from that. Um, I think the way they're talking today, um, you know, they're both saying, like, we're not, you know, this is over. Like, we're not going to talk about this anymore. Right. Um, but they did energize. Over. Yeah, they did energize their bases, respectively. We're going to talk next week 
Professor David Ferris is a contributing writer to The Week. He's an associate professor of politics at Roosevelt University. He's the author of It's Time to Fight Dirty, where he says Democrats should push to pack the courts, pass a new Voting Rights Act. He's a proponent of statehood for D.C. and Puerto Rico. Go pick up It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics. That's why I first reached out to you, by the way. Uh, yeah, no, I remember. Yeah, 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 yeah. And his new book comes out this year. He just finished it. The Kids Are All Left. Let me read you a tweet that is so funny that you just sent out. <laughs> I just got polled by Bloomberg and very much enjoyed giving him the lowest possible favorability rating. That's so funny. I'm going to take credit for it. That's how funny it is. Oh, man. <laughs> So, so what a joy to be pulled by Bloomberg. Uh, I, you know, you know who's polling you because at the end, it, it seems like a normal poll. And then at the end, the guy was like, let me read you this favorable statement about Michael Bloomberg. Uh, and he was like, he's a proven job creator. He helped New York get out of the recession. <laughs> da -da 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 -da. You know, he's like, so what is your, so he asked me first, he's like, what's your favorite, you know, one to five on all these candidates. Um, and then he read me this statement. Um, and I was like, what do you think about Michael Bloomberg now? And I was like, still a one, man. Sorry. <laughs> You're not fooling me. So much. <laughs> He's not fooling anybody. So great. Thank you uh, so much. I'm so glad you're doing the show next week. Can you stay on the line? What is your, it's David M. Farris at Twitter, at David M. F. A. R. I. S. And everybody should, right. yep. everybody should follow the professor over at Twitter. Stay on the line for one quick second, sir. Yeah, sure. Thank sir. you. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. Welcome back. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn is with us, and we were talking about impeachment earlier in the show, and Lev Parnas. Do you have any comments on the impeachment managers? I was kind of disappointed to see that Ted Lieu is not one of them. The managers are Adam Schiff, Gerald Nadler, Zoe Lofgren, Hakeem Jeffries, Val B. Demings, Jason Crow, and Sylvia R. Garcia. I know that Howie Klein is not a fan of Hakeem Jeffries, wasn't a fan of Adam Schiff's until recently. Mm -hmm. Zoe Lofgren has worked on all three impeachments. I guess she... Yes, she has. Yeah. And Jason Crow and Sylvia Garcia are freshman Congress people. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't terribly disappointed. I, I was surprised that Jamie Raskin, who used to be my congressman when I lived in the state of Maryland, actually had a meaningful representation in Congress, was not, along with 700,000 other people who live here, denied effectively a vote uh, by our representative, Eleanor Holmes Norton. But I thought Jamie, it's a, he's a very bright constitutional scholar. I think he did a terrific job during the impeachment. Former Nader's Raider? Former Nader's Raider? He was a former Nader's Raider. We have and, we, in uh, fact, we have his sister on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour this weekend. She is okay. a former governor of the Federal Reserve. Very interesting. Yeah. I, I frankly had forgotten that. But, um, 
Yeah, I was a little surprised that he wasn't there because I think he is very, very effective, uh, and uh, he just really, really knows constitutional law. But you know, it is what it is, and I don't think I think these people are fine. I think they will do as well as they can do uh, in the event that the Senate decides to take what they say seriously. Uh, these are good people to present the case. The State of the Union is February 4th. President Trump has been invited to deliver it. The Iowa caucuses are February 3rd. Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Amy Klobuchar cannot campaign. They They have been sworn in as jurors. Are you worried that Biden and Buttigieg will have a distinct advantage in New Hampshire and Iowa? Elizabeth Warren also sworn in. She can't campaign. Does this mean that Biden and Buttigieg could win Iowa and New Hampshire? And do you think the timing of the impeachment by Nancy Pelosi was to assist Joe Biden? No, I don't really believe that. I, I think that it will hurt that they can't campaign. I was in Iowa four years ago at this time. I mean, the, the intensity of these last couple of weeks is quite extraordinary. But I think that the biggest damage done was done in the last debate when, for some inexplicable reason, uh, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders didn't call each other up before the debate and say, uh, we have this obvious difference of opinion about what I did say or didn't say about women and the, your ability to become president of the United States in this time. We should come up with an answer that is satisfactory to both of us, makes it appear that we just had a different opinion about what might have been said in our private meeting. The fact that they didn't do that has led to what I think is a truly serious problem, and that is a splintering, not just a splintering of progressive votes in the Democratic Party, but more intensely uh, name-calling and hostility that wasn't necessary unless unless you believe, and I must say I'm inclined to believe this, that Elizabeth Warren decided she wanted to throw a monkey wrench into this. She would not have talked. She wasn't looking for a talking point for both sides. Because I must say, I cannot believe that someone who has been around Washington and been on the debate stage and on television as much as Elizabeth Warren has didn't uh, remember to turn off her microphone. I kind of think that the you lie, you called me a liar on national television was exactly what she intended to have Absolutely. heard. I think the consultants have taken over Elizabeth Warren's campaign. We're talking about a multi-million dollar project. You know, Act Blue has raised a billion dollars for these presidential candidates. A billion dollars so far. That's right. People are giving money to these candidates, and they want results. She has gravitated to the the consultant class, the, the, the wise men and women of Harvard and the people who have handled other campaigns before, and they're sinking in the polls. You know, Elizabeth Warren is not doing well. Nope. And she's afraid 
that these turncoats, because all these consultants, once she loses, are going to write books, they're going to give interviews, that she didn't have the fire in the belly. And she got frightened, I think, by her consultants and decided to pick a fight with Bernie. She probably even called Bernie and told him what was going on. And I think it was wrestling. I think she was answering to her consultants to to prove to the donors that she wants the job by any means necessary. Uh Yeah, I mean, I, I, that's a bit too conspiratorial for me. I don't believe that she called Bernie and said, this is what I'm going to do, or, hey, I've decided to remember something from a couple of years ago that you said to me. It's too I don't stupid. Think she had any- it's too stupid. I, I just can't believe that somebody as smart as Elizabeth Warren would uh, play that card. No, but I mean, if if you're desperate, you play that card. But I, I, I wanted to think, I really wanted to think, because I do have an enormous amount. I did until the other day, and I still have some reservoir of, of sense that she is a very bright, very committed person. But she, her campaign is faltering. And, you know, it's not unusual. I, I can easily imagine a Bernie Sanders or anybody else having a conversation where you say, you know, look at what they did to Hillary Clinton. Look at the fact that the press never was responsible in their treatment of Hillary Clinton and her policies. And even recently, when the Justice Department, this Justice Department, clears Hillary Clinton of any possible wrongdoing during her campaign, it's almost as if it didn't happen. There's very little reporting of it. It's as if it was a non-issue, but it's a big deal. And I can see somebody said, and I have a lot of my, my lefty feminist friends that I've known for 20 and 30 years who say in this campaign, women are not being treated fairly by the media. Mm-hmm. They don't. They aren't. So right. I can see Bernie Sanders saying, you know, Elizabeth, it's going to be so much more difficult for you to win in this climate. Right. I can see that happening. That's factually correct. That's not a scandal. Well, when you talk about conspiracies, let me just bring up a story that came over the transom. Devin Nunes, who is the minority leader of the House Intelligence Committee, he was the majority leader at one time, and he was busy running up to the White House to give them information as to what the House Intelligence Committee was finding. Well, one of the things we've discovered is that Devin Nunes spoke at least four times with Lev Parnas, while he was investigating, while Devin Nunes and the House Intelligence Committee was investigating the uh, Russia scandal in Ukraine, Devin Nunes was trying to get Lev Parnas to make Ukraine dig up dirt on Joe Biden and his son. And there are call sheets proving this. And Devin Nunes said, that's not true. I don't remember that. And late last night, Devin Nunes said, yes, as a matter of fact, he did talk to Lev Parnas and there was talk about digging up dirt. Well, that's a conspiracy. You know, I, I don't like of conspiracies. I don't like conspiracies. But these people in D.C., they're craving 
wires. So, well, I, and the Craven wires about things that can be proven to be false. Mm-hmm. So the pictures of of Nunez and Parnas, the pictures of Donald Trump. You know, he said, you know, he said even today, uh, I, I really don't know this guy. I mean, I know he said there's a photograph, but I, do, you know, I take photographs with a lot of people. It's kind of like Kellyanne, Kellyanne mm-hmm. uh, Conway, uh, who has said repeatedly uh, she doesn't know him. And then, of course, within the last 24 hours, a photograph uh, surfaced of she and Parnas both smiling at the camera. And I, I'm just waiting for her to be interviewed yet again on CNN and say, you know, there was that picture, but so many people want pictures with me. The men think I'm hot. The women want to be me. Right. That's why there's so many pictures. And that is bullshit. Yes. And watch her line. Technicality. Yeah. I mean, Reverend, please. Yeah. Uh, last thought about the ambassador to the former ambassador to Ukraine. I, I always have trouble pronouncing it. Yanukov, uh, anyway, uh, Ivanovich. Yvon, Yvonovich. So this guy, Robert Hyde, <clears throat> <laughs> he's a piece of work, isn't he? I, well, I would have said shit, but you, you're a reverend and I can't yeah, say that. I, don't say that. I only say that once. Can you imagine being a United States ambassador? And you discover that you're being spied upon by this rogue element of the Trump administration. And there's talk of rubbing you out. Now, Lev Parnas texts back LOL, but, you know, I don't joke. You, I don't make jokes like that, about rubbing not. somebody out. Of course and, not. And now you're... you're uh, a contributor to the Trump campaign, you're running for Congress in Connecticut, and and you're talking about rubbing out a, a Ukrainian ambassador. Why the Robert Hyde is the guy's? Why isn't he being arrested for that? Well, he uh, apparently his office and house were visited just hours ago by the FBI. But this is a guy, you know, he's running for Congress. And in the famous uh, thing that he says was just kind of a joke, he concludes that little message with this sentence. Schiff is a desperate turd. Mm. Who talks like that if you're running for Congress? I would. Well, yeah, you, but you are not running for Congress. And because if you said that, they would go, you're not going to get away with it. But who uses the word? Who talks about Tulsi Gabbard of Congress as a turd? Well, we've had Tulsi Gabbard on this show being, you know, caught saying the F word. So it's, and, 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 uh, Beto using filthy language. So, I mean, I, I, even a reverend, I, I have a reverend on the show who said bullshit. <laughs> yeah, I learned that from Rick Santorum. He was asked once by uh, about something that was published in the New York Times, and he said, uh, that's bullshit. And therefore, that's when I first learned the word. I looked it up, and uh, oh. now I occasionally use it. Yeah, but I think it's different. When by the way, Rick again, Santorum won the Iowa caucus in 2012. 
So that's he how- did, in fact, win it. Yeah. But, but he didn't get credit for winning it, and he didn't get the kind of financial boost that he would have gotten when they recounted, and he turned out to be the winner. Yeah, was a- Iowa may not be as important as we think it is. It helped Jimmy Carter and certainly yep. Obama, but it's not necessarily the uh, the end all. I think it's South Carolina and Anyway, let's let's move on. Unless you, I interrupted you, did you want to say no, something? No, no. I just that I, I I do think when Tulsi Gabbard uses a bad word or uh, other people that you just mentioned, it's not to refer to someone as a desperate turd. I'm sorry, but that's just beneath the dignity of anybody. That's not an expletive that just happens to come out in a peak of anger. That's a calculated stupid thing to say and this guy Hyde as I said he's being uh, his stuff is being examined by the FBI as we speak and I would like to think that his effort to become the congressman from I believe the 5th district of Connecticut will be short lived Okay, very quickly speaking of conspiracy theories I'll just need a yes or no answer they have found that Jeffrey Epstein's capillaries in his eyeballs had burst after he died and certain pathologists believe that suggests he was strangled and did not hang himself so do you think jeffrey epstein was was he murdered that was a little little, uh, electronic device telling me something Right. Which I resent because they shouldn't talk to me. Okay. Go ahead. Do, do you think Jeffrey Epstein hanged himself or do you think he was murdered? Why did the surveillance video disappear? Why was nobody keeping an eye on him after he tried to commit suicide once? No, I believe he was murdered. You do? I, yes, absolutely. Because all of the evidence, not only what you mentioned, but the idea that this guy all of a sudden is going to succeed, he's he's so upset he's going to kill himself, uh, I just, I don't buy it. There's too many powerful people, both in this country and, of course, in England as well, that would love, love never to hear from him, never to have him testify about the relationship that he had with them, whether it's Prince Andrew, whether it's Clinton, whether it's anybody else. I think he was hit. I really do. And Bill Barr, this this is under the purview of Bill Barr, the Attorney General. Where, Where is the Attorney General when... The ex-Ukrainian ambassador's life is being threatened. Where is the attorney general when Jeffrey Epstein dies in his custody? Well, he's nowhere in either of those cases. I do think it's about time that Ambassador Ivanovich get protection even here because although she's out of ukraine and of course if this if this language in the notes suggested a hit physically a hit on her when she was in ukraine she's not there now but she just walks around i mean i my wife and i were at a club a couple weekends ago and the ambassador walks in just with a couple of her friends nobody bothers her people bowed to her you know they went up and kind of kowtowed to her 
but because they respect her, but she's she's not under any and I believe there are enough nuts in this country. They're several of whom were arrested uh, just today, who are on their way to the state of Virginia to protest these very modest regulations on on guns that are being considered by the Virginia legislature, and three of them with neo-Nazi ties have been arrested just today. So the nuts are out there. They're very violent people. They think they're right, and they have the weapons to prove it. And what we saw in Charlottesville could easily be replicated, including against somebody like the ambassador. I believe, I believe Alec, wasn't Alexander Vindman, he was with the National Security Council, he testified yeah. about what he heard on the call. And the army had to provide protection for him and his family after the testimony. That is correct. This is serious stuff. And, uh, there are a lot of people on America's fringes who aren't just trolling on the internet. They're prepared to do what it takes to take out the people that they consider to be the main enemies of truth, justice, and their American way. I was watching Rachel Maddow, and I turned to a friend and said, we have to indict the entire Republican Party. (laughs) I think that they are so dirty, and they have been bought by Putin. Don't you think that they're just taking their marching orders from Russia? I don't, I'm not sure that I believe that. I, I think, think Russia, that they, I think the ex-KGB agents yeah. have enough compromise on Lindsey Graham and Mitch McConnell and Mike Pence. I think they've been spying on the Republican Party and they've delivered manila envelopes containing compromising photographs or, or Xerox copies of bank statements. And it doesn't have to come out from Russia. You know, it can go through WikiLeaks. Sure. Ex-KGB agents can give it to the New York Times. You know, the New York Times has a Dropbox. So does the Washington Post. Of course. So, so does the Intercept. And the Intercept is going to take it. doesn't matter that it's coming from an ex-KGB agent. I think Lindsey Graham probably would love to turn on Donald Trump. But he can't. No, but I think with Lindsey Graham and Mitch McConnell, it's very hard for me to come up with any explanation aside from the fact that they are seriously compromised. But when you start talking about the entirety of the Republican Party, this is where, uh, with all due respect to your conspiratorial views, I think that's going a bridge too far. I don't think that the average person who is running as a Republican in safe districts in the South, in Florida, in upstate New York, I don't think they need to get their marching orders directly or indirectly from Russia. They, they're they just people with an ideological bent that happens to be conveniently uh, in line, perhaps, with what Russia wants. But I, I don't see that as, as something where you can find a smoking gun or a, a smoking cigarette that connects Russia with the average Republican member of Congress. I well, don't believe well, it. Let me just push back on this for a second. Sure. Because... You know, Devin Nunes 
it's hard to believe that a guy who ran the House Intelligence Committee, <laughs> this is Devin Nunes, yep. who now the minority leader of the House Intelligence Committee, up until 2019 was running it. We have now discovered that he has admitted, he's admitted to talking to Lev Parnas about digging up dirt in Ukraine about Hunter Biden. That's right. That is, I mean, that's incredible. And so these are compromised people with or without Russia. When the Russians tempt them with money, some of them will take it, some of them won't. They will then tempt them with women. Some of them will take it, Lindsey Graham won't. They, their money goes into the NRA. We've learned that Wayne LaPierre and the NRA, they're, they're being funded and it's against the law, but they're, they're taking laundered money from the NRA. Well, that's compromise. In other words, it's not just we own you with money. It's also we have something on you. That's why Michael Flynn had a step down, because the, sure. the crime wasn't that he talked to the Russian ambassador and was doing back-channel negotiations before uh, they took office. The crime was that, no, you're now susceptible to getting bribed. They, mm-hmm. they had compromise on you. That's, that's why uh, Yates, the acting attorney general, came in and said, we have a problem. Of course. But I mean, but Nunes, of course, I mean, there's so many connections directly there. The NRA has certainly lots of explaining to do about its sources of money and its connections to Russia. But again, I I just think the average person uh, whose names we don't see, they never mean on television, they're in very safe districts. I don't think that they, I think there's a certain integrity within the Republican Party uh, that draws a line at the kind of compromise of themselves and their positions that you just described about Nunes and Lindsey Graham and Mitch McConnell, all of which I think there's plenty of evidence that something so bizarre has happened. In Nunes's case, so directly connecting him to what's going on in Russia that, uh, yeah, that's corruption. It smells like corruption, it walks like corruption, and it probably is. But I think the whole of the Republican Party, you are painting with a brush that is, even by my standards, too broad and too encompassing. Uh, we'll we'll and move too on. Red. We'll move on and you'll get the last word. Ralph Nader. This is the way Washington works. Ralph Nader was investigating GM. He had proof. As a, as a young journalist and attorney, he had proof that GM knew that their cars turned over, that people died, and they could fix it, but they didn't. He was investigating GM, so what did GM do? They hired private agents to get compromise on Ralph Nader. They began to spy on Ralph Nader. They sent prostitutes to him. It was discovered. I think it was Senator Ribicoff who went public with it. Sure. Later, Ralph settled. I think he got six hundred thousand dollars 
from GM, which he then used to seed Nader's Raiders. Sure. Getting compromat on people didn't start with Vladimir Putin. And there are many ways to bend somebody to your will. I mean, if I want the Reverend Barry W. Lynn to do my bidding, mm-hmm. I can I can say, here's some money, and then you say, I'm not going to take it. And I go, oh, okay, good. And I say, <laughs> okay, he's not taking the money. Investigate him. See what you can find on him. So we find we find something. We div- we deliver to you in a manila envelope and say it would be a shame if your wife and children found out about mm-hmm. this. Oh, we can't find that about the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. <laughs> so there's there's nothing dirty on him. There's no there's no uh, he won't take a bribe. But we still need him to do our bidding. Let's set him up. Yep. Let's set him up. That's I I think that's happening more than we realize. I think that's how you explain Mitch McConnell, Lindsey Graham. We knew that Dana Rohrbacker in California, the congressman, was on salary. I think Kevin McCarthy said that about him, right? Yes, he did. But, you know, who represents the third district in Alabama? I mean, I don't know. But, I, I mean, random people don't, I don't believe, need to be compromised in the way that you describe. They don't need to be given money. They don't need photographs. They don't need to be lured by a hooker. This, I have no doubt that it happens, and no doubt that it happens in the corporate world as well. Wasn't, but what, didn't, uh, there's some integrity to it, people who are Republicans. Wasn't Parnas arrested because he was trying to funnel illegal campaign contributions to sessions in Texas to absolutely to legalize pot and put pressure on uh, the Ukrainian ambassador. I mean, yeah, I don't know. But that, if there's a flaw in the theory that the Parnas interviews will make a big difference, it's because Parnas is not the kind of guy you want to take care of your grandchild as a babysitter. He just isn't. <laughs> he's not a man. He's not a pure. He may be pure and he's not pure in heart. He's a man who is. And of course, this is another line of attack against him. He's trying to avoid jail time right. for criminal activity. And he is willing to say things. And I can tell you that what he's been saying just in on these television interviews is going to be helpful. It's the kind of thing that prosecutors look at to determine whether they're going to cut somebody a break, not necessarily drop charges. And so there is that kernel of doubt that's being uh, created uh, by Kevin McCarthy in particular today that says the guy just wants to get out of a serious criminal investigation. And a lot of people will say, that's a colorable answer. I can believe that. And they'll believe it, and then it'll be echoed on Fox News, it'll be echoed on the Drudge Report, and people will start to believe it must be true. I've heard it so many times that he's just trying to avoid criminal prosecution at a high level or serious level. Uh, So maybe he's making the stuff up. You know how this works. Yeah. We're almost out of time. Talk to me about the ERA. 
Well, the Equal Rights Amendment uh, passed. Uh, they've been trying to pass something like it for a 100 years in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Now that the Democrats have taken over both houses of the Virginia legislature, uh, it is it, it is being ratified there. Uh, it will be the 38th state. And now the question is, uh, I think we talked about this six months ago, now there will be claims that because the ratification by sufficient number of states did not occur within the period initially included in the resolution of the Equal Rights Amendment before it's sent out to the states for ratification, that these are void so that what happened the other day in Virginia is not relevant. It is not authoritative. You have to start over again, say these people. And although but it's does a Virginia kind of put them over the idea. T- does Virginia put them over the top? I, I think it does. There may be one. So, well, see, there's already, it's very complicated because there, there have been attacks already on some of the states that did ratify it long before this week and where the calls into question whether those are, are good. And you need two thirds uh, of the states to ratify. Yeah, right. Yeah. But first, but, uh, can you, okay, go ahead. No, but I mean, it's, but the, these are, these are the ideas that are, they're kind of fringe ideas. These are the uh, ideas that the late Phyllis Schlafly, who did such a number on destroying the Equal Rights Amendment as it was picking up sp- uh, speed. And she was a true believer that the, it was a terrible idea and that this extension of the time for ratification was itself a violation of the Constitution. But these fringe ideas are now the ideas in a vast number of federal courts, uh, possibly a near majority of the United States Supreme Court. So it's not to be... They inject the ERA because it's, it enforces a woman's right to abortion or it implies a woman's right to abortion, and they're worried about bathrooms once again. Yes, they are. What else are they, what are they worried about? They're worried that women will go to the men's bathroom. And men will go to the women's bathroom and think of your daughter. That's, that's the kind of argument Phyllis used. I did know Phyllis pretty well. They're making a movie about the life of Phyllis Schlafly. Yeah. For an, an, for another conversation. Let's wrap up. You're a big fan of the movies. We're not going to have you next week because you're going to be in Los Angeles. You're doing some right. screen tests, I believe. Yes, I'm, I'm trying out. I mean, you're trying out for uh, Vivid Entertainment, I believe. Yeah, I'm, uh, there's a horror movie I'm, I'm thinking of being in. I, I, um, I, I don't think Vivid makes horror films. I think they make horror films. They do them. They yeah. do, in fact, that make those out there. That's what I've heard. It's it's, it's pornography. Yeah. It's well. No, I think I think most of your listeners understood that what a horror film was. I oh, think, you I made the joke, and I was. I, I didn't have to explain it. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, I will be out there, but I I, I think Eddie Murphy, uh, who did this magnificent movie called My Name Is Dolomite, was absolutely robbed. I think he Adam Sandler. You know, I, hmm? Adam Sandler. 
was right. and Adam Sandler and Uncut Gems, I think those are both fine performances. Whether you like the overall movie, I mean, I think Uncut Gems maybe uh, you could say wasn't. But my biggest problem, David, with this, the the idea of a best picture, for example, uh, how do you compare? What's good about Little Women with what's good about Joker? I mean, it's like looking at uh, a piece of bread and a mango and saying, which is better? By what standard do you do that? With cinematography, that's a, a specific form of production. With direction, you don't even have to be an auteur to believe that directors have an amazing influence over films. But when you get to best animated feature and you compare these kind of obscure, um, wonderful animations with Toy Story 4, you're just comparing apples to zebras. Well, I resent that. the Reverend, I, didn't do that. I agree with you 100%. And I watched the debate Tuesday night, and I said... Amy Klobuchar, you know, how do you pick one of, they're all so great, you know, Tom Steyer and Joe Biden, it's unfair, they're all so good. How can you pick, they all, each one of them has their own individual merit. Let them all be president. That's a wonderful idea. You know, when I, if I happen to run into any muckety mucks out in Los Angeles, I will tell them to call you about this very idea. Let everyone be president. And maybe, maybe they want to make a movie about it. Can you imagine a movie, David Feldman in a movie, the premise of which is he convinces the people of the United States to elect a triumvirate seven different people a triumvirate seven I was going to seven the Supreme Court what? yeah that's nine but well. seven seven people to be president of the United States it's a you know there was, remember the Kevin Costner film where he's the one guy who will cast the vote to determine who the president is remember that yeah Nathan Lane was in that Nathan Lane was in it yeah. I forget who we voted for, but the point is, see, that's a kind of political science fiction. I used to read them vigorously back in the 60s. I loved political science fiction. Fletcher Knebel. Fletcher Knebel. And, uh, and I was once interviewing um, uh James Elroy, who's actually a notoriously difficult guy to interview, and he was having a uh, a breakfast somewhere out in Virginia, and he was on the phone with me, and he um, he said, you know, you know, Elroy doesn't have a computer, doesn't have a television set, and he said, you know, I I heard people just over over breakfast talking about a black man who's apparently the president of the United States. And I said, I'm sure he was talking about The Man by Irving Wallace. And Elroy said, that's the greatest line I've heard on my entire book tour. And I never had trouble getting him to come on my shows because of that one hint back to an obscure novel about the destruction of everybody in the administration except the agriculture secretary who I, happened to be black you know i i read that book from cover yeah. to cover and james earl jones was fantastic in it 
I love that book. And uh, I just remember <laughs> finishing that book, putting it down, thinking, wow, James Earl Jones is a fantastic, fantastic actor. I'm a good reader. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn is an author, a lawyer, and a reverend. And you can follow him on Twitter by going to the handle Barry W. Lynn. We won't have you next week, but we'll talk to you the week after, sir. Can you stay on the line? Absolutely. Thank you. Let's go to New Hampshire, where citizen David Bacon is standing by. We have a lot of stuff to get to. We have to keep it short. I don't have time to tell you what I think of you, David Bacon. You know, I'm really disappointed I don't get to hear your uh, banter. I don't have time. So what do you have for us? Right. I understand you have a sit-down with Tulsi Gabbard, an exclusive interview with Tulsi Gabbard. Tonight, so, you know, for your viewers, listeners, yesterday, last night, so this is super fresh, this was down in Manchester, and yeah, I got to spend about six minutes just talking to her and asking her questions about uh, stuff, and you'll hear. Okay, this is David Bacon talking with Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard. We don't have time, suffice to say, that I loathe David Bacon. I think he's contemptible, and I don't trust him, but there's no time this is David Bacon talking with Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard. How's my life? Yeah. It's pretty good. good. I mean, you know, some stuff is tough, but, you know, yeah, that's true with everyone. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, wow, thanks for taking uh, some time to talk to me, sure. Tulsi. I've seen you uh, so many times. Um, I just have a couple of little... Okay. <laughs> that's a lot. No, well, this is from the... No, no, no. This is from the... Oh, okay. This, this All is right. the talk and the question, right. so okay. I have notes and stuff. Okay. No. Oh, my God. No, 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 no. I wouldn't take that much. Here's question one of no, 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 All right. No. All right. Okay. So, um, so, like, clearly with you, it seems like your number one issue is ending foreign wars, I would I would say. I mean... It that, is It is ending the wasteful, sorry, stupid yes. wars right. that have and continue to drain resources and lives from our country. Right. And I love the message, and I know you get a lot of uh, a lot of people also, uh, especially obviously the veterans and stuff, who know so much more about that yeah. than I do. Um, what would you think, like, your, like, number two or number three issue would be, like, important for this? Uh, look, health care is a serious issue. Right. It's impacting so many Americans. Right. Protecting our environment is right. one that I'm deeply, deeply concerned about. Right. Um, dedicating the resources that we need to infrastructure, including clean water and protecting our environment, is right. critical. Right. There are so many different issues. I find it hard to say, well, here's one, two, three, and right, four. Right, right, right. Sure, sure, sure. And that, you know, this is more important than that because every one of these issues has a very direct impact on all of our lives. Right. And I think we've got to be able to do more than one thing at a time. The reason why I make... Uh, the point that foreign policy is domestic policy is because unless we deal with that, we will never have the resources we need right. to address the needs of everything else. Right, and it makes it makes so much sense. Yeah. Let's quit wasting the money on freaking weapons and killing and hurting people, and let's invest that money here. Right. Yes, and then you right. and you've talked about that what you could do with that money, that's and that's right. a lot of stuff. Yeah, I'm not, and this is partially my fault for not, but 
There's too many candidates. It's, it's freaking crazy. What is your healthcare policy? Like single payer plus is what okay. it's called, and it's essentially a uh, single payer plan that we all pay into. Every single American is guaranteed uh, quality healthcare through that plan. Mm-hmm. Also allowing those, if you choose to buy into private insurance or if there's nonprofit insurance, supplementary insurance, or employer-sponsored insurance, if that's what you want, obviously and you have the freedom and choice to do so. So those supplemental things, what would like what like these are the details, honestly, that I can I can tell you. Well, here is my 500-page plan on healthcare. Right, right, right. But I would be lying to you to say that that would be. Um, what would be enacted into law because as we all know this is where the the details get worked out between the executive and congress right, right i think right, it's right. most important as the president commander in chief to come in and know what our objective is right. and to then be able to work with congressional leaders to be able to hammer out exactly what those details right. are so that's your starting point i think point the distinction then. between me and the other candidates running for president and you have some who are saying, well, let's just improve the Affordable Care Act. Right. And on the other end, you have some saying it's single-payer and nothing else, and mm-hmm. we have to eliminate private insurance. Mm-hmm. My approach, I think, is a more balanced one mm-hmm. that ensures no one is left behind, that everyone is able to get the quality health care that they need. We as a country pay less for that care than we are currently while mm-hmm. increasing people's ability to get the care they need while still ensuring that if... She doesn't have a health care plan. People want that private option or supplementary option. Obviously, they will have the opportunity to do that if they choose. Right. It's okay. That's just a lie. I know we're short on time. But the minute they say there's more though. Right, the minute they say choice and choose, it means she wants to keep the private health insurance companies in business. Right. The health insurance companies, the insurance companies, the only way they're the only reason they're in business is to deny people care. That's their business model. So as long as we keep them part of it, it seems like the prices will just keep going up. Is there a way I, to cap that stuff? I disagree with or? that because we've seen how it works in other countries like Australia, mm-hmm. where uh, that that's the model that I've been looking at and saying, hey, let's take the base of that model and see how we can best apply it here. Right. Because they have consistently ranked higher than we have in uh, lower cost of what they're paying in to provide that care, as well as better quality outcomes right, for right, their people. Right. The reality is that every other developed country in the world that has some form of universal health care, whether it's single payer or some other form, they all have some presence of private insurance. Who is talking about Australia? There's no private insurance in Great Britain. There's no real private insurance in Canada. There is private insurance in Germany. In fact, it's all private insurance, but it's nonprofit and highly regulated. Who talks about Australia as the gold standard of health care? Yeah, you got me off guard there. I don't know anything about Australian health care. What? I don't know anything about Australia's health care. Yeah, I'm, sure I'm sure it's a good – I'm sure they – do it very well down there, but that's an outlier, and there's a lot of great things about Australia, and probably they're... Well, they got rid of guns amazingly well. I know that. And private health insurance is a different country. All right, let's get back to it. Good job. Uh, so, 
to say that it can't be done, I think, is impo- is, is just not accurate. Right. For one more quick question. Okay. Um, oh, yeah, well, this is going to be just a goofy question. I I don't know if you. I, I think I don't know if it was your last one or the one before. There was a whole bunch of international students from the NYU. NYU do. Yeah. Did they get to ask you questions? And did, did you see Frank Luntz? And did he ask a question? Or actually, I actually had a chance to visit with them earlier in the day. Okay, right. Uh, Frank Luntz actually reached out and said, hey, can I bring my students right, by? Right. We sent them out. They went canvassing. They went knocking on doors. Oh, wow. So we had a chance to, to engage a little bit more earlier in the day. Right. Uh, one of them asked a question at the town hall. Right. And then they're going to test your your message as they did with the other people who they saw at focus groups. Like after the fact. See, I didn't know that. And, then the, and because they're most, were, they're most concerned about that six percent of people that flipped the, right. to Obama and then when I, exactly. what I think we have to grab all the freaking people who don't vote because that's an even larger group but I know you probably also agree with their six well, percent because think, you're I trying to get both sides a little bit why that's their calculus is they know that it's really really hard to convince people who don't vote to vote yeah so yeah, they're yeah. going for the lower the people hanging always, fruit yes, people exactly. who are actually regular voters right but who are, are going to be that and that would certainly flip New Hampshire because yeah. it was so close last time yeah. okay cool. that's thank you yeah and thank then you. Austin, thank you so much thank for your time you. I, 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 I love Great job, David Bacon, with his exclusive interview with Tulsi Gabbard. Okay, I don't have time to tell you how threatened I am by that and uh, how much I hate you. And Dave, I'm still here. I'm not with NHPR, so no, you have nothing to worry oh, about. Okay, okay. what do you have next? <clears throat> okay, so we're going to go back in time to, this is going to be uh, Patrick, uh, or uh, Deval Patrick, and this is going to be the gaggle in the at, after the Dover event. This is January 10. Um, the former governor so of Massachusetts, a... the executive right. with Bain hey. Capital, Deval Patrick. Yep. He worked for Texaco. Yes. Yeah. And I'm going to get the last question in. Okay. You have a, you get a question in? Yeah, I talked to him at this one, and then later on we'll okay. have another gaggle with him the same day, and I'll get a question in there, too. Yeah. Here we go. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I was just yeah they're, they're closing, so we get it. Oh, yeah, we have the, the big agreement. He's been in this, you know, as, as you and I know, for about two months. Mm-hmm. Um, we started in California. You're all the way here. You've been in New Hampshire a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, the polls are showing that you're less than 1%. Mm-hmm. Like, does it ever cross your mind that maybe this isn't a good idea? No, because the polls uh, the polls that matter are the polls on election day. Um, we're building fast. We're building well. And we're building close to the ground and to people. Um, and I know from uh, previous experience to be skeptical of polls, and I'm skeptical of polls right now. So don't keep insinuating that I need to do something other than what we're doing, which is build um, by introducing ourselves uh, to people, um, uh, person by post- person, voter by voter, whether they are activists and answer um, uh, uh, polling phone calls, or whether they are folks who are just feeling like so many, uh, unseen and unheard, and need to be invited back uh, uh, into. Yes, let's listen to a guy who's in private equity. What a piece of... I know, I know. ...politics and civic life. Well, though, do, you, do you feel like you have a legitimate shot at winning? I do. I do. Just to follow up on Laura's question, uh, are you willing, given your late entry, to accept a sort of late entrant handicap when the vote is tallied and to consider, say, a fourth or a fifth place finish uh, to be a, a victory of sorts? Or are you not thinking that way? That's a, well, you know, that's an impossible question to ask someone as competitive as me, Adam. I mean, I want to win. And, uh, and I think we can. I think uh, uh, the challenge is to... Um, He's competitive. That means he wants oh, yeah, to win. Totally. He wants to win. 
That's who Amy he's Klobuchar kind, is. Though. He's a very kind man. Yeah, he's private equity is not kind. He's competitive, which means no, he no, wants no, no, to no, no. Win. I'm just saying in person. He's very yeah, yeah, polite. Yeah, yeah, polite yeah, is a better word. Yeah, Maybe he's very polite. polite. He wants to win for himself, not for America. He, reintroduce myself or introduce myself as the case may be to uh, uh, to voters and make them understand that it is not uh, pundits and pollsters who decide what the outcome is uh, and will be it's they they get to make the decision and so when I meet folks who say they haven't made their made up their minds I say well listen I'm not late to you Governor, we're hearing a lot of the candidates say they want the DNC to change the debate regulations and how you can get in. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think you mean for for the for the for next this, one or, the, or the just next going one the forward. Previous ones, they're just saying it's. Um, I, th- I think the I think the rules are well intended, um, but I don't think that uh, not just the rules for for being on the stage, but the format. Um, hasn't really worked as well as hoped to uh, as a as a means of communicating with voters. And, uh, and so I hope that for, um, probably it's unrealistic for, uh, for the Tuesday uh, debate, but, f- but for the ones um, after that, that the DNC will reconsider the rules. Now, I've also heard all of the candidates say the rules should be reconsidered, and I've heard that some of the cam- campaigns have then said to the DNC behind closed doors, don't you dare, <laughs> because they don't want uh, actual, actually, uh, more exposure from some of the candidates who aren't on the stage uh, right now. That happens in politics. Hey, during the uh, event, there was talk about the Citizens United case mm-hmm. and maybe amending the uh, Constitution to mm-hmm. do that. Another way, of course, is with another uh, case to go through the uh, jury system. Mm-hmm. The Republicans seem to like really know how to uh, get their voters uh, pumped up about changing the judges and that kind of stuff and electing that sort of thing. Should the Democrats try something like that well, rather listen, than... I, I think that uh, we have to do more than one thing, but you are right that uh, uh, Republican leadership um, have been much more effective over time uh, at, uh, at focusing on the composition of courts up and down, right. uh, uh, the, uh, uh, up and down the system. And... Um, uh, and, and I think do, we have to be more intentional about that going forward. Right. And Mitch McConnell has really just stopped everything. Mm. Thank you for your time. Thanks, everybody. All right. David Bacon. Very good. Let's go to clip number two. I don't have time to tell you how much I hate you. Clip number two. Uh, okay. So clip number two. So uh, Patrick, there was all these kids uh, at that at that, at that uh Patrick event, and so they they got to talk to him at a coffee house right across the street. So I just went with them, and uh, it's just me and um, there's a there's a reporter, or there's a guy from like C-SPAN or something. So this is going to be in a coffee house, and so I've edited this down. This is going to be are one person. Frank Luntz, right? Say again. These are Frank Luntz's students. This is not Frank Luntz's students. No, that's going to be later. Okay, this so- is a different group of students. They're from Tisch College. Um, and this is going to be one w- young lady, uh, Jaina Kaplan. She's going to a- ask a couple questions. And I'm going to play my first, like, sound effect. This is going to be, you're going to set the scene as the people enter the coffee house. You're going to hear the squeaky door and the coffee noise, okay. and okay. then they'll, you'll get her questions. So. Okay, Tisch College, sponsored by Tisch. They made all their money in tobacco. The name Tish should always be associated with emphysema and lung cancer. These are students from Tish College. I love how you know that stuff, like like that quick, Dave. Well, 
That was, that's amazing. You would have done so good with uh, Tulsi, you know, I, but I did my best. You're sucking up to me, but you've still let me down. Okay. In no way have I let you down. By doing as good a job as this. That lets you down. Yeah. Why make, play? I'm disappointed with you trying to make my show better. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. I apologize. It's a little too ambitious, quite frankly. It's a little too <laughs> good. Okay. All right. This is clip two. Clip two. All right, Fellini, we can get right to the questions. Um, so back to the issue of voting age, just because we're all young people, I think that's something that's very close to our hearts right now. So where I'm from, the Bay Area, there's a city, I forget if it was Berkeley or Albany, but one of them lowered the voting age for school board elections to 16, given that that's something that very, very directly impacts 16-year-olds. I think it was Medford, Massachusetts. Was it Brooklyn? It started in Medford. But given that there's already gradation in terms of who gets to do what when, like 21 for drinking, 25 for a lot of other things, 18 for other things, etc. Um, do you believe that that's something that's viable in order to get young people involved in a way that doesn't necessarily invoke the same slippery slope argument? It could, you mean uh, doing it for a school board? Yeah, school boards and directly local. I mean, look, I love the idea. Yeah. Um, and, and school boards, I think, is a great way to start. That's why this is, I'm pretty sure in Massachusetts we met for the first trial. And I uh, you know about, uh, about uh, Like I said earlier, it's not that I oppose it. At the federal level, and I'll tell you why I'm thinking about um, uh, the, uh, uh, the follow-on. We got to um, uh, 18 drinking age because we were 18 for the draft. That was the argument at the time for the draft for the military. And, uh, and that might have been the right outcome. It might not have been the right outcome. Uh, no, it was 18 for, this was in my opinion, voting happened. Um, we got to 18 for, um, uh, for drinking uh, because it was 18. I was still uh, draft age eligible when we had a draft, is what I'm saying. And, um, um, and that may or may not have been the right outcome for a whole host of, uh, whole host of reasons in uh, Massachusetts since God is 21. And um, uh, it's just, I'm going to try to think through some different But, you know, we got to, I would say that reducing the age to, to vote is one element of the formula to engage people. Uh, they have to feel like they have something to vote for. Right, like the, the back to what we're talking about today, that the, the, the democracy is actually democratic. Yeah, one more. Yeah, one more. Um, so during the town hall or the democracy, uh, you talked quite a bit about uh, ranked voting and the electoral college and how to make that more fair. So I'm from California, which is the most underrepresented state in the electoral college and the Senate due to the large population. And I was just wondering how you would address that and make my vo my vote and voice count as much as someone from Wyoming or New Hampshire all, without your voice, your voice in your vote counts. Do not, yeah. if I may, uh, they do count, but not if I if as I may respect Yeah, I want to I respect. I want to caution you about using that language because someone who doesn't understand that you are still going to show up and cast right. a vote might think, well, maybe she's got a point. I don't have to bother. 
I just, it's just, I, if you will, please, just a uh, respectful. Uh, our proposal calls for abolishing the electoral power. Larry's proposal, I hadn't heard before, which is this idea of proportionate. Um, what would you think about a pro proposal that said, let's just divide, let's just allocate the electors proportionally at a state level, down to a fractional level? Interesting. So they proportion with the popular with the popular vote in the, the state. So the top two people in the state you allocate. So if the Democrat in Montana gets thirty-five percent, they get one point zero six seven. I think that's the number of um, electors from that state. Mm -hmm. So the advantage of that and national popular vote is that under the current system, you know, the only states a president cares about are the swing states. In twenty sixteen, and the people in the other states feel that. Yeah, of course they do. So in 2016, 99% of spending was in 14 states. And what we know, academics know, is that the president bends policy to make those states happy, bends regulation to make those states happy, and the rest of the country feels it. So if you have national popular vote, and if you had proportional allocation at a factual level, the president would care about everything. Uh, candidates would care about everything. It's a pretty clever idea, and it would be particularly clever if we could do it without having to amend the Constitution because it's easier. And that's the part he said you, you want to walk out on. Uh, would that be done without amending? Well, that's what I said, but I don't know. I don't know. But he said he had he wanted to talk about that, but yeah. not there. Um, so I, I'm very interested in how you uh, how you accomplish that. We joined in Massachusetts um, the Interstate Compact, and the pledge was you know about that. The pledge is that we will, oh, vote, yeah. we will vote cast our electoral votes consistent with the popular vote in our state. Um, and uh, I don't know how many states have joined the compact um, now. And I'm not sure it's enforceable to um, which is why we put in, uh, we started with abolishing the Okay, good job, good job, good job. Clip okay. number three. So clip number three, then, I'm going to interview a couple of those um, students still in the coffee house. There's a, there's a first woman who's going to talk. I don't get her name because that girl who just, the lady who just asked those questions, Jaina, kind of takes over the stuff, and then the other woman walks away, a dude walks away, and it was just like, oh, well, whatever. So I pretty much am just interviewing this Jaina woman who just asked those questions. Clip number three. Hey, hey, could I, um, I'm David Bacon from the David Feldman Show. Could I just quickly just ask you guys some questions or something? Yeah. So you guys are from Tufts, is that the deal? Yeah. yeah. And, well, uh, not all of us go no, there. Oh. The program is at Tufts. The program is at, what is the program exactly? It's called Campaign School. Oh. With Tisch College. Okay. Yeah. So this is like a special program just for... Yeah, it's a week long during winter break, and the idea is... Oh, so you guys are still on break. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's oh, undergraduates awesome. from wherever, and we come to learn about campaigns. Right. This has kind of been like our finale of the whole thing. Okay. We went to Elizabeth Warren this morning, and right. now we're here. But um, earlier in the and week... And you spent time, yeah, at Mass or something like that? Yeah, earlier... Earlier I'm in the sorry. week, we were on campus learning a lot from like a lot of professionals about campaigns and the process, um, like candidacy, and really everything yeah. that has to do with that. Right. So, have you guys like studied yeah. a lot of the, the 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 candidates ahead of time so that you knew what to sort of talk to them about, or? So we actually didn't study any of the candidates ahead of time. Right. Um, we're looking solely at how campaigns function, not any sort of oh, partisan okay. politics. Okay. How, how it's all run and right. sort of process. So. I mean, obviously, we were given all the in information in advance. We were welcome to look into it ourselves. Right. But overall, we really just wanted to have the chance to get an insider's view on how the political system works and how people get elected. And what have you? What? What? what do you have any comments about what you've seen? Like some pros, some cons, good or good or bad? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, we've heard from a lot of experts in the field, from people who write speeches to devise strategy to run campaigns, all of whom are very directly involved but are not candidates. Right. And then we've also visited campaigns. We visited 
included a representative soon, hopefully, uh, or he hopes to be a senator, Joe Kennedy from Massachusetts. Right. We right. saw his campaign campaign headquarters talk to his that campaign guy. manager. Is that the, and then, that's the Kennedy guy? Yeah, is that's the like, one who's cha- challenging in Markey. Is, is he the one who's like against or doesn't believe in or like the... Isn't he? Isn't it one of the Kennedys, like a uh, 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 anti-vax guy I or something? Do not I don't know if that's the same person or not. We're not. Yeah. Okay. I, I, yeah. I'm sorry. I didn't he never that, yeah. talked about that. Okay, yeah. So I hope not. There's some Kennedy who's that, and it's like, what are you oh talking about? Oh, yeah, yeah. But I'm not okay. sure if it's him. Yeah, I hope yeah. it's not because I was going to volunteer for his campaign. Oh um, yeah, we'll look into that sort of thing first. Yeah, before. No, I will. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah right, and right. then we also visited an Elizabeth Warren event earlier today, right, and now, yeah, yeah. of course, right. uh, it looks like you guys are going. I'm, oh, it, don't worry about it. Oh, oh, okay. Well, then, cool. Yeah, but we had the opportunity now to talk to actual candidates and see from their perspective what a campaign looks like and just how issues are dealt with in general. Right. 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 And you've Everything. got to ask a couple questions, I think. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. And are, are you going? Is do you are you studying like uh, politics and stuff in school generally? Because since this is a special class, it's yeah. a little different. Yeah. So I'm hoping I'm a freshman, so I haven't okay. declared my major, right, right, but I'm right. hoping to study uh, politics, history, and Arabic. Right. Yeah. It, oh wow, Arabic. That's amazing. <laughs> wow. I hope so. Yeah, it looked like a young kind of crowd. Like you might yeah. all be kind of in that freshman era, or, or yeah, just so sophomore thing. We actually range from freshmore to senior. We have at least one representative from every class. Right. I was hoping someone. And because I, I didn't feel yeah. like it was my place to ask him a question, in because it was your event. But I was hoping someone would do the taxation without representation thing, because sixteen-year-olds have to pay taxes, but they don't get to vote, and that's how. That's why we broke away from England. But I'll have to ask him I mean, that so, at another time. But you could also ask the same thing about all of Washington D.C. Like they don't have a voting representative. That's yes, it's very yeah. exactly. Yeah, it's well, a yeah, huge I know. issue. Yeah, it keeps going. Yeah, yeah. yeah, or like the fact that even I mean, once again, I'm from California. Like two people are doing the same work on behalf of 40 million as 400,000 in Wyoming. So right, in a right. sense, like I'm not being represented as much in terms of taxation right. policy and things at, like that. At Yang's events, when he yeah. talks about New Hampshire and stuff, he's like, yeah. Each New Hampshire person, and he has a formula to figure this out, yeah. is worth 1,000 Californians. Yeah. So Yang, like, he gives away all his stuff to all the New Hampshire people from the money that's raised in the rest of the country. So if you go to, like, a Yang event, it's, like, free clothes and free whatever because, you know, he knows that he wants the people to get the stuff, exactly. to wear it, so that he, get you know, gets the, gets that right. pop-up button. And as much as I want to shy away from, like, saying my vote doesn't matter, because it absolutely right, right, does, right, right. like, my vote in a presidential election is counted as one one-hundredth as a vote in Wyoming, because right. they're one one-hundredth of the size. Is Wyoming have... do the primary the same day as you or not? Because uh, you guys moved um, up quite a bit to yeah, that I Super Tuesday thing. I'm not sure when Wyoming's Right, right, right. Is. We're very early this year. Right, moved right. Up in order to gain more influence. Right, so that'll change right. a lot. And I think that was, in part of Yang's formula was about when you voted and stuff so if wyoming wyoming is is later on the thing and because you've moved up that that dynamic may be a little bit better in your favor yes that's true also obviously we do still have more electors in the electoral college but it's not proportional right right, it's about one quarter i believe awesome are you guys so you guys are all done with the seeing the candidates and stuff this was the last one yeah i believe so this is actually our last day of the program so we're heading back to tufts Today, oh, yeah, because it's Friday, you get a weekend, then maybe yeah. school starts then, on Monday or something. Yeah, Wednesday, classes start. Oh, well, that's good. My daughter <laughs> has to go back. I think her, her classes start on Monday, but not oh. the Tufts, but yeah, oh, okay. yeah, awesome. Awesome. That's well, great. thank you so much. I think I don't know if you said your name or not, or if you want Jenna to. Jenna Kaplan, freshman at Tufts University. Awesome, and thank you, and good questions. Thank yeah, you. Have a great night. <laughs> fantastic, fantastic, fantastic. If anybody is listening and wants to put together a compilation tape that mocks bacon, I would start singling out the yeah, 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 yeah. Put it to music and humiliate him, please. That's- I won't be humiliated. Yeah.
I, you know, I've been called out for that before. Yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, outside yeah. of this. Okay, yeah, clip no, number four. Yeah. Say again? Clip number four. So clip number four is going to be Patrick again. It's later in the, the e- This is now later in the evening. It's a new market. This is another gaggle. And now I'm going to ask, uh, I'm going to ask him a question at the end, and it's going to be about the, uh, the, 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 the thing that we just talked about in that last clip. Clip number four. What I wanted to ask you is, and this, this only occurred to me after watching the, the three events over the last couple of days and having seen some of your fellow candidates over the course of the past couple of months, a lot of the other Democrats convey a sense that we are living through a moment of unique peril. And I don't think it's something that only people of a certain ideology convey. I mean, I've heard Elizabeth Warren make arguments to that effect. And I think Joe Biden, you know, talking about how the future of American democracy is in the balance. Mm-hmm. We don't be Donald Trump, but, you know, we could be doomed, essentially. I don't get the same feeling listening to you in this swing. And I'm wondering if you think we are in a moment of unique peril for American democracy right now, or if we're not. The answer is, of course we are. That's exactly what the democracy agenda is about. But I don't think that beating Donald Trump is enough. And that's the point. Because if all we have on offer is replacing him with the Democrat and going back to do what doing what we used to do, it doesn't meet the moment. This crisis is also an opportunity. And it's an opportunity that presents itself periodically in our history, and I tried to talk about it tonight, where we can reinvent the country so that prosperity and justice uh, exists everywhere. And we should be up to that task. Otherwise, I think we miss the moment. Just want to just clear on your diagnosis. Do you feel like the, the crisis moment that we're in then would exist even if, say, another uh, Republican had won the presidency in 2016? What's the connection between the the structural issues and the man? I think that Donald Trump, um, you know, the the lawlessness, the impulsive uh, 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 leadership, um, the use of every waking moment to divide us um, makes things worse. The caging of children, the demeaning of the vulnerable makes us uh, ashamed and embarrassed. But the fact is that before Donald Trump, the poor were stuck in poverty and the middle class were a paycheck or two from being poor. And that is a lingering crisis that needs to be confronted. And what he has offered us is the opportunity not just to win, but to lean forward and make ourselves a, uh, a reinvented and, as I say, more prosperous and just uh, nation for everybody. And that's the point. It's not about not seeing uh, the peril. It's about seeing alongside the peril the opportunity and the unmet need or unfinished business, which was unfinished before Donald Trump got there. I lied. I got one more. Size <laughs> up your trip. Uh, this is the last public event. I'm not sure what else is going on. Um, how do you feel about the state of your campaign right now in New Hampshire? After I always this feel good at and after um, these kinds of things because you know I'm meeting, I'm meeting people. They are attentive. They ask, uh, they ask probing questions. Um, they uh, they challenge me like Ed did um, uh, tonight. Um, and I think, you know, we need to model a, a, a politics that says, as I said, we don't have to agree on everything before we work together on anything. You saw that there were a bunch of things that even he and I 
um, could uh, 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 to agree on and could agree on. And by the way, that is how you get change that lasts. And I don't, you know, I'm tired, so I'm a little. <laughs> but I, there, there is no, there is no other way to get things that stick. Unless you bring both the bold idea and the humility um, to be, uh, or maybe I should put it this way, the self-confidence, to listen to an opposing uh, view and see where you can find uh, common ground. You handled yourself so well with that. Thank you. You handled yourself so well. He asked the same question at the Tulsi Gabbard thing like a few weeks ago, the same gentleman, Ed, and uh, you did a much better job answering the question. And your your composure and stuff is is remarkable. And and I I just... I really love also the, the way that you like you're willing to you you told are you getting this. Well, you, are you getting this? Uh, <laughs> no, well, you know you, you you told the guys at the at the at the Lawrence Lessig uh, event, uh, mm. you know, to like you're like hey, argue it to me that like you were willing like you have your view, but you're like hey, well, argue your point to me. Like you're willing to listen to it and and grow or explore you know other people's ideas, and that's not everyone is taking that sort of uh, stance. And it's not really a question there, but uh, I just wanted to you know, thank, thank you. you. I would like to ask a question if that would be okay. <laughs> just, just a real quick. Question. So I was surprised that the kids at the coffee house, all the kids from uh, Tufts, because the one uh, young lady was asking all about the uh, the sixteen year olds voting, but no one made the argument about the taxation without representation thing, which is the whole reason I throw in the the the, the tea in the Boston, you know. What about that argument? Well, you should ask her about that argument. Well, I know, but um, look, it's a it's a. Um, the question of what is the age of maturity for which things mm-hmm. um, that's a fair that's a fair question but it's not just about it can't it can't uh, it can't turn on taxation without representation because I suppose there are minors who, who are, are working right who are uh, who don't have representation they are represented right and we could uh, make the argument about uh, uh, Washington DC also because they don't have representation yeah yeah although I think Washington should be a state I think uh, so, yes um, exactly but, uh, yeah I, I, I don't think I mean I, I understand what you're saying but I don't yeah. think that's the end of the argument right that's fine yeah. Yeah. thank you for your time thank you thank you Great job. The way you suck up to him, I can't help but wonder if you're after his job as well. Uh, a point of order here. It, it, the Boston Tea Party was about increasing taxes. That's one of the great American myths. The, 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 the uh, American colonists in Massachusetts were upset that the cheapest tea to buy was British tea. They wanted to buy tea from the Dutch East India company, corporation, but the British had attached tariffs and taxes on any tea that came from the Dutch. So the colonists were forced to buy and sell British tea because it was so inexpensive. So they threw British tea in the water to protest because they wanted uh, them to take, to remove, uh, the, uh, to add taxes to the British tea, to equalize it. So they want, they were actually protesting for taxes, not less taxes. They wanted the British tea taxed the way the Dutch East India Company's tea was taxed. Anyway, just thought it's one of the great myths about American history. Last clip, what do you got? Well, we should have two more, actually. No. One. We should have five and six. Oh, I don't have six. Six is Frank Luntz. How do you know it's six? I don't have it. 
We'll have to play it on Tuesday. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's fine. Um, so number five is going to be uh, the the New York University Dubai students of Frank Luntz, and and, and so I interview them um, uh, uh, on January twelfth. Oh, so the Frank Luntz is them. teaching at the university NYU in Dubai. Well, actually, he's teaching at, at NYU in America, but I guess the, the students from Dubai came over for this special thing. I'm surprised Frank Luntz would do business with the nation of Dubai, considering what a principled man the Dr. Joseph Goebbels of America is, Frank Luntz. And you have an interview with Frank Luntz. I do, but apparently the clip is not with you or something. So, not. yeah, did we'll you, have to say that for you, next time. Did you tell him you're a correspondent with the David Feldman show? Yes, and at the end of it, he says to say hi to you. Yeah. Because he must know you. Yes, I know Frank Luntz. I know Frank. And Yeah, he's an interesting guy. Uh, not interesting. Climate change. No, it's interesting. It's, he's, he's done things that I don't believe in, but it's Dr. interesting Joe, he's regardless. Do- he's, he twists languages. He twists words. Yeah, what was the... Right, he like even twisted the uh, Orwellian thing back in like 2007 or something to say that Orwellian thinking was like good. I don't know, something crazy like that. And par- partial birth abortion, death tax, climate change—those are all his phrases. Yeah. And he gives us his—he gives us a phrase for the Democrats, but I don't know. We'll, you don't have the tape. All right, we'll we'll talk he about it. Us- okay, let, let's go. This is uh, the last clip, and then we got to wrap it up. I hate you. I'm clip threatened. Five. I'm jealous. You stop. What you think about the campaign, about your experience here as an international student. Now's your time. Make yeah. your voice heard. Okay, so this is David Baker with the David Feldman Show, and there's, I think, 15 international students. You guys are all from the New York, uh, uh, NYU, do, do, Ab- I'm sorry, Abu Dhabi. So you guys are all, like, living in Abu Dhabi right now? Yeah. So that must be, like, crazy. Is that neat as heck, or is it, I don't know. It's cool. amazing. Yeah, it's really nice. It's good, actually. NYU Abu Dhabi, it's a global scholars program that we have uh, three years in Abu Dhabi and one year all over NYU global campuses right. and we get to experience it and have international experience and also interact with knowledge, academic and research. It's actually, it has been really fulfilling experience and I believe that at least for myself, I'm Carlos, I'm from Ecuador, yeah. it has been a really enriching and cultural experience to know about the Middle East with a high level of education as the U.S. education with NYU. Yeah, and I, I know you guys, I saw you guys at the uh, the, the Dover, Duval, I think it was Dover, Duval Patrick, and you guys had to leave, you were going to like a, one of the, yeah. uh, what is, like where you guys focus group things and talk about how, how I, I don't, I, obviously if this is like proprietary or something, how did, how did Duval Patrick's campaign or his stuff do in those focus groups? Was it a good turnout? Did people like the stuff or however that, or uh, maybe you can't talk about it, and that, if not, it's totally We, we don't have the uh, results, results but uh, the voters seem informed. Right. The, vo- the voters know what they uh, are talking about. Right. They know what they want from a campaign. Right. So I think that, uh, you know, the, the future is blind for America. Okay, that, that's good. We're very that's impressed it. by the voters. We're very in general, just in so general. far. Because you've seen, you saw Yang, I think, the other day, too, yeah. somewhere, and same yes. kind of thing there, too. You were impressed with everyone. Yes. They're very politically engaged. Right. And this is probably the biggest turnout I've seen for a Bennett event. I've seen him probably six, seven times. But as we get down to this last month of the candidacy, of course, there's going to be more and more people uh, coming to this. What, what uh, I don't know, so what is it, what are you learning? I think Frank Luntz is in charge of your group or something. Something with the school? I think I can mention that. Um, What are you learning from him? Because he is like an, I mean, oh my gosh, the things he's done. 
these are rich kids from Ecuador and all over the world who get to go to Abu Dhabi and learn how to manipulate voters by Frank Luntz and perpetuate the problem. That's what they're learning. Whether or not you agree with them or not, he, he the power that he's had is amazing to really, uh, you know, what, what did he change? Uh, climate change to global warming? Or no, global warming to climate change. Mike, he regrets that, though. Yeah, he regrets I don't think Frank is the, people, is the person that a lot of people think he is. He's changed over time. His views evolved like everyone else. Right, right, right. No, he hasn't. I don't think it's fair to hold him to his past statements. No, no, no. I was, I was just, I'm just, you know, trying to get people to know who the heck. Frank right. he's, he's been an amazing professor for all of us, and he's opened us up to a lot of uh, viewpoints and and a lot of different, yeah, I can, a lot of different perspectives on all sides. Um, yeah. yeah, the opportunity that you guys have. I mean, I can only imagine what, what what you guys are learning and all this stuff because I would assume. Frank Lancer has traditionally been known as a Republican, but he has shown us and like he 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 shows that he cares about the world and he cares about you know bringing understanding to the world. So he's stopping. Medicare for all. He's the devil. That's why I'm not. I have to hear the interview before I play the. I, before I give any oxygen to Frank Luntz, right. I have to hear it first. No, I, I know. It, it's of it's course. he's as he is one of the worst, most dangerous people in politics. It's a game to him, he, he, and people yeah. are dead because of Frank Luntz. Let's go. Let's yeah, go back. Yeah. Oh, you know, he um, he really likes it when he connects all of us, and he makes us talk about um, you know about what connects the world and what connects different countries, and this is very inspiring. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, what, what connects different countries are the ruling class from Ecuador, whose parents have enough money to send them to NYU and. Abu Dhabi or Dubai to study with Frank Luntz. Yeah, great. Does anyone else have a specific thing to say or something? About yeah. Frank, so I think the single most important thing that I've learned from this course is how to bridge divide between two ideological groups. Right. Even if you have very... These are like hostage videos. Frank Luntz been very, very good to me. Abu Dhabi been very good to me. They don't torture me. Strong beliefs and a very strong ideology. I think you can work through it. And it's really about understanding where the other people come from right. and sort of finding that common ground in shaping a better world around. Right. That was like his question in Dover was uh, related to that about how to bring the Republican people, I think, into it. And exactly. a lot of the candidates are talking about that like, weird out. group of voters that voted for Obama and then switched to Trump. Although that's such a small yeah. people. But I yeah. think that's the group that really decided. The how about you speak the truth? How about you speak the truth and then you get the 100 million Americans who could vote but don't vote to vote? 2016 election. Right. I think they're also going to play a very incremental force in deciding that the 2020 election, and that's a general wave that all candidates, whether it's Bernie Sanders or whether it's Michael Bennett, and they really understand that. I think that's a particular focus group that they're all targeting. Right. I, I'm, I'm kind of thinking like with 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 uh, with uh, Sanders and Warren, it's almost like they're trying to go after more of the people who didn't vote at all. Like ah. Bernie is really going after those people who like don't vote at all. I just and said that. I'm thinking rather than trying to switch those people that like are on the fence. What are you? I just said that. Why are you repeating me? <laughs> sort of go back and forth or something. I don't know. If anyone else wants to say something, because you guys just know more about what you're doing than you. I would you. say that also our class focuses, and thanks to Frank, in the power of language, the power of right, knowledge, right, right. the power of understanding also, which is really important for Frank. And The power of twisting language. 
the work is doing, understanding the people's sentiment, the voters, listening to them and creating a change for it and creating the, probably the, the right message and how to move it forward that people also could hear and know their candidate better. Right. Those are things that we're learning in sort of a political strategy and uh, how to win an election, which is the title of the class. Right. Oh, and the other thing I wanted to say, like, I think after today, there's kind of a little a lull in the candidates here. So are you guys still hanging around for a little bit more? Or a few days. For a few more days? We've been here still for a few days. Right, I think, and then yeah. heading on to Iowa. Right. Are, what, are you, do you have specific, like, you don't, okay. is there specific stuff that you know that you're doing, that you're looking right. forward to? We're saying this all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, because it depends, we, yeah. We add meetings on Saturdays, Saturdays. Right. Of the day. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I think you guys have to run on to your next thing, so I yeah. just want to say it's so cool to see you. I hope I see you at another event because I love to hear student questions from you guys or really any students because they're sometimes more better than the I gave you my card. Send yes. me the podcast. I will send out or whatever content I'll you send, Yes, I'll send you, this, I'll send you the tape from there. Thank you. The uh, corporatization of higher education. Frank Luntz teaching kids on how to manipulate voters. This is not important to teach kids. This is vocational school. Why would you spend all that money to learn this stuff when you can go get a job on a campaign and learn this garbage? This is not what college should be about. What college should be about is learning the humanities, learning math, science, the great books, not skills that will evaporate that will no longer be necessary by the time you graduate. Learn how to be a carpenter, learn how to be a mechanic, but learning how to manipulate voters? That's not NYU what college is, is for. Expensive. I didn't even know they had an Abu Dhabi campus. Yeah, it's 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 like hospitals. It's all these nonprofit organizations that the rich technocrats like Frank Luntz prey off. They they use they use these schools, they use hospitals, and and they use charities to pay themselves enormous salaries. I'd like to know what Frank Luntz is getting to teach. At, at, at oh my Abbott. gosh! Yeah, yeah, it's a scam, right, and they and right. they convince unsuspecting kids that this is the stuff you have to learn. No, these are skills that that will disappear that will be changed in five years well i can't, i'm sure they're oh learn critical you know, thinking learn, learn critical thinking you can le- whatever frank luntz no, of course. Well, whatever yeah. he's teaching you you can learn in five months volunteering for uh, an assemblyman who's running for re-election david bacon great job as always we're short on time i'm threatened by you uh, blah 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 and I can't stand you, and you want my job. I'll have more time. I promise you on Tuesday we'll play the Frank Lunson interview. I'm a little reluctant to give him oxygen, but... No, it's all good. It's all good. It's and, all good. It's a good one. And I have more it's, time, it's, I'll... And you'll, you'll get his question okay. with Lessig. Stand the line. Great. How do, what's your email? How do people reach you? Oh, we'll, we'll just skip it this time. What's your email? What's your email? No, we're skipping it. What do you... What do you oh, I'm not oh, giving it out every time. No, it's okay. Give your email out. No, I refuse. Oh, my God. I know. Okay. It's not about me. Okay. Thanks, buddy. Stand on the line. Great job. Thank you, man. Great job. Thank you.
Let us now go to Tucson, Arizona, where the very sick Dr. Jennifer Verdelin is standing by. She is an animal behaviorist who teaches at the University of Arizona. She has two books everybody should purchase. One is Wild Connection, What Animal Courtship and Mating Tell Us About Human Relationships. The other one is Raised by Animals, The Surprising New Science of Animal Family Dynamics with Try-at-Home Lessons from the Wild. Go to jenniferverdelin.com, sign up for her newsletter, and she has a new video over at the website about women in science. Welcome back, the very sick Dr. Jennifer Verdelin. What's your, what's your <clears throat> women in science well, so I have a YouTube channel called Wild Connection TV, and in there I have a series that is uh, elevating and promoting women in science. So um, I tell the stories of women and either uh, and their science or uh, just about them so that we can start to get to know some women scientists because, you know, the popular media doesn't necessarily always celebrate women in science and we don't see them on television and, and other places. So, so that's what I'm trying to do is to, to celebrate the amazing women and the science they're doing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the difference between Dr. Jennifer Verlin and me is she's sick while I'm, <laughs> while I'm sick and disgusting. Tell me about your, I, I, I'm just getting over a cold that lasted a month I can't mm -hmm. have Jackie the Joke Man on because he just makes me cough. I can't really laugh. Tell me about your cold because you had one and now you have another one? Yeah, so um, I think I have the one that's giving the cough. Uh, so I had one uh, for two weeks, and then I was better for about three days, and then I got a new cold. And um, So I've basically been colonized by microbes. Uh, and, and, uh, and this one is a doozy. It, it's only been four days. I've already got the cough. Um, and, and so I, of course, you know, know that there are, are, are many, many different types of viruses that cause the cold. And so it is not likely that it's the same one that I had because your body builds up antibodies to, to a, a virus once you've been exposed to it. But it, it really can do nothing about the other 199 possibilities that are out there. So, right. <clears throat> clearly, yes. I bumped into a, a, a germ. So can you get a cold while you have a cold? You can have two separate colds going at the same time? I think you can have them simultaneously. Mine were sequential or, ah. or at least was incubating on the tail end of the other one. I mean... The incubation period for a cold is anywhere from one to four days on average. You know, so within 24 hours of somebody sneezing in a hall and you walking by because the droplets spray mm -hmm. eight feet and you inhale them, right. uh, you know, so wear a mask, everyone, please. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, uh, I, I wear a mask at work, but uh, that's yeah. because I rob liquor stores for a living. But <laughs> well, uh, I wear a mask at work. That's because I teach undergraduates. <laughs> <laughs> And I have to scare them somehow. Um, don't. So. I can't. Don't. <laughs> All right. Now, to, very quickly, and then we, we have a lot of stories we want to get to. Animals. Well, I don't want to bring up koalas because we're going to talk about Australia in a second. But your dog and your cat, we talked about this. They can get a, a head cold, right? 
They can. They can get colds. Um, some of them pass between people and animals. Um, and those are, are um, there's a, but it's few and far between that, that can jump across species given the vast volume of, of viruses. But I mean, birds don't sneeze. Cats sneeze. Dogs sneeze. Uh, I, I don't know if birds don't sneeze. I, I guess they don't. I, I, I hope really a rhinoceros know. doesn't sneeze. I would hate to be in... Well, <laughs> yeah, or a camel. Or a camel, uh, yeah. All right. Let, let, we got a lot to talk about. So let's start with the bad news coming out of Australia. How? Yeah, I mean, between impeachment and the debates and Lev Parnas giving his interview with Rachel Maddow, Australia is off our radar, and it shouldn't be. What is going on, especially with the animals? Oh, I mean, it's devastating. You know, so... So the fires have been going on for a really long time over. I mean, it's estimated potentially at over a billion animals have met their their demise. And of course, that that doesn't even include the domestic animal, the human, you know, loss, the the property loss. But, you know, the real worry is that Australia is home to a lot of unique animals uh, that aren't found anywhere else. And many of those are, are small. They can be reptiles. Uh, and, and in particular, when fires happen, reptiles do very poorly because they, they just don't move as quickly as, say, you know, a kangaroo that, that will hop. And also, uh, koalas aren't, aren't the fastest moving things either. So that's also another reason. And they, they, they don't know where to go, right? They can't outrun the pace of a fire when it's sweeping through an area as, as easily as some other animals. Uh, so, you know, the, the small mammal and reptile diversity is going to be decimated, potentially lost. Um, echidnas, which are a, a spiny anteater, they're really small. Um, <clears throat> they, they're, they're not high in numbers, to begin with. And I know in some places they're reporting that they haven't seen any at all. Then with the koalas, aside from the burns uh, that they're experiencing and, and suffering from, despite m many efforts to rescue them, get them out of harm's way, uh, th there's no food, right? Because right. they are specialists and they eat eucalyptus. And uh, so when your entire food source is burnt, it goes up in smoke, then it really creates a problem. So I don't know if there's an opportunity for other places to send eucalyptus to, uh, to Australia where, you know, where maybe there are uh, a lot of times zoos that have uh, koalas in captivity, maybe growing their own eucalyptus, on, yeah, and the problem site. is eucalyptus is fuel for fire. Oh yeah, it it will just it'll light yeah. up, you yeah. know, and and so and then of course the smoke is not limit. I mean, it's going to start circling the globe. I think it already has started circling the globe, and um <clears throat> and and it's essentially um you know creating a, a problem in New Zealand and and. Uh, you know, 
all yeah. kinds of so, other issues yeah. far away from, from a source. Yeah, we have a lot to go over. You know, something like 15 million acres have been destroyed. Thousands of Australians evacuated. Close yeah. to 30, probably more, have died. And as you yeah. say, a billion animals, maybe more, have been killed. All Rupert Murdoch's fault, an Australian, and I'm being serious, because he is in the business of protecting the oil companies through his newspapers mm -hmm. and his propaganda. What One of his kids claims to be standing up to his dad. This is this is what happens when when we lie to ourselves about climate change. This is climate change, correct? Absolutely. I mean, yeah. you know, there's been a, a, a small attempt or maybe an, a not insignificant attempt to blame people for setting these fires. But that is a, a smokescreen. Yeah, uh, the to, people of ExxonMobil. People of ExxonMobil set these fires, and it started 50 years ago when they knew they were heating up the planet and hid it from us. Well, there's been a lot of deception when it comes to yeah. the impact that, uh, you know, these corporations have had on the environment. And for many decades, it's disproportionately impacted people that live in lower um, socioeconomic neighborhoods. And so... What's happening now, though, is that the reach is extending to everybody. And and yet still, I, it's not clear to me that there's, you know, the people who are outraged, the people who are protesting in Australia, the people who are demanding that something be done at the end of the day, if the leaders that are in charge and forging these relationships with these corporations that, uh, you know, or are rolling back as as is happening here, environmental regulations uh, that that will impact the average person, but we may not see you know soaring cancer rates again for ten or twenty mm -hmm. years. Um, you know, if they're not if they're not held to task or replaced or um, you know forced to essentially bend to the will of people. Uh, the, of the people that have elected them. Well, then, they're not going to bend. I don't really know. Yeah. We well, they're do. not going to bend to the will of the people until Rupert Murdoch is put out of business because the will of the people is not there yet. They're still they're still being fed this propaganda by Rupert Murdoch, Fox News. He he owns the Republican Party. They are pushing the lie that while climate change is real. There's really nothing we can do about it. Let's move on and talk about something more cheerful, like compelling new evidence that Senor Buttons would eat your corpse. You have a cat. <laughs> you have maintained. Oh, yes. Right now, every time you cough, Senor Buttons is salivating. There you go. He's going to... Uh, so... Is you you know I I you know more than I do, and you insist that cats are are good people. I don't think cats are good people. Dogs are good people, but <laughs> cats are bad people. I've had I probably have had close to thirty cats in my life. I was visiting my sister yesterday. She has four cats. These are the most horrible human beings mm -hmm. I've ever met in my life. 
uh, one I actually rescued, Twinkles, no thank you, no mm-hmm. acknowledgement, she runs away from me. It's You know what Twinkles reminds oh. me of? It's, this is a phenomenon with the Heimlich maneuver. I don't know if you've heard about this, but when you when you save somebody's life with the Heimlich maneuver, mm-hmm. there's this phenomenon of they're not thanking you. There's like shame associated with choking and then you saving their life and they can't deal with it and they never say thank you after the Heimlich maneuver. And I get that from Twinkles because I saved Twinkles. I took her off the streets and you know i don't i don't exist so your your corpse let's talk about your corpse cuz you are <laughs> sick you are sick yes i am i am and and he i i've decided you know in support <laughs> of your position that in the middle of the night when he scrapes his teeth on my skull i'm pretty sure it's to see if i'm still alive <laughs> You know, I, I'm starting to suspect that it's, is she still alive or can I yeah. settle in and start to Dr. Eat? Jennifer um, Verdelin, so. it's what's for dinner. That's what he's thinking. That's... <laughs> so what does the study show? What are they saying? Well, so, so this was, it wasn't really a, an intended study, right? Uh, there's a place in. Uh, Tennessee, I believe it is, that's yeah. called the Body Farm. Well, that sounds like and, a fun place to take the kids. Um, oh, well, this one, I guess, oh. was in Colorado. So there's must be more yeah. than one body farm. And this is where forensic scientists and, and, you know, police, and we do all this research to try to figure out, you know, for example, the, the man that was found in Pima Canyon, if you want to estimate the time of death of someone who's a victim of a crime, and their body has been found, you know, at some time, space, distance from when they were killed, then certain processes happen to the body. Also, uh, certain insects lay eggs and things like that. All these things happen in environmental conditions. So these body farms are about studying that process so that the information that we get can be well, used to you, help What do you mean by crimes. body farm? This is like, is this subsistence farming where... <clears throat> You know, I, I quit the big city and me and my Hungarian wife, Lisa, move to, who you know, near Hooterville oh. and buy a body farm and tr- try to live off the land. Well, how does it, what is a body farm? Oh, no, a body farm is basically a, a, an area. So the one in Colorado is about two acres and it's usually owned or in, in you know, a property of oh, I, I know how it works you, you, like corpses are like <laughs> seeds so when you bury them in the ground they sprout mm. new bodies is that how body farms work oh <laughs> no they sprout a lot of okay. stuff but not bodies <laughs> uh and and studying that stuff is is what they do and so people donate their body you can donate like when you die you can say, okay, I'm going to donate myself. You know, you could donate yourself to science. You could donate yourself uh, to a body farm, and they basically will take your body and they put it outside and they film hmm. and watch what happens over number of days. And and some of them might be partially buried. So you know, they create all of these different scenarios. So they that videotape what we see decaying bodies. Yeah. So so this is how they discovered 
that um, two domestic cats were, they were, you know, there's a lot of feral mm-hmm. cats. Uh, as you mentioned, you took one off the street. Uh, and so um, this, uh, this, they inadvertently ended up filming these two cats uh, that seemed to be, you know, <laughs> having a meal on one of the bodies <laughs> that were on the body farm. And this was not what uh-huh. they expected. Um, and in fact, they had 40 bodies yes. to choose from. And uh, uh, they they basically kept going back to the same individual over and over again for over over a month, which brings us back to that question that we talked about last week, which is, you know, how long will, you, you know, we think of things rotting and getting bad and then you get very sick. So uh, if I left out, which I don't eat meat, but if I left out a steak and I just had a bite of it every day for a month, I would probably mm-hmm. end up dead. And then Senor yes, could yes. take over and start. But why were they going back to the, so they it, were going you know, back to the same corpse, the same? That's, yes. I'm kind of like that. I well, have the so same it, meal at lunch. I have the same lunch every day. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, um, the 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 hypothesis that they proposed was, you know, cats are picky eaters. And they may just, um, once they decide, you know, that this was a good meal, they'll just keep the service coming was back good. to it. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so we've learned that yeah. cats will eat your corpse. If, if <laughs> you taste good. If you taste good. So if they take a bite of you and they're like, Right. Tui. Um, Because, of course, that's the sound they're going to make. They will not continue, you know, consuming things. Right. And they are they are carnivores. So they they only you can't you can't put a cat on a vegan diet. Correct. And and, and I have to, you know, um, you know, there there's been a documentation of dogs, uh, birds, hamsters. Uh, all kinds of things will humans, eat their owners. Humans. Um, so, so it's not just dogs. Yes. I mean, not just cats. You know, you, dog owners don't get too, you know, confident about yeah. your your. So phyto. let's talk about this video that's gone viral, or bacterial. Mm. Some sometimes videos go bacterial. <laughs> this cat, this tuxedo cat, caught on tape. Fighting off four coyotes, but we don't really. Oh, we do know that the cat fought them off. There were four coyotes coming to kill or eat that cat, and the cat was able to keep them at bay. Well, that's pretty remarkable. First of all, uh, you know, of course, you know, when I saw this, I just the first thing I thought is, why is that cat outside? And and that goes back to, you know, if if you have pets and you live in areas where there are other species that can potentially harm your pet, don't let them outside. And so a lot of cats don't survive that encounter. And it's it's not necessarily I mean, the coyotes will probably be eating that cat if they hmm. can get it. Right. So 
Uh, now, so dogs, I think that, which are related to coyotes? Sure. Do, you know, they're canids, so dogs, do dogs wolves, coyotes. Do dogs all, and wolves all, have all. a taste for cat? I mean, is it conceivable that a dog will chase a cat and then eat it? Um, I would say that's almost entirely unlikely. It depends on the dog. But in general, you know, dogs are sort of like puppy okay. wolves, <laughs> right? Um, just like we're sort of like baby mm-hmm. apes <laughs> without the fur. Uh, so so they're, they're juvenile wolves. They're in a perpetual juvenile state. And so a lot of dogs get along fine with cats. It really has to do with exposure. And also personality types. And and many people know that if you have an adult cat and you introduce a puppy, oftentimes the cat will make it very clear to the puppy that it should right. watch itself. Okay. Right. Now, for many domestic cats that are allowed outside, the outcome is not a, a victory, if you will, as as the case was for this cat. And I would say that if that cat continues to be let out, its hmm. days are numbered. And and so if the owners love the cat, they should okay. keep it inside. <laughs> and and we can't malign the coyotes. They, they're not doing well, anything wrong. Well, you could keep your wrong. coyote inside. Uh, <laughs> well, if you have one, then that's a different problem, you know. If uh, I took a co- so, so coyotes aren't If I aren't took a baby coyote, right, you know, Right when he was ready to be adopted, could he be domesticated? Would he stay in the house? Could I walk him? I would. I would say no. You know, I think that when they're puppies, uh, just like you know, baby wolves. I think there was also something about you know this sort of shock that a, a baby wolf, a, a pup, would play. Yeah, talk to me about that. They discovered so, that if you get a, a wild wolf, a puppy. What happened? Yep. And you throw a ball. It, it... Yeah, they uh, so they basically tested 13 wolf puppies that were from multiple litters, and they wanted to see if the wolf puppies would display similar behavior to uh, domestic dog puppies. Now, of course, people may not realize this, but domestic dogs evolved from gray wolves over 15,000 years ago, right? So humans were responsible for part of, for, for the domestication. There was a bit of mutual, you know, benefit, obviously. So essentially, uh, they, they tossed a ball, uh, to Mm -hmm. eight week old puppies and they, um, they, they actually, uh, retrieved the ball and brought it back to the person, and that was was not what they expected, but it makes sense because, you know, play behavior is really common. And so you can imagine a situation where, you know, if uh, wolves were, were in proximity to people and there was this process of domestication that puppies are so cute. You can pretty much soften the blow of any criticism right. with a picture of a puppy right it right it just or a pup or a kitten anything baby will trigger a thing in your brain that goes oh okay so so this desire to interact with baby things is kind of hardwired into us 
and the curiosity and playfulness that wolf puppies uh, experience and demonstrate is no different than all you know other sort of social young animals and and so i think that and really coyote puppies would do the same thing the the issue is that they're not domesticated and puppies mm-hmm. grow up and and in in domesticated dogs you essentially we selected for juvenile right. traits it's not that adults don't play because i've got these coyotes that I have all kinds of footage of them, you know, making a video very soon, showing them romping around what is and the playing purpose with each other play? and wagging their tail. When you, when you tail. have somebody like me who measures every second, asking himself, what, what's the purpose of this? Uh, you know, I'm not going to watch this basketball game. It's, it's a, what is the purpose of just playing? Why do animals play? What? Why do kids play? And why, as we get older... Mm-hmm. Do we lose respect for play, or some of us lose respect for play? Yeah, so you know, it's interesting. Uh, a friend and colleague, uh, well known animal behaviorist, Mark Beckoff, has studied play, particularly in canines, for a very long time. And there's a lot of different ideas. One of them is that really play, especially when you're young, is a way to practice. So some of the play that, that, for example, young wolves do is is really prepping them for uh-huh. adult behavior. And so, like baseball, for example, also- involves all the skills uh, an alpha male would need for hunting before guns. Hmm. Potentially, but it's also a social sport. So that would bring me to my second thing: that play in social species is also about building relationships, testing, you know, the strength of, of, of other individuals, kind of figuring out where you mm-hmm. stand in the pack. And, you know, we have very ritualized. So baseball is an example of a highly ritualized game uh, as a form of, I, I don't know that it's really play anymore. Do animals play. Uh, behave as spectators? Will they sit around and watch other animals play for their own enjoyment? I don't know. I know they observe other individuals playing. It might even spark them to be interested in playing, right? Uh, You can certainly see where there's many videos that show individuals trying to, you know, uh, rope someone into playing with them. And and maybe they do in a half-hearted way. And maybe they, they do completely, right? But it's also very ritualized. So in puppies and dogs, in, in wolves and coyotes, you know, there's the play right. bow. There's all these signals that say right. we're playing. Right. And right. And, and if you misinterpret those signals, then there could be aggression. There could, you know, because you have to trust that, okay, you're pouncing on me, but you're not mm-hmm. being aggressive. And so I think that I think of like wrestling, right? We have all these rituals. We understand at certain cues, this, it's a very aggressive sport where we're wrestling, we're tumbling, we're, we're trying to pin, but there are rules and those rules are in place to understand that we are actually, we're still playing. Okay. Let's, we're, we're short on time today. Spotify, by the way, and you can hear this (laughs) show on Spotify. Spotify has podcasts and more and more people are listening to the David Feldman show and subscribing to the David Feldman show on Spotify. 
Spotify has a new playlist for dogs. Now, does... Oh, well, pets. they have it for pets. Yeah. It's not just dogs. It's any animal type. So uh, iguanas and hamsters are included. Do cats and dogs respond to music? A dog will bark. Um, <laughs> I, I know that my dogs, there, there are certain songs. I've seen this. Where you play a certain song and the dog will howl. There's certain notes on the piano that one of my dogs would just lose it. And and I've seen YouTube videos mm-hmm. of dogs hearing a, a song on, the, on, on the, the piano and they would howl. Are, are they are they singing <laughs> or are they expressing discontent with that sound? They, you know, I'm, I have sensitive ears, and you're playing something that's really annoying, right. so I'm crying. Are they singing or crying? Well, so I think we need that other invention that was rolled out that lights uh-huh. up in different colors. Or a better Doctor Doolittle starring <laughs> Robert Downey. That, <laughs> Yeah. Oh, that would be awesome. He'd be a great. Oh, he, he's, he's great. He, one. No, no, uh, I like him. Uh, I don't mean to embarrass you. He was. Oh, that's right. He was. That's right. Doctor Doolittle just came right? out, and it's supposedly the worst movie of the year. But you. But listen, I, oh. you know, there's so much, so many <laughs> journals for a, a professor to keep up with. <laughs> How could you? All right. Go. Okay. So, so here's a. I can't speak to dogs or cats' preferences. We do know that, uh, and and I know that if certain music is playing, my cat might fold his mm-hmm. ears, right? Um, so Senor Buttons might bend his ears down, and I interpret that to mean Andrew I don't Lloyd like Webber specifically. There was. Uh, I don't is think that's true. I don't, cats, I don't know. it's a cats reference. Go ahead. I'm I'm just. Oh, oh, right. That yes, was another, another bad, bad movie. movie. <laughs> um, so, so what I can tell you, though, is that there's been some research on this. They've looked at chimpanzees, and and what they found was that, uh, no offense to Japanese music, but when Japanese music was played, the chimpanzees were actually, uh, they chose to try to find places where it was harder <laughs> to hear the music. <laughs> so we have a clear, like, escape mm-hmm. strategy. Um, they did like African oh, and Indian music. Yeah, and they they like predictable. They 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 uh, suspect that the chimpanzees might like these uh, predictable rhythmic mm-hmm. patterns, and <clears throat> and so so this this is at least some indication that uh, animals do have preferences for sounds and. Um, you know, I think that one would have to really know their animal really well. So does it calm them and feel relaxing? So, so sometimes classical music, but, uh, it is perceived as relaxing to, to animals. Uh, Yeah. So I think that, that I would be. I mean, again, it's another we're, we're, it's another indication of how we're trying to create, you know, a happy and, and connected environment with our pets. How advisable it is. You don't know if it's hurting their ears. You, you know, we don't know what sound level is 
is uh, important to them. What is the frequency? What is the frequency they normally right. hear in? So, so those things all play a part. And also, what is their communication style? Uh, how 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 do they really go about communicating? So, I, I think I would be, you know, conscientious right. of that before just you know, leaving the house and, and having music playing for hours. We, we, we seem to think that they need to be entertained with television and music, but that's really what right. we seem to need. Right. And so I would be cautious about making assumptions that, that other species need this constant stimulus that right. we seem to need. Well, I, because of my conversations with Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, when you said that chimpanzees like certain kind of music, I was tempted to say, you know, the songs of Davy Jones, Mike Nesmith, Peter Tork, Mickey Dolenz. I was going to make a monkeys joke. Uh, you're too young to remember the band The Monkeys, but oh. it's a it's not funny, and b chimps are not monkeys, correct? That's right. They, they are, apes. are apes. And I don't think there was a no, band there called weren't. the Apes. So because <laughs> of these conversations, I am not going to make that joke. Dr. Jennifer. <laughs> Although you kind of no, I, 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 No, I'm, I'm saying that I didn't make the joke because, yes, Dr. Jennifer Vertolin is the author of two great books, Wild Connection, What Animal Courtship and Mating Tell Us About Human Relationships, and Raised by Animals, The Surprising New Science of Animal Family Dynamics with Try-at-Home Lessons from the Wild. She is an animal behaviorist who teaches animal conservation at the University of Arizona, Follow her on Twitter, Real Dr. Jen. Go to jenniferverdelin.com. Sign up for her newsletter. It's fantastic. And go to her YouTube channel. We'll talk to you next week, I hope. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks Stand so much. for one second. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. ready i'm ready okay we got a lot to plow through that's what your mom said when uh last night last night my mother said last that to you? okay yeah I mean... <laughs> all right hey leah mcganini joins us mcganini joins us there's a lot going on today's show we have a lot to talk about so i can't Get to everybody's voicemails and everybody's comments. Longtime listeners know that the David Feldman Show website has Ask Me Anything. It's a button that you click on, and you can ask us anything, and then Liam and I will answer your questions. We also have a voicemail. Yes, we have a voicemail. You can call the number 
and we'll play your voicemail on the show. We haven't been doing it recently because, well, they've they're all, all been, bad. They're all bad. <laughs> Call two o. They've been terrible. Two o two. You know what? If you if you leave David a good voicemail, odds are very good and it'll get played on the show. That's all I can say. And so far, we've only played three. Call. <laughs> Call 202-670-2752. That's 202-670-2752. Leave us a voicemail. We have three playable voicemails, Liam McEnany. Would you like to hear them? Okay. Yeah, by the way, I just want to give a shout-out to your listener, Jonathan Conrad, okay. who allegedly claims he has teeth. I don't know if... Apparently, I called your your listeners toothless morons or something, and yes. degenerates. And uh, to be fair, they're mostly just morons and degenerates. Most of them have their teeth. So okay. All right. Just wanted to be fair there. We know. I know, Jonathan. In fact, we may have him on the show one day. Maybe he'll help us answer okay. questions. What is that thumping sound? Uh, that's the sound of a cup of coffee. I'll put on something else. Oh, thank you. We've only been doing this 10 years, Liam, together. <laughs> Okay, ready? This would be voicemail. <coughs> yeah. This would be voicemail 12. Not bad. Not bad. We got You got to go through 11 yes. before you found yes. a good one. Here's voicemail 12. Hey, David Feldman. Um, don't play this on the show, but you need, I, I, you need to know this because, look, you, the majority report, David Pakman, Kyle Kalinske, all you guys are, um, you know, refining your image, doing things like that. When you, I, I'm not a long-time listener of your show. I've only been listening probably less than a year. I listen to every minute of it when I'm at work. Um, in addition to, you know, the majority report and a couple of other, a uh, couple of other people that I guess aren't affiliated with you, but they're all generally left. Um, and when you changed your picture from the cartoon into your real face, um, I didn't know what you looked like before that. And, uh, it just, it put me, it threw me through a little bit of a loop, I'll tell you that. And I just looked up, um, our yeah, friend he, Kevin Bacon on, on, on the, um, the Zach and Matt show or whatever that is. Um, Kevin I thought Bacon. he was going to look like that guy from, uh, the first Spider-Man movie. Uh, he doesn't look like that at all. Um, I'm okay with the way he looks, obviously, but, um, I wasn't expecting it. So, I, the first I, you know, time I don't know you what see how Jewy David but, looks, it is shocking. Um, Okay, so the thrust of this, I guess he said, don't play, don't play this. First of all, this voicemail was brought to you by Ambien. Yeah. Don't, don't <laughs> attack my listeners. I have very I'm few. I need each celebrating one. Celebrating how sharp he was. Celebrating what? How sharp and to the point his message was. So he was basically saying that he looked up Kevin Bacon on the Internet and he was expecting right. to look like Tobey Maguire from Spider-Man? I think. Or or Tom Hollander, maybe. Or Tom Or, or Andrew Garfield. Okay. But it's David Bacon, not Kevin Bacon, who we have on the show. <laughs> so look up David Bacon. I have no idea what David Bacon looks like. And apparently, this listener was okay with me as long as he could imagine... Me as a cartoon image, but when he saw the real me, right. it was too much to handle. So just uh, whoever, what I, I don't know what this guy's name was, but uh, number twelve, 
Yeah. Imagine David Bacon as a like a as a chubby cartoon pig in a fedora with the <laughs> with the press badge in it, like in the band. And you know, you don't have to look at me. We don't do a video version of this show. I can be anybody you want me to be. Right. You can jerk off to whatever you want David to be. He's not jerking off. I think he had an image of me as probably, uh, I don't know, Eric Severide, Edward R. Murrow, a little more craggy-looking, seasoned. I think a lot of people right. are disappointed by how youthful I look. Okay. How are you? You... Who, me? Yeah. I'm, I'm good. What's I don't that, want to brag. Uh, what's that noise? But, uh, I just got an email. That's a plane going overhead. There's nothing I can do about that. But too bad you don't live in Tehran, huh? What's that? I said, too bad you don't live in Tehran. He said, trivializing uh, an international tragedy, which is why he has so <laughs> few listeners. Go ahead. Maybe uh, maybe that guy was imagining you looking like the Ayatollah Khomeini. Mm. I've been because you hate America. Yeah, I think he liked America more than I do. That's true. I think back in that's 19- true. The Ayatollah Khomeini was a little bit more of an American patriot than you are. I think back in '79, the Ayatollah Khomeini may have been more pro-American than I was. I was. I was oh they're coming from I think is he Huh? Oh that's that's the uh Department of Homeland Security coming for you. I see. Yeah, because uh, the Khomeini he burned the flag, but he didn't shit on it first. Oh I would never burn the flag. I'm an environmentalist. I boil the flag. <laughs> yeah, I, I I'm pulling that from my act. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm desperate. I'm desperate. Okay. 202, let me give so the... Listen, yeah. anyway, I just want to tell your listeners some good news I got this week, which is I heard from the, from the label that released my first album, Comedian. Yes. And thanks to a lot of uh, people's support, uh, it actually made money for the first time since it was released seven years ago. Wow. And I'm getting, I'm getting a check this week for $17. Wow. So I want to thank everybody who's been listening on Spotify, who's been buying it on CD, uh, or listening on on Apple Music. That $17 is going to really go. Yeah. That'll help fill a quarter of my of my gas tank. Okay. Uh, and okay. So, congratulations. 202-670-2752 is our hotline number. Uh, 202-670-2752. We're talking with Liam McEnany. Working Class Fancy is the name of his latest comedy CD. And you should download his podcast, Tell Your Friends. And I would assume, just like the David Feldman Show, you can hear it on Spotify or Pandora. <laughs> Or iTunes that's, or Stitcher. That's correct. Right? Okay. And, and also, I'm gonna I'm just gonna throw this out there. February twenty fifth, I will be appearing on Wendy Liebman's show at Vitello's in Studio City. Yes. Where Robert where Robert Blake tragically lost his wife. Yeah, that's very sad. The funniest murder in Los Angeles is that side to kill his wife. <laughs> <laughs> now he he stepped outside with her in the parking lot, and then he's like, "Oh, I left my gun in the bank 
<laughs> gun fell out of my pocket. And so he went back and to get the gun to kill his wife, and then somebody beat him to it. <laughs> and that was the tragedy. She was popular. I mean, when a yeah, lot I mean, of men want to kill you, you're doing something yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, and then March 25th, I'm doing a uh, show in my underwear uh, at Sal's Comedy Hall on Melrose. On Ro- in, at Rockingham, where and, Nicole... <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's, it's, it's at a Sal's Comedy Hall on Melrose. Uh, the, everybody's going to be in their underwear. There's going to be a lot of attractive women on the line. Are you really doing your show in, in, in your underwear? Well, I'm going to wear boxers and a T-shirt, so I'm, I'm going to cheat a little bit. But is it I really the comedians have to perform in their underwear? Yeah. Why? Uh, I think uh, it's because the woman who runs it is really attractive, and she poses a lot in her underwear on Instagram. Mm. And and so uh, and so, I think it's like a good way of getting fucking desperate dudes through the door to yeah. watch the show. You know who started this trend in Hollywood? Who's that? One of the lesser-known Marx Brothers, Skid. Skid Marx. Skid Marx performed in his... <laughs> he used to perform in his underwear. He wore it you know, inside out and went under the name was, Skid Marx. He was controversial. He didn't use blackface, but he definitely used brownface. All right. You see, you can't do that. I'm just saying he was controversial. It's a historical well, yeah, fact. But, uh, it's true, but we don't talk about that. It was an ugly time... In our nation's history, clip and smelly clip letter 24 clip number. I'm sorry, clip letter 24. You know, he was a regular around the corner, you know, where fudge is made. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Right around the corner. <laughs> and uh, then there was, of course, the, the sister, B.O. Right. right. B.O. She didn't smell good. It was Harpo, then, Chico. Gummo and B.O. And then their mother, after she gave birth to all them, was Stretch. Stretch-o. Stretch marks. Yeah. How about homo? Want to go for that one? That would have... Homo marks? Homo marks. That's... that's the, yeah, I have homo you know, marks. The, you're gonna, the, the guy who scratched my back. So. Hey, by the way, yeah, you're, uh, I'm really disappointed. <laughs> Imagine my disappointment, Liam, when I paid $17 to see Uncut Gems, and it turned uh-huh. out turned out it wasn't gay porn. <laughs> you know what I love about that joke, David? Yeah. It's not the first time I've heard that joke. I mean, it might be the first time I've heard that joke today, but it's definitely not the last time I'm going to hear that joke today. What? Somebody else came up with that? Uh, maybe one or two other people. I tweeted well, listen, it earlier professional today. Writers, did it? Uh-huh. Did you really see Uncut Gems? Not yet. My son saw it. He says it's amazing. By the way, it's speaking amazing. of... You know, amazing. I know, I know. Here's the thing about Uncut Gems. Can I just say one thing? Adam Sandler's best performance, by far, there's a really tense half hour at the end, and I'm not going to give too much away. Except the only bad part of the entire movie was towards the end. There's this really tense sequence where he's got a lot riding on this basketball game he's watching. And, uh, like, he's going to get killed if he doesn't win this bet. Yeah, don't ruin and it. Don't of, ruin it. No, no, no. I'm just going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you. Just out of nowhere, Rob Schneider pops up with a big mustache and sombrero and goes, You can do it! 
I ruined the whole movie for me. You can do it, Diamond Boy. You can. <laughs> Rob Schneider is so effing funny. He is so underrated. It's incredible. 202-670-2752 is our hotline number. Let's hear another call. Hello, Dave. My name is Mark. I had to call. I'm, this last program you had was super annoying. You're talking about poop, <laughs> and you got the guy on there, Dr. Lynn, talking about Pelosi shouldn't send the impeachment over to the Senate. Why the hell go through the process of spending taxpayers' dollars, millions of taxpayers' dollars, to impeach the president and then not send it? Do your job. Whatever the hell the Senate does, that's their business. You have no control over that. But the poop talk and the, and the very annoying sound effects with the screeching dog, I mean, normally I love your show, but this was a loser. Goodbye. Yeah, normally I love your show, but the thing that's constant from week to week, <laughs> I hate that now. <laughs> I listen every week, but somehow the sound bad sound effects caught me by surprise this episode. Ah, uh, he's right. It's easy. Are all of your listeners drunk? Is I'm getting a real no. I I, I no. <laughs> They're not. And you owe him an apology. That was constructive criticism. Anybody can do poop jokes. And I try to sell this show as being sophisticated, right. highbrow, and, right. you know, I have... We need to raise the bar like my great favorite old-time comedian Skid Marks once did. Exactly. This, so, I, I was his name Mark? Marks. Skid Marks. No, the, the caller's name was Mark. His name was Mark. Yeah. Okay. You're right. like his first name is Track. Oh, you're, you're, you're calling. See, this is, I asked people to call 202-670-2752. Whatever's on your mind, constructive criticism. Anybody can do poop jokes. I certainly can. Anybody. My my kid was doing poop jokes before he could poop. Before my kid was toilet trained, he was making poop jokes. Before he was 13, he was doing poop jokes? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Good one. I like that. All right. And this is the last usable clip. 202 2752 this is our last usable clip. All right. Okay, here we go. Hello, David. This is Robert Hawking. Steve is younger and funnier brother. You probably think we sound alike, but that's only because our mother was a Commodore 64. Anyway, I was initially worried that Liam would stop coming on the show when you first called him a fucking idiot, but after listening to him, I realized he is a fucking idiot. My question is, what are the physical and political barriers to transitioning to a micro-power grid using hydrogen fuel cells? I'll hang up and listen off air. <laughs> Did you hear that? I heard that. That was great. Yeah. That was hilarious. Too smart. Too smart for me. Was that Vegas cat baby? No, I don't know. I don't know. But they should pump up the vo the volume a little. Well, Amelia, pump up the volume. Pump up the volume. That's what your first two call it. Yeah. So Emilio is a big fan of our show. 
you know. Emilio made a, a theme song for this segment. Well, it's not so much a theme song. I don't know if I can find it. Hang on. Where the hell is it? He made a theme song. We played it last week. Uh, no, we didn't play it last week. I yes, we did. We, we played the theme song. It was, it was a whole thing. It had clips from various segments. and. No, we didn't. I thought I loaded it. Let me load it again. You're thinking about the other thing, but I'm talking about the, the theme song we played last week. What theme were song? You, were you on heroin last week? He he made this great theme song for the for the mail segment. No, we haven't played it yet. We played the theme song last week. The other thing, the montage she made, we're gonna we haven't played yet. Oh, right. So one of the ways I sleep at night is by convincing myself that I'm very understanding of my listeners. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and that I never insult anybody, that oh, this isn't, yeah. that there's room for everybody's opinion on right. my show. Even if I disagree, we're yeah. having a collegial conversation. Right, but what actually happens is at some point during the segment, you start yelling at me that I'm a fucking moron. That I disagree. Well, that, you, that you say I'm stupid. I, I would never do that. It's the job of a host. But, but you, you did, and Emilio, God bless this guy. Not only did he make a great theme song that you should have played at the top of the segment, but he put together a supercut of all the times you call me stupid. Let's see. Let's listen to this. This is Emilio's work. I have never told you you're stupid. I have some guests on this show who are comedians. And, you know, some comedians. Ian Mac, uh, Ian, uh, Liam McNamee. He's being reasonable because I love Liam. He's regular on the show, and I say this with all the love that I feel in my heart for him. He's an effing idiot. Get the fuck out of my party. Oh, boy. Uh, I think the correct answer is you're a fucking idiot. <laughs> you should not only not be allowed to vote, they should take the vote. Listen to people who know more than you. Busted. I'm kind of saying that's a pretty fancy word for a moron like you. <laughs> Irish people are bigoted and prejudiced. <laughs> Every single Irish person you'll ever meet is intolerant and prejudiced and makes up their minds about certain ethnicities before they even met. Before they even met the person, an Irish person will just dismiss them because all Irish people are racist. Republican, you fat fuck. 
Well, that wasn't me talking well, was, to you. That was even better than I thought it was. That wasn't me talking to you, though. Oh. Those were a couple of interviews uh, that I've done. <laughs> the last one, you you didn't, you haven't called me a fat fuck. You I haven't never called me that. a fat fuck yet, but everything else sounded very familiar. No, no. I, uh... <laughs> Boy, I bet your ex-wife wishes she had an Emilio in her life. <laughs> or that tape to play before the judge. <laughs> She, I always patted her down to make sure she wasn't wired. I bet if she had an Emilio in her life, you guys would never have gotten to the point of divorce. I know. I think just, and I don't think the uh, the editing is what would have pleased my wife. I think Emilio probably could have. Oh. All right. We're talking about anyway, my third wife. Amelia, my third wife. I just want to say thank you, Emilio. That was fantastic. It was. I, I, I am utterly convinced that I treat all my guests <laughs> with respect. That there's a little noblesse oblige. I feel I'm hyper literate, so I need to be patient with people, and it's un, unbecoming to be okay. Well, this is good. You, I feel like this is very therapeutic for you. Yes. Like we might have made a breakthrough on this week's show. Yes. 202-670-2752. 202-670-2752. Call our hotline and leave us a message. We also have a button, the Ask Me Anything button, and people ask Liam and David Feldman questions. This is the segment of the show where we answer those questions. And Bernie Ho Baby Cat is back, I think. I think you have a chance with her, my friend. I think she she took uh, she took time off from her full time job of leaving YouTube comments. Well, she said. She leaves so many YouTube comments. And she also changes her review of my show on iTunes all the time. And they're hysterical. <laughs> and her YouTube comments are hysterical. They are. I read them. Here we go. Bernie Hill Baby Cat, a.k.a. Vegas Baby Cat. Uh, Confucius say, be wary of person of Chinese descent offering you carbonated beverage. Also... Man who fart in church, sit in own pew. Kind of like this entire segment. Later, you pathetic humps, Bernie Ho, out. Well, she is funny. I'm sorry. Mm. I know you missed the boat, but that was funny. <laughs> you could have been making out with her right now. This next one comes to us from... I think she's like 70, right? Isn't she like 90? So you don't have to wear a condom. She's a. Uh, isn't she like in a breath controlled wheelchair or something? I hope. Okay. Um, no, she, she's. Come on, being like you have it. You wanted to make out with her. Yeah. Uh, I want. I wanted to meet her. I go to. I went to Vegas twice, and she was too scared to hang out well, with me. Okay. This next question comes to us from Grass Putin. Grass Putin. He's a. Stegosaurus, that's his zodiac sign, Stegosaurus. He's located in the throes of alcoholism, much like David Bacon, probably brought on by binge listening your, to your podcast thing. Here's his question. Do you believe there will be new articles of impeachment with the release of these new documents from Lev Parnas? 
Also, any update on the cats and the raw sewage? Oh, God, I'm also wondering. Oh, hang on, hang on. He says, I know there's enough dirty pussy out there with Liam's Uh, mother out and about. uh, Oh, man. That hurt. Oh, that is so good. That is so good. I'm not going to lie, that that, that hurt a lot. Yeah, that was a good joke. He got you. He got me. He called your, he says your mother has dirty pussy. Jesus. My my 64-year-old mother... All she did was uh, work hard to raise me and my sister. She worked hard ons, not worked hard. She worked hard ons. And what's her reward? She gets uh, she's some guy say she's a dirty pussy who's never met her. It's yeah. Well, he must have gotten her at the end of the day. (laughs) This next, I'm sorry, we might we might have peaked with that supercut. Okay. Uh, this is from, oh, Billy Brown is back. Billy in the Brown. Billy Brown. He's a Scorpio. He lives in Central Park. And here's his question. Oh, he's your roommate. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Has David or Liam ever taken psychedelic drugs? I have not taken psychedelic drugs. I am afraid of them. I don't recommend them. I think you should get... I think you need talk therapy for many years before you have the courage to lift off on LSD, acid, or mushrooms. You know, what's funny is when I was 19, I knew this real burnout. Uh, and he was like, you know, just long hair, fucking five feet tall, you know, like that slurry kind of like always high speech, you know, people who are always high have. And I just read the electric Kool-Aid acid test, and I, I was curious, and I said to him, you know, like, hey, I'm thinking maybe I want to try acid, you know, where I can get some. He's like, yeah, man, you should do that. I've done acid like five times, and it totally changed me forever. Like, it just made me a completely different person. And I was like, well, if that's what acid does, I don't want any part yeah. of it. Yeah. I don't want to be you. Yeah. I think people should try alcohol. I think they should try Pot, even though that has cocaine. I'm sorry, cocaine. No, I think heroin. I think pot has some hallucinogenic properties, but not too severe. I don't recommend acid, mushrooms, any hallucinogens. I think. uh, Yeah, there are some hallucinogenic pot strains, and maybe that's like something that uh, that like he could start with. You know. Uh, I'm thinking, uh, I mean, weed is, does qualify technically, but it's also a stimulant and a depressant. So there's like a whole lot going on. But there's a, there's a hybrid strain called Girl Scout cookies. Mm. And it's a strain of Durban poison, like it's a mix between Durban poison and OG cookies. You, t- you take a hit of that and you suddenly you're knocking on doors? Yeah, you take a hit of that and suddenly your father's going to the office. Trying to get money suddenly, from his coworkers for some. Suddenly, David Feldman is uh, messaging you on Instagram for some reason. Oh, that's a okay. Hey, then there's a then there's Kilimanjaro. Uh, it's a sativa. Uh, it originates in Tanzania. Or, I'm sorry, Tanzania. I don't know why I said Tanzania. Dope? No, but I know a lot about everything. Yeah. 
I mean, especially in California, you can't help but pick some of this stuff up. So that's what I would recommend for this guy. Yeah. Start slow with some of those hallucinogenic pot strains and then yeah. see if he likes the effect. Here's my advice. The health insurance companies and the powers that be are encouraging the legalization of pot sub rosa surreptitiously because it allows <coughs> Americans to self-medicate. Right. The fact of the matter is most of us need psychiatric help or need some kind of psychologist. The system is making Americans sick and they don't realize that they're mentally ill. When you live, when you live in a sick, toxic culture the way we do, it, it, it makes you ill in the head. And I was talking to my sister about this. During the antebellum period in America, uh, slavery obviously was terrible for the African-Americans, but it was also bad for the slaveholders because you had to deny the existence of another human being. And that makes you mentally ill. It makes you sick. It makes it impossible for you to love properly and... A lot of people said, and I don't know, I, I think it was Frederick Douglass who wrote that it wrote about this, that it, it not only is bad for the slaves, it's bad for the slaveholders. When you look at this country where there's so much income inequality and you look at the suicides, more and more studies are coming out revealing the relationship between debt, poverty and mental illness and or suicide. And then you look at the plight of the 1% and their kids, the drug abuse, the hopelessness among the children of the 1%. It it has a whiff of antebellum South where people are convinced they should be happy because they're part of the 1% and they want to blow their effing brains out. So my advice is don't take any psychedelics, especially if you're part of the the 1%, because a door might open and you'll realize that your that your parents are dangerous and that you're dangerous and you may have some self-realization without a a spirit guide. Uh Go get go. You need a a, a psychiatrist. You don't need hallucinogens because this is this country is really sick. And I think acid and mushrooms will freak you out. I also think we live in an age of disassociation where uh, people are just encouraged to to check out. Hello. Hello. Can you hear me? Yeah. Are you making? Oh, you're making a joke. Okay. Okay. We got to keep moving. Go ahead. Disassociation. Well, it's just you know, it's like weed is legalized. There's TV streaming. People are like, people are being programmed to watch an entire TV series in one sitting. There's video games. There's phones. There's tablets. And nobody's politically engaged. Nobody understands the difference between health insurance and health care. And it turns out that opium is the opiate of the people. That's exactly right. And so people are just kind of like uh, ch- checking out. Yes. This next question comes to us from Yawn. <laughs> Which is what people probably did during that last <laughs> answer. His zodiac sign is sweet and sour. Okay. Uh, that's not bad. 
That's right. He lives in Oakland, and his question or comment is, your discussion on the idea that war is the purpose of war is the subject of the documentary Why We Fight. Even John McCain says things you would be surprised at for him. Yes, I had Congressman Alan Grayson on, and he was talking about the, the purpose of war is war. Right. To perpetuate profits for the military-industrial complex. We financialize the war machine to the point where it's good for us to go to war. I assume he's talking about the Eugene Jarecki film and not the not the films from the World War II. Yes. yes. Okay. And I did see that documentary, and I'm going to watch it again. Why We Fight, I think it came out in 2004, 2005. Uh-huh. Great, great documentary. Well, it's like the, yeah, it has a lot of stories like the Vietnam vet whose uh, son was killed on September 11th. Yeah. And then asked the military to write his name on any bomb that's going to be dropped in Iraq. Yeah. You know, and uh, just uh, about young people who are have no financial choice but to join the military. Right. Because they're just in debt and they're poor. Yeah. Yeah. I will watch. Is it, that's right. He's on, Does he take like a subway into the city? Yeah. And he looks out and, and says, this is where I saw the the World Trade Center go down. And then his yeah. Son, yeah. Yeah. And then he took the subway to your mom's house and he said, oh, this is where I saw an old lady go down yes. on a guy. Yeah. And this is subway. And then the subway went into a tunnel. Uh-huh. But my mother charges about 50 bucks. <laughs> It's 50 bucks to go into the tunnel, uh-huh. 80 bucks to get out. Right. Is that preeclampsia? Is that how she does it? What does preeclampsia mean? Uh, what does preeclampsia mean? Yeah, you know everything. You you, you're the smartest person I've ever met. You know the definite. You knew all about. You knew who directed Why We Fight, what it was about. Eugene Jarecki, yeah. Yeah, I, had, I couldn't remember that. What does preeclampsia mean? It's a complication of pregnancy. It means you have high blood pressure and damage to another organ system, often the liver and kidneys. Usually begins after 20 weeks of pregnancy in women whose blood pressure has normally been normal. Oh, I thought it's like, it sounds like something like where you can't get your dick out of a woman. Uh, I think that would be gigantism. Oh, okay. That would be getting into a woman. Gigantism. You can't get that would be gigantism. But isn't there a condition where like a woman's vagina jams up and you can't pull out? Uh, Have you ever heard that? It's like a bear trap. Are you? Are you? It sounds like one of those Vietnam vet myths. And you have to cut it off, like uh, like the razor blade up the pussy. Uh, are you are you asking if there's like a condition where the vagina clamps around the dick? It's called penis captivus. Oh, okay. I'd rather talk about this, but Mark, our listener, uh-huh. wants us to keep it clean. Thank you, Mark. Yeah. This is a classy. This is a classy, classy podcast. All right. Jan writes, and he's back. He wrote another comment. When you talk about U.S. soldiers having to do several tour, tours of duty, I thought we weren't going to talk about poop. 
<sighs> tours of duty. Do you get that? Tours of. Do you understand uh, the wordplay that I just did? No, no, no. Please, please explain it to me. Tours of duty. Okay, so I get it. So like tours, maybe? Is that the, is that no, no, the poop what joke? I, what I'm saying is that earlier somebody said stop with is the poop. Is it French? Yeah. No, no, duty. Somebody said earlier don't do any more poop jokes. And oh, I said, tours and, and of duty. duty. Yeah. Do you get duty that? Duty could D-U-T-Y, but it sounds like D-O-O-D-I-E, yes, which is yes. a colloquialism for, do, for shit. Yes, yes. yes. Okay. Well, I, I, now I get it. Um, Explain the funny part. Okay. No, I'm just working. Just working smart. Words are my tools. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a craftsman, and words are my my tools. Tour of duty. The regular Jonathan Swift. Yes. More like Jonathan, not so swift. Oh. Ooh. Okay. Uh. Don't forget to mention next time that people with kids are being sent. My wife's cousin had to send her eight-month-old. Her eight-month-old went off to fight? My wife's cousin had to send her eight-month-old to her sister's, oh, to live, when she and, and her husband were being sent for a third tour of duty. This is one of the reasons I support the draft, so people of all walks of life are subjected to the harsh reality of war. If you've been listening to this morning's show, you know that I agree with you 100%. We talked earlier about this. In other news, I went door-to-door for Bernie for the first time and registered my first voter. Thank you. There you go. Congratulations. Where, Where do they live? Oakland. Oakland. Okay. Good. We've got another Democrat registered in California. This next question comes to us from Egghead. By the way, Mark, I just want to say good work on getting someone registered to vote. Yes. Uh, In all seriousness, that's very important this year. And Liam's okay with that as long as you don't get people registered as sex offenders. Well, I don't need the competition. Yeah. I was saying, okay, that's another way of looking at it. (laughs) Okay, that's funny. This next question comes to us from Texas, from Egghead. His zodiac sign is no dogs or Irish. Well, howdy, Tex. Okay. He says he voted for Ralph Nader and has taken me 20 years to be able to admit it. You were right for voting for Ralph Nader. I voted for Ralph Nader. I regret it. Did you really? I did. Of course I did. 2000? Good. Good. Absolutely. I I mean, luckily I did it in New York where it didn't really do any damage. But uh, in Texas, oofa. Nah. What what does it matter? He was going to lose Texas. Gore ain't winning Texas in 2000. That's George W. Bush country. That is true. Okay, so he's forgiven. And and Cheney country. He had a... It's it's against the Constitution for two people from the same state to run as president and vice president. So Cheney had to relocate to Wyoming. Uh, he well, write, I mean, Ralph Nader did well in Florida, so that's good. That affected the outcome of the election. Uh, if you add up, he got that strong three percent. 
if you add up all the votes, if Al Gore oh. didn't try to be so smart and he said, add up all the votes in Florida, he would have won. Uh. But he decided to, you know, be a smart ass and cherry pick the counties he wanted the recounts in. And that's where the mischief started. Plus, the war authorization was given to George W. Bush in 2002 when, uh-huh. when the Democrats controlled the Senate. Uh-huh. Tom Daschle was majority leader. You know what? Uh, one of those guys went on to be president, and one of those guys went on to win a Nobel Prize for his work with climate change. And an Oscar. And an Oscar. Yeah. But, uh... <laughs> so it was worth it. On a show last fall, when you and Liam were talking about Suzanne Plachette, you mentioned offhand... Have I been doing this that long? Holy shit. Yeah. You mentioned offhand that she had helped... <laughs> that she had helped clean up after the suicide of a Hollywood producer... Yes, that's David Beagleman. She was friendly with David Beagleman, the Hollywood producer who stole money from Cliff Roberts and Adina Merrill, as well as Judy Garland. And he blew David his, Beagleman. David Beagleman. He blew his brains out across. Oh, Eagleman. Beagleman. Beagleman. B. Beagleman. Beagleman. David Beagleman. David Judy Justine. Oh, stop it! He was in '95, by the way. Huh? That was in 1995. Right. And he, I, at, after all was said and done, I think he ran United Artists. And he ran Columbia, Columbia Pictures. Columbia Pictures. And he, he had his own production company that went bankrupt in 94. And he was writing bad checks. Right. And signing Cliff Robertson's name. He, Cliff Robertson was married to Dina Merrill, who grew right. up in Mar-a-Lago, by the way. The actress. Really? Dina, yep. It, it was... Uh, she was an heir, I believe. Heiress. She, uh, well, then when she got, when she transitioned, I believe Dina Merrill was the heir to the post-serial fortune, as well as Merrill Lynch. She had a lot of money. She grew up, I believe, in Mar-a-Lago. Uh-huh. And David Beagleman believed that... Her, by the way, just to Meriwether Post is it? Her husband was E. F. Hutton, not a. So she was she was the heir. She was a. She was married to E. F. Hutton. But why wouldn't it be Merrill Lynch? She was a. She was the child of of the post serials heiress. But why would she use the name Merrill if her father was E. F. Hutton? Uh. You're talking about Marjorie Merriweather Post. I'm talking about was, Cliff Robertson's wife. Life. What? You're talking. Are you talking about her mom? I'm talking about Dina Merrill, who married. I'm talking about Dina Merrill, who was married to Cliff Robertson. Uh huh. Anyway, David Beagleman figured she had enough money, so he wrote right. some checks off her account, and he ended up going to jail. Then he blew his brains out in '95, and I remember. No, no, she was the she was the daughter of E.F. Hutton. That's what it was. That's okay. not 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 the Merrill Lynch guy. You know, and you should take a page from the E.F. Hutton playbook. Her real name was Hutton. Okay, when E.F. Hutton talks, Merrill. everybody listens. Right. Do you remember that commercial? No, but I, I keep going. Okay, don't make me bring up Julius Larosa and Arthur Godfrey. No, 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 Charles Merrill was her father's friend. 
Whatever. She she took her name from Charles Merrill. That's what happened. Oh, I see. So okay. she like she took her stage name from Charles Merrill, but she's E.F. Hutton's daughter. So I signed with CAA. <laughs> and the CIA? I knew you were CAA, not. and they had this big building called the Death Star. They still have it. It was called the Death Star. It still is Century City. In Century City, and across the street from the Death Star is the hotel where David Beagleman blew his brains out. And I and I can remember you would know it was Bagel Boy, and, and that that's the other guy, the little guy. Yeah, knows Bagel Boy. Yeah, and so I would run into friends at the Death Star, and as the cast of Friends. Yes, and I remember we'd be waiting for our cars to come around, and I'd look huh. up at that hotel, and I'd say, "See that window over there." And I point to where David Beagleman blew his brains out, and I go, "That's where we're heading, fellas. That's our end game." No, so, you were never, you were never going to make that much money in show business, David. To be able to afford a, a nice hotel room to blow my brains out. Yeah, exactly. You're you're destined for a Motel Six, and we both know it. Yeah, you're right. My, I was disappointed when David Beagleman blew his brains out because it happened so late in his life. If only he had done it earlier. When you could have really enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah. But Suzanne Plachette cleaned it up. <clears throat> and went on Boy. to marry Tom Poston. She married Tom Poston? Are you shitting me? Yeah. Which is That's interesting hilarious. because Dina Merrill was the heir to the Post fortune. Heiress. Well, there's things about Dina Merrill that I, I can't tell you. She was an her, heir. Her third husband, Ted Harley, formed RKO Pictures. Really? Yep. With Joe Kennedy. Uh-huh. Okay. The gangster. Gotta, yes. Last question, then we got to go. This comes to us from the coach. Is Her first Fox? husband, by the way, and, I'm, and then I will, was the heir to the Colgate Palmolive fortune. Really? Yeah, so she was just like literally swimming in money. Like her, her pussy hair must have been mink. She was swimming in money, and she probably okay. What did you say? What? What? What was mink? Well, what? I don't remember. <sighs> Sorry, Mark. This comes from the coach. His zodiac sign is no trespassing. He lives in Baltimore via Laguna Beach, longtime listener subscriber who once lost a Twitter roast battle with Colleen Worthman. Wow. Then, you know, I wouldn't get into it with Colleen, boy. No, I would not either. He asked, Why isn't she a guest on your show anymore? She's good. I know. This, She's a better guest than I am, to be honest. Hey. She should be doing this. Bernie Ho Baby Cat's a better guest than you are. Well, that's, you know, that's hitting below the belt. Yeah. Which you would know very well because that's where your mom does most of her work. Oh my God! See, Colleen would never say that. No, Colleen would wouldn't. think of something wittier. You insult a woman, and all the discounts when you were depressed, and all the things <laughs> that she would, my mom did for you. Well, I am ashamed. Yes, you have shamed me, sir. Why? Why do you play the same NASA audio between bits on every podcast? Because Gene Kranz. Uh, because it's uh, one of them is from Apollo 13, and it's the ultimate life lesson on how to keep your cool. And I find yeah. it very soothing to listening 
the 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 Apollo 13 space capsule was about to lose all its oxygen, and they, as they said, worked the problem. They mm-hmm. stayed focused, and they brought the the guys home. And I find that very inspirational. No matter how stressed out you are, I always just think of Apollo 13 and work the problem. I actually think that's great. I think that's uh, very inspirational. I'm definitely going to steal that uh, and talk to people when I have to talk to people about that kind of thing. Send your brainwash, right? Ah, send your brainwashes back. Women who use profanity are hot. Who do you predict will win Iowa and New Hampshire in the primaries? Liam, you predict. Then we got to wrap it up. I think Iowa's going to go to Bernie, and I think New Hampshire's going to go to Elizabeth Warren. Okay. That's uh, that's my prediction. Liam McEnany has a podcast. It's, Wait, what's your prediction, David? I'm not ready to make a prediction. Liam McEnany has a uh, podcast. It's called Tell Your Friends. His comedy album is Working Class Fancy. Hey, it's My first one is Comedian. They're both on Spotify. Yes, as is this podcast. Hey, it's Liam is his Twitter handle. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you, everybody. And also, can I just say one more thing? HeyIt'sLiam.com is my website, and you can email me if you want to at Liam at HeyIt'sLiam.com. I actually do enjoy hearing from you guys, even if I don't always email back. Okay. Thank you, Liam. Thanks, David. Hey, David, stay on the line. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. 